We praise the colorectal surgeon, misunderstood and much maligned, slaving away in the heart of darkness, working where the sun don't shine. Respect the colorectal surgeon, it's a calling few would crave. Lift up your hands and join us, let's all do the finger wave. When it comes to spreading joy, there are many techniques. Some spread joy to the world and others just spread cheeks. Some may think the cardiologist is their best friend. But the colorectal surgeon knows he'll get you in the end. Why be a colorectal surgeon? It's one of those mysterious things. Is it because in that profession there are always openings? When I first met a colorectal surgeon, he did not quite understand. I said, hey, it's nice to meet you, but do you mind if we don't shake hands? He sailed right through medical school because he was a whiz. But he never thought of psychology when he read passages. A doctor he wanted to be for golf, he loved to play. But this is not quite what he meant by 18 holes a day. Respect the colorectal surgeon here and now we'll raise a glass for the rectal surgeon like the rectum can tell a liquid from a gas. We praise the colorectal surgeon misunderstood and much maligned slaving away in the heart of darkness working where the sun don't shine. All right, everybody, welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. That is the colorectal surgeon song by a group of two older men who I'm sure have seen a colorectal surgeon by that point, Bowser and Blue. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Today, January 29th, 2021, the time right now, 9.49 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, and we have a free roll. We have a free roll, $55. It started four minutes ago, but do not sweat it because you have 20 minutes left to get in. You can get in until 10.10 p.m. Pacific Time. That's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. You can find it near the top of the screen. Go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase, PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll to understand the rules to qualify for the free money we give away each week which, by the way, can be paid to you in a variety of ways. Pretty much any payment method you can think of online, we can send you. Not Dogecoin, though. Won't be Dogecoin. But uh, we can send Bitcoin, and then we can send you U.S. dollars through many electronic methods of payment. If you can think of one, we probably do it. So claim your prize by PMing Dan Space Druff on the forum or... Email dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com. Text me 775-372-8355 to claim your prize. I prefer the PMs because I'd like to have it all in one place. I just paid out a batch of them tonight. So if you haven't been paid yet and you won something in the free roll, please let me know. Please PM me on the forum, Dan Space Druff, to let me know. Or contact me one of these other ways so you can finally get paid. I spent a few hours tonight actually paying back a lot of people. Not paying back, but paying a lot of people that have been owed for quite some time. What I do is 
you know, these accumulate, and then I send them out in batches just to minimize the grind of doing this every week, which is kind of burdensome. It's kind of a pain in the ass. But speaking of a pain in the ass, and by the way, I, I don't think I told you that the free roll, uh, the way it's distributed, so I'll tell you that before we go on to the pain in the ass. Uh, 28, 16, and 11. 28 for first, 16 for second, 11 for third. And thank you to Duke Kaboom, gave $20. I am Greek, not I am green. He got mad I wrote I am green. It was a typo. Don't He, he red-repped me on the forum for writing I am green. But it's I am Greek, $25. And Jeff Dime gave $10, so thank you to him. So thank you to the three of you for the $55 we're giving away this week. You have till 10.10 to get in there. Anyway, um, I had a colonoscopy this week. That's why I... Actually, last week. I, I had it last week. That's why I didn't have the show until this week. That's why we had a week off. I warned you this might happen. I warned you it was possible that I would not feel up to doing this show shortly after my colonoscopy, which was a week ago today, on Friday the 22nd. So that is what occurred. I had some time to recover. I'm okay now. I will tell you all about that colonoscopy shortly. If you want to call the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55. 775-372-8355 is the number. You can also call the Mount Charleston line. Mount Charleston got a bunch of snow. Bunch of snow. It's about 45 minutes away from Las Vegas by car. Don't go there this weekend. Seriously, don't because it's going to be jammed. They're going to turn you away. You don't want to go there this weekend. If you're living in the Las Vegas area or will be visiting Vegas this weekend, you go, oh, you know, I bet Mount Charleston has snow. I'm going to go visit. No, never visit Charleston on its first major snow. Never visit any mountain resort area anywhere on its first week of snow. I'm talking like major snow because everybody else has the same idea and you will have a miserable time. You may even get turned away. You need to either go on the weekdays or wait until the excitement over the new snow subsides and then come after that. So Mount Charleston's going to be jammed. In fact, uh, even Mount Charleston, the Chamber of Commerce there, actually put out a warning not to come, that it's going to be jammed and you should stay home. But the Mount Charleston line is 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line, an old 70s rotary phone which sits on top of Mount Charleston. I have a picture of it. Some of you were wondering, does this really exist? Is it a myth? Am I making it up? Well, go to the Poker Fraud Alert Twitter account, twitter.com slash Poker Fraud Alert, and you will see a picture of the Mount Charleston phone. You'll see it's real. In fact, you will even see the number 702-430-1808 on the phone, so you will see that it is not something I just lifted from somewhere on the Internet. It is an actual phone that I have. Now, the picture I didn't take all that recently because I haven't been up there recently, but it was a picture I took of my phone, a black 1970s rotary telephone. And uh, you can even see the wood of the shelving of the cabin where it's located on the Poker Fraud Alert Twitter account. So follow that if you have not followed it yet. Anyway, you can call the call to listen line if you want to listen to the show and you don't have a smartphone, you don't have a data plan, you don't want to waste your data, you're driving around and don't have a very strong signal, maybe uh, you don't want to use your computer to listen, maybe you just want a phone, you want to use a phone to call up, maybe an old 70s rotary phone to call up and listen to the show, and that's the way you want to do it. That phone number is 
or the alternate call to listen number 641-741-1095, 641-741-1095, the second call to listen number. Never buffers, never freezes, it just works. You know those methods of streaming where you try to listen to a live show, a stream show, and it freezes? And it says buffering, and it pisses you off, and it kind of ruins your rhythm as you're enjoying the show. I hate that. So I made sure that our call to listen line never does that. It is a no-buffer guarantee. 605-313-0736 is the number. Free to call as long as you can call the U.S., except I will warn you if you have T-Mobile, it'll cost you one cent a minute, which I wish I got, but they keep it. They Greedily keep that penny for themselves every minute you listen to the call to listen line on T-Mobile. But every other provider, it is free. But if it's not, don't uh, don't come to me with your phone bill. I'm not going to pay it. Okay. So, we have a chat room. Every device can get into it. So you need a forum account in good standing. Once you have that, you can go chat with people if you're listening live. If you're not listening live, you can go back in there and scroll up and see what people were saying. But there won't be anyone to chat with after the live show is over. If you want to listen to the live show in the archives, you can do so. We have a lot of different methods to listen to the show. And we have iTunes, we have Stitcher, we have TuneIn, we have Google Podcasts, we have Bullhorn. These are all apps you can get for your smartphone. We have iHeartMedia, we have Spotify, a lot of different choices. TuneIn, we have the TuneIn app, which can use... It can be used to listen to both the live show and the streaming uh, and, the, and the archives. So you can listen to the uh, archives there or the live show. There's two different entries for Poker Fraud Alert Radio. You'll find one is for live, one is for the other, one for the ar- archives. So uh, that's a good app. Tune in. Or you can just download or play the MP3 directly from the Radio Archives forum on PokerFraudAlert.com. Or you can just click the little MP3 button on the radio page that will take you there as well. Any device can play an MP3 just by clicking on it. So you don't even need an external player or anything like that. You just click on the MP3, it'll play it. Or you can download it. A lot of ways to listen. If there's some other way you want to listen, please let me know. Uh, 775-372-8355 is the number you can text me. You can text that number anytime, 24 hours a day. Our main phone number to the show, 775-372-8355. You can text me anytime, before, after, or during the show, and I will probably respond to you. If you text during the show, then I will read your text on the air unless you ask me not to. I will. So be careful. Be careful what you say to me. Okay, so we are going to go through the agenda We'll get Traderuski on the line. Let's try to find him right now before he falls asleep. He told me he's getting tired. It's always a race. Kind of like how it used to be a race to get Calwatt. But now the show is on so late, it's gotten too late for our West Coast guy, Traderuski. Sounds like we're using sonar to find him. Skype's not connecting to him for some reason. That's what that tone is. <laughs> well, that's not very good. For some, I couldn't even find him. He may have fallen asleep. He said he may jump on around three. Now tonight, I think we will be on a three. If you'll notice, two weeks ago we had a short show by our standards. By by other show standards, it would be super long. But we had. Oh, here we are. There we go. 
Trader Ruski, hello. What's happening, Josh? Hello, glad that you're still awake. And uh, we had a shorter show two weeks ago, less than five hours, one of our shortest shows in a while. Just didn't have as much material to talk about as usual. But uh, Trader Ruski didn't even catch us in time. We were actually off the air before he woke up. But uh, this week, this week, I have a feeling we will still be on. We have 17 topics this week to cover. 17! This happens when we skip a week. And this week is no uh, exception to that, where we have two weeks of topics to cover in one. And a lot of things have happened, and hopefully my voice will hold up. So I want to get right into it. I'm just going to not extend this any further. Actually, I still have to give you the agenda. Let me go through the agenda pretty quickly, then we will uh, start the topic. So I'll tell you about my colonoscopy and what happened with that. Some surprising things occurred with the colonoscopy. I didn't die. That's good. But I'll let you know what happened. I'm sure you've heard by now there is a week of craziness in the financial markets and even in the cryptocurrency markets. So we're going to talk about that, even though it's not a usual topic of this show. It's something that is big in the news, and a lot of poker players and gamblers are interested in it. There's some crossover, so we'll talk about that as our top story. As our second top story, we're going to talk about the Polk Negranu match, which has uh, escalated into some anger on both sides. They were getting along really well, surprisingly well, but that didn't last. I'll tell you what happened where... There is now uh, Twitter fighting between the two over uh, some disagreements of play style. Christopher Mitchell, I, I try not to overcover Christopher Mitchell on this show. I'm very fascinated with the story, but I know some of you are not. But I try not to overdo it. But uh, interesting development with him. It seems like uh, his scam is starting to crack, and some of his uh, clients who. We're kind of gullible in the first place to send him any money, given all the warning signs. But his clients are now rebelling. Some of them are realizing they've been scammed. And, in fact, one of them has created a YouTube channel to bash him. So we'll talk about what has happened with him. He's he's trying something really obnoxious, even by his standards. Mike Matisau is accu- accusing someone named Scott Ball of scamming. He also attacked Phil Helmuth on Twitter for, uh, quote, protecting Scott Ball. And uh, I'll tell you about that whole weird saga. By the way, Scott Ball is not Scott Bell. Don't confuse the two. Scott Bell is the one who released that movie about UB. He's known as Eleven Grover. That's not the same person. He's not accusing Scott Bell of anything. Only Scott Ball. Dan Bekovac of the Midway Poker Tour. Remember that Midway Poker Tour where they were paying people in silver? Instead of cash, and they didn't realize that till they were already in the tournament. And then a bunch of people got shorted, and he claimed he'd make it right, and we suspected that would not happen. And indeed, it was not made right. Uh, he has popped up again. He is playing tournaments again as if nothing happened. So we'll tell you about what's going on there. Remember we had the topic, I think it was our final show of 2020, where we talked about Kristen Ting and her legal battle to keep a boy she was raising that is not her biological son and that she actually has no legal rights to. And both biological parents are alive and not in jail, but she's trying to keep the boy pretty much as her own. And I I was sympathetic to her whole story. In fact, I I believed from the whole story that the boy probably was better off with her. However, there's always a second side to every story, and we got it. Because the biological mother of that kid showed up on Facebook 
and told her side on Alan Kessler's Facebook page. So I will read to you what she said. I always want to present both sides. I don't like being biased here. I want all the facts out and both sides of any argument out, even if they're not all factual. So I'll give you that update. Here's a, a pretty big story that's kind of been pushed to the background by everything else happening in this first month of 2021. The Wire Act. Remember the Wire Act that they used to uh, bust all the poker sites in uh, both 2006 and uh, 2011? The Wire Act, which makes it illegal for gambling across state lines. Well, that was reinterpreted in 2011. And then again reinterpreted, as I'd like to say, re-reinterpreted in, uh, in 2017. Well, well, now it has been re-re-reinterpreted in 2021. So I'll tell you what happened. That's actually pretty big news for legalized online poker. And speaking of which, another state has poker stars. Legal poker stars is now in Michigan starting today. So I'll tell you how that is going. I'll give you a little hint. Not well. There was some fail. Gambling world figure Shane Sigsby, he's like a poker staker and a sports better. I, I don't really know him. I've heard of him before. But uh, he accused someone named uh, John Martinelli of a premeditated $500,000 sports betting scam. So I'll tell you about that story. By the way, he was not scammed, Mr. Sigsby. He was just the one uh, reporting it to Twitter. So I'll tell you about that interesting story. And I didn't even know this type of thing goes on, what led to the scam. Though it's not surprising it happened once I learned about it. A World Series of Poker bracelet winner has been banned for multi-accounting on a network called Winamax. So I'll tell you about what happened there and who it is. The WPT has been sold. I'll tell you who bought it and how much it was for. New Jersey online sportsbooks are accused of offering bonuses to customers who are trying to cash out. You know, people saying, hey, let's cash out. And they go, whoa, 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 whoa. Are you sure you want to cash out those winnings? Maybe you'd like this bonus if you'd like to stay. Well, that's not legal. And apparently this is happening. So I'll tell you about that. That's an underreported story. But we're going to talk about it here. That is illegal for the sportsbooks to do. These are regulated sportsbooks, regulated online sportsbooks in New Jersey. And then we'll have our coronavirus news. So that's our long agenda tonight. I'll try not to spend too long on any topic. There's so many things to do. Four coronavirus topics plus those 13 topics I just mentioned. Let's get right into topic number one. I had a colonoscopy. I told you that was coming. The colonoscopy was scheduled for and took place on January 22nd in the morning. So I'll tell you how I felt about this coming in, okay? I knew for years that I needed this. I have a family history of colon cancer. And if you have a family history of colon cancer, your chance of getting colon cancer yourself is much, much higher. Much higher. If you, if you have no family history at all, at all, if like you, you cannot find any ancestor, and I don't, you don't have to go way back. I mean like go back two generations, three generations. If you can't find anybody who had colon cancer, then you're pretty safe. I'm not saying you won't get it, but you're a hell of a lot safer than if you do have colon cancer in the family. Well, I have it in the family. My dad's mom died in 1973. I don't remember her. I was only one year old. She 
at least got to know me, at least as a baby. You know, she got to meet me. I just don't remember her. I see pictures of me with her as a baby, but never got to know her when I was uh, coherent enough to understand it. Uh, but she died in 1973 in her mid-60s of colon cancer. My dad, her son, he is still alive. He never got colon cancer, but when he was 55 years old, he had a colonoscopy, his first one, and they found a polyp there that looked really, really bad. They actually found a few polyps, but they found one particular polyp in his colon that looked like it was very, very, very close to going cancerous. It was not cancerous. And once that was found, he was going back for colonoscopies uh, every three years or as prescribed. So he's had a ton of colon, a ton of colonoscopies since then. And just about every time they found polyps. Never as bad as that one because uh, there's not enough time for them to develop. I mean, the, the, whatever they found in him uh, when he was 55 had been growing there for a long time, and it's fortunate it didn't get him. It's fortunate it did not turn into cancer because it was very close. So uh, the bottom line is, genetically, it looks like my father probably would have had colon cancer. At least there's a decent chance he would have had it. So whether they actually took it out of him or not, that that doesn't matter as far as my genes, obviously. That's just a preventative measure. But... That's not good news for me as someone who is directly descended from him. Now, my mom's side has no colon cancer. It's totally clear of colon cancer. So that was what I was hoping would be the case, that I would uh, have inherited from that side. She's had a number of colonoscopies herself, and they've always come back clear. Not a single polyp has been found in her. And in fact, she's been told... Forget it, you don't need any more colonoscopies because you're old enough to where the risk-reward isn't there for you to get a colonoscopy when you've never had a polyp in your life. My dad still gets them. He will keep getting them every year for the rest of his life. Not every year, every, every three years for the rest of his life because every time they find polyps in him. So, kind of looked like a 50-50 shot whether I was going to inherit the genes that uh, would leave me predisposed to colon cancer or not at all. Since that's the case, it is recommended that I get a colonoscopy starting age 45. In fact, nowadays they're actually suggesting like age 42. But at the very minimum, age 45, if you have a family history, and 50, if you don't have a family history, though, again, they're starting to move that back and they're starting to say that, uh, you know what, you should start getting at 45, even with no family history. My brother, who's four years younger than me, already did it a few years ago. I think he was like 40 or something when he did it. My sister just did it a few months ago, and she's like seven and a half years younger than me. So I was the last one to do it of all the kids, even though uh, I'm the oldest one. So I was getting near 49. I'm very close to 49 right now, which is too late to have your first colonoscopy with the family history that I have. The reason I hadn't done it, well, there's a few things. First of all, it seemed like every time I was just about to schedule it, something happened. So in 2018, I thought, kind of around the late summer, okay, I'm going to get this scheduled. And then I had that horrible anxiety and depression, and I knew there was no way I could handle such a thing. I knew that it had to be put on hold until I got better, if I got better. So I got better. 
And then right when I got better, I'm like, well, no, I don't want to jump right into a colonoscopy now. So I waited. Then I kind of just like, I let 2019 just kind of get by. And then I thought, okay, I got to do this. I've really got to do this. I'm almost 48 years old. We're getting into 2020. I'm going to do this in early 2020. So I was just about in early 2020 to call up and schedule a colonoscopy when COVID-19 arrived. And they shut down any kind of voluntary procedure like that. So they, uh, at first I couldn't get it done at all. Then I could get it done, but I was worried I'd go in there and catch COVID. So I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to wait. I'm just going to wait until COVID has passed and, and I'll get this done. And I was a little worried, hey, what if I sit here and wait and in the meantime I get colon cancer? Because I knew it wasn't going to be quick until COVID was gone. I knew it was probably like a year and a half until I'd get the vaccine. Maybe we'll beat that by a little bit, but I think it's going to be a while till I get the vaccine. And I'm talking about like early last year, what I was thinking. But that was my plan to wait till uh, I wasn't really at COVID risk, either it disappearing or going way down or me getting a vaccine. So waiting for that to happen before getting it. But what changed was in October of 2020, I took a blood test for uh, unrelated reasons. And I had anemia for the first time in my life. And I never had anemia before. And I had a blood test in March of 2020 with no anemia. So I go, what the hell? What what changed between March and October to give me anemia for the first time? And it turned out that uh, a cause of sudden anemia like that can be polyps in your colon or colon cancer, which, of course, starts with polyps in your colon. So that kind of scared me. That gave me a bad feeling that, uh-oh, yes, they could be benign polyps, but this makes it a lot more likely I have polyps in my colon and maybe even colon cancer. Now, the colon cancer thing was still, the chance of that was still pretty low at that point, but it got a lot higher than it was before once I had the anemia. At that point, I realized, okay, I've got to schedule a colonoscopy. So I went forth to schedule one. And uh, at first it was scheduled in, in December, and then I ended up moving it to January because I heard the uh, facility that uh, – there were two facilities I could have done it at with that particular doctor, and I heard the other one was better. So I moved it a month later to January 22nd. So that was, it was scheduled, and I committed I'm going to do it no matter what. Now, I had some concerns, and that's part of the reason that I kind of let it go by. I mean, yeah, there were those – factors that stopped me from scheduling it. But the reason I didn't just like do it right when I turned 45 was uh, the main thing I was concerned about is I, I don't like being put out. I do not like the thought of general anesthesia being used on me and where I would uh, be just put out and uh, basically whatever happens is beyond my control. Not that, not that I don't trust the doctor, but... You know, there's always a risk when you're under general anesthesia that they could put you out and you never wake up or they put you out and something bad happens to you either during the procedure itself or just from the general anesthesia itself, which can kill people. Now, I know it's rare, but it, it's just one of these things like it was kind of uh, hard to bring myself to do because I'm someone who likes to always be in control. I'm someone who likes to – and I'm talking about like of myself, not controlling other people, but I like to be in control of myself. That's why I don't drink. That's why I don't do drugs. So I don't 
want that. I, it's, I'm just someone who really does not like the idea of being put under. Even though it's a short procedure, even though they're only using propofol, still, it, it was something that was so off-putting to me, I was kind of putting it off. But once I got that anemia, I said, you know, I, I've got to do this. But I was kind of concerned going in, especially because, and I think I mentioned this two weeks ago, uh, when, ever since I had those uh, psychological issues in 2018, I, I got some permanent damage, which makes it to where, like when I'm on the verge of falling asleep, if I kind of catch myself in between awake and asleep, I kind of go into a panic. Like I'm in this weird state, this weird in-between consciousness state that I can't stand. And my brain kind of panics. It didn't used to be this way, but that it's ever since 2018 when I had my problems. So I was worried the propofol would put me in this state, even briefly. And uh, when I get in that state, I've got to like stand up or it won't go away. So uh, I was concerned about that. And I was also kind of just worried about what I was going to find out when I woke up. Like, am I going to find out I have colon cancer? Of course, that's better to find out earlier than later. But, of course, I was a bit worried about that too, given the anemia. Um, Other people, like family members and friends, were trying to tell me that they thought that uh, this is all going to be fine that I'm going to wake up and find out that it's completely clear. No polyps, everything's good. I wasn't that optimistic because of that anemia. I just I, I just had a feeling between the anemia and between the family history and it seemed like whatever like health issues, not major ones, but whatever like health issues my parents have, I always seem to inherit the wrong side. So uh, I had a feeling I got the wrong side of this. I just had that feeling. Anyway... I uh, I was trying to make the process as pleasant as possible. And I got some tips from my sister. And they were actually all good tips. And I'm, I'm pretty happy with the way I did everything. One, one thing that people complain about with colonoscopies is the prep. And there's two things people hate about the prep. Number one, it tastes terrible. And number two, you're on the toilet constantly with watery diarrhea. So the latter, there's nothing you can do about. That's just part of the prep, you're going to have watery diarrhea and you, you have to keep running to the toilet. It wasn't quite as bad as I expected, by the way, but it, it did happen and I knew it was going to happen. But the first part about the prep tasting terrible, that's because people use something called Suprep. But there is another type of prep you can do, which is known as the Miralax prep, where you buy Miralax and you dump it into Gatorade. Can't be red or orange Gatorade, but anything without red in it, like blue Gatorade, yellow Gatorade, whatever, you, you can dump it into the Gatorade. The Miralax itself has no taste. And then you can drink the Gatorade, and obviously the taste is not bad. Now, you have to drink a lot of it, and that can be bothersome. But it's not like having to get down like really, really, really nasty stuff like the Suprep is. So they tried to prescribe me Suprep, and I said, uh, no, how about the Miralax? And that was actually my sister's suggestion. It's a very good one. So they switched me to the Miralax one. Also, and this is, of course, only recently, in the last year, you have to take a COVID test beforehand. And I hated the idea of taking a COVID test with uh, that one that goes way up your nose. The one you, You've seen that, like that COVID test where they shove it way up. It just looks, all, looks awful. I know it probably looks worse than it is, but people have told me it's painful. They don't like it. You know, like I didn't want that either. So I actually put some work into 
not having to take that particular COVID test and I went to a testing location that was authorized for this uh, colonoscopy that uh, didn't do that test and it was some work to get that, but I did and they did a much easier one for me that did not go way up there. So that was the first thing I did and I switched to the Miralax prep, which was also good. That was, uh, yeah, you had to drink a lot of Gatorade and I had to get a Gatorade flavor I didn't particularly like. It was this uh, like frost blue flavor, which is not nearly as good as the red or orange, which I could drink a lot of very easily. This is kind of not all that good tasting. I can't see why people drink it voluntarily, but uh, it's not bad. It's just not good, in my opinion. But any of the flavors you can use are not all that good. I just I only like the red and orange Gatorade. The other Gatorades I don't care for that much. But you can't use red or orange. So still way better than the other stuff. So I did that prep, and I recommend if you're going to do a colonoscopy, take that prep. Do not do the soup prep. The soup prep everyone hates. It tastes awful. Like, why put yourself through that? The, the Miralax is just as good. There's been studies on it. It's just as good. Some people are like, oh, I want the FDA-approved one, because the Miralax one is not FDA-approved, but they've been using it for decades, and it, it works great. So there's there's no reason not to do that one. It's something that's much easier and much more pleasant. So... uh I did this. I, I won't go into all the toilet details and gross you out, but it, it wasn't as bad as I thought. One thing I will tell you about was that I had to make a decision about what to do about the final four hours before the procedure where you cannot drink anything. You cannot drink water. You can't eat anything, obviously. The, the whole day before, you can't eat anything. Something surprising to me, I think maybe because of my anxiety about the procedure, I was not hungry at all. I didn't eat anything for the final 28 hours prior to the procedure. And I had bought Jell-O so I could eat Jell-O, because you're allowed to eat Jell-O beforehand and, and beef broth and things like that. I bought all that stuff. I ended up not using it because I, I just simply was not hungry for those 28 hours, which was surprising. But I think, again, it's because of the anxiety about the procedure. But anyway, um, you can drink all the way up, in fact, you're supposed to drink all the way up till uh, four hours before the procedure. So what I did is uh, at the four-hour mark, I downed like 24 ounces of water. And then I had to decide, do I go to sleep for a few hours and wake up right before it? Or do I just stay up? And I actually elected to stay up because when I go to sleep, I don't know about you guys, but when I go to sleep and I wake up, I'm very thirsty. For some reason, sleeping makes me very thirsty. So I thought, you know what? I can easily go four hours while awake without drinking water. I prefer not to, but I can easily do it. In fact, I, I think about when, uh, like, we used to take family road trips. I'm talking about when I was a kid. And we'd, ta- we'd have drives that were longer than four hours where we didn't have any water in the car and we wouldn't stop for water and I'd be fine. And uh, sometimes I will be playing poker or something for four or more hours and won't even bother to take a drink. Especially if, like, live poker, I don't have any drink next to me. So... It's something I prefer not to do, but I can easily go four hours without drinking water. So I said, you know, I'm just going to go these four hours without drinking water. So I did. And that was actually, I, I think that was a smarter way to do it because uh, I just drank a ton of water right beforehand. And then uh, the four hours passed. I wasn't even that thirsty. So I got there and I checked in and everything. And uh, they were very nice over there. A very nice new facility. It uh, The staff was really nice. And... Uh, I told them I still had some remnants of an anxiety disorder from two and a half years ago and that uh, they could work with me. Uh, I wasn't difficult at all. I uh, 
the only thing I needed was I, I wanted to discuss with the anesthesiologist. And by the way, you can have an anesthesiologist or you can have like a nurse practitioner. And I wanted an anesthesiologist there, just in case anything went wrong. So uh, they had one anyway. So it wasn't, they didn't have to accommodate me at all. It was, that, that's the way it was going to be done either way. But uh, I, the anesthesiologist was very nice. Uh, everybody involved with this was female. There, there was not a single male involved in this whole thing. Like, like all the nurses were female, the doctor was female, the anesthesiologist was female. Uh, anyway, the anesthesiologist was very nice, and I, I told her, I, I don't want to go through this middle stage. I, I don't want this thing where I'm kind of like half asleep, half awake. I want to go cleanly into sleep. So she said, okay. She said, usually she administers the propofol slowly because people get like a euphoric feeling and enjoy it. I go, no, I don't want that. She says, yeah, I can tell you don't want it, so I will not do that for you. So I said, okay, good. So I was hopeful that I would just do a clean fall into sleep and stay asleep and not wake up till the whole thing's done. Well, that is what happened. It was a little bit different than I expected because I kind of expected that I would just kind of go out like a light at some point and not even realize it. I actually realized it as I was falling asleep, but not in a bad way. Uh, after they had wheeled me into the place where they do the colonoscopy, um, they had me turn over on my side, and then they started the propofol, and they didn't even tell me. They just I heard them say in the background, uh, starting sedation. And I said, wait a minute, did you, you started the propofol? And they said, yes. What was weird is like for several seconds, I felt nothing. That's what was kind of strange. Like I, I thought I'd feel something from it. I felt absolutely nothing. I felt fully awake. And I figured, well, it couldn't be too long. So anyway, I was looking, I remember I was looking up at the ceiling and then I don't know, several seconds later, maybe 10 seconds later, longer than I expected, but, uh, like 10 seconds later or so, I started to see like the ceiling was kind of drifting back and forth. Like I was starting to get very groggy and out of it. And I thought, okay, it's starting to work. I'm just going to close my eyes and go to sleep. And I consciously closed my eyes and went to sleep. And like a second later, after I closed my eyes, I was out. Then it kind of felt like about an hour of sleep. I did not have any dreams. Some people told me they have dreams on it. I I had no dreams. Uh, They warned me as they were administering the propofol that it would burn. Apparently, it's very common to have a burning sensation up your arm. However... My dad didn't have it. My mom didn't have it. My sister didn't have it. My brother didn't have it. None of them had burning. So sure enough, I did not have burning. So there there must be something hereditary about whether you feel the burning or not. And since uh, four immediate relatives before me did not from propofol, and they've had it more times than me, uh, they've never had burning. So I didn't have it. So it must be, fortunately, that's something I get to avoid. So anyway, I felt no burning, felt really nothing in my arm, and uh, fell asleep, felt like an hour of sleep. And uh, they woke me up when I was back in the recovery room. And the first person I saw when they woke me up was the doctor. So she said, okay, the procedure went well. And, uh, you know, the propofol kept me out the way it was supposed to, never woke up or anything like that. It was just uh, a clean sleep all the way through it, which is what I was hoping. So that's very good. I had a good experience with the propofol. I recommend it, even as someone who hates being put out. It's not something I would enjoy. I, I've talked to people who said they, they loved the feeling of being on the propofol. I didn't love it. I just, it, it was, it did what it was supposed to do and it didn't cause me any problems. And that's a success to me. Anyway, that was the good news. Then she dropped the bad news on me. She said that they found four polyps in me 
including one that was big and precancerous. And here I like I was kind of still a little groggy. Like I was I was able to have a coherent conversation, but I was kind of like still kind of out of it. And I was I, I remember the conversation, but I wasn't able to speak. I was kind of speaking slowly at that point. I'm like, wait, it was you found you found a polyp uh, that was precancerous, and she said yes, and uh, it was 15 millimeters, and uh, we're sending that and all the other ones in to be analyzed, and then. Before she walked away, I asked her, since you saw something that was big and precancerous like that, did you, what's the chances I have colon cancer? And she said, very low, the colon looked good. And I guess what she didn't say to me, but then she emailed me later, was that uh, not only did the colon look good, but uh, from her experience of seeing so many polyps, she does tons of these, as you might imagine, uh, that none of these looked to her like they were cancerous. But you don't know for sure until they're analyzed under a microscope, but uh, she didn't think they looked cancerous, and my colon itself did not look like it had any cancer in it. So that was the good news. The bad news was that I had a big polyp all the way in the deepest part of the colon that was uh, 15 millimeters, 1.5 centimeters, bigger than an inch, and uh, that's pretty big if you look it up. And it was precancerous. So I, I got the report. They said seven to ten days, but it was faster than that. It was actually like three or four days. But I, I got the report of the lab, and it turned out that uh, not just that one, it looks like uh, three of the four were precancerous. Yeah. And uh, the big one was the worst one. The big one was called uh, tubulovillus. There's uh, three different stages they can be in if they're precancerous. There's tubular, which is the uh, least likely to go cancerous. There's tubulovillus, which is kind of uh, the middle as far as likelihood. And then there's villus, which is the most likely to go cancerous. The big one was tubulovillus. And uh, so would that have gone cancerous if not removed? Very possibly. What percentage? I I don't know, but probably something like... uh, uh, 25% or something like it, there was a very decent chance probably not a favorite but not a huge long shot either that uh, this would have turned to colon cancer if I never did this and probably not in that long because it was already big the bigger they are the more likely they are to become cancerous so this is a tubulovillus uh, 1.5 uh, centimeter polyp in the deepest part of my colon that had been sitting there I felt kind of stupid for not having gone in Prior to this, fortunately, I got it in time. And now every three years I will be going in, and I assume every three years they're going to be taking polyps out of me. And if not, then probably three years later after that they will. So they they grow slowly, so that's why every three years is fine. That's why I I will not get colon cancer because I'm going to be coming at that interval. It's, It's really not possible for colon cancer to develop in that time frame because now, now I've been reset. Now they've uh, taken them all out, and they have to grow again. And that takes years to do. So uh, that's why every three years you can pretty much guarantee you're not going to have colon cancer. This is something I'm not going to enjoy doing every three years. And to compare it, someone who is clear, who does not have a family history, is told to come back in ten years. But I have to come back in three years, and I'm guessing every three from now on, given what was found and given my family history. 
my dad pretty much has the same thing. So that's going to be part of my life from now on, every three years. And I want to tell you, if you have colon cancer in your family, and you are around my age, you should go in and get it done. It's not a big deal. I can give you tips on how to uh, do this the best. I've already given you some here, but I'm not going to go further with it here. But you can text me, 775-372-835. I will answer any question that you have about uh, colonoscopies. If your parents have had polyps, if you've had any relatives die of colon cancer, uh, especially direct relatives, you should definitely go do it. Even if you're uh, over 50 and don't have any family history, you should do it. Because it's the only preventable cancer, to my knowledge. Provided you get in there before it turns to cancer for the first time, as I did, looks like just kind of under the wire, then you won't get colon cancer. So imagine how stupid you'll feel if you get colon cancer when you know you could have prevented it. So definitely go do it. It's not a pleasant thing, but it's not terrible. It actually wasn't as bad as I expected it would be. Especially since I did everything the right way. So really, I know we have a lot of listeners in that age group. We have a lot of listeners who are around 50. Late 40s, early 50s, mid 50s, whatever. If you have not done it yet, you should. And I regret not having done it earlier, though fortunately nothing happened to me. But it was close. It was close to happening to me. It wasn't like I did it at 49 and it was clear. Here I did it and this big precancerous polyp was found all the way at the end of my colon and three other polyps, two of which were also precancerous. That was not what I expected. I thought I was going to see like a few benign polyps. I, I did not expect it would have gotten this far already. So that means he's been growing a while. Like that big one's probably been there since before I was 45. So it is good I had them extracted before they did damage to me. But it looks like it was close. And I'm now happy that I went and uh, did this even during times of COVID. Also, it's been a week and I don't, I did not catch COVID. So that's, I, I'm, I'm past that uh, portion as well. Or basically, if you've been exposed potentially to COVID, as I was there with a lot of people in there and all that, like, well, I was there. I'm kind of thinking, you know, this is kind of, uh, doesn't look all that COVID safe in here. But if you go a week and you're not getting symptoms, then you're pretty safe. So it's been exactly a week now, actually about a week and half a day. So I'm good with that too. But definitely go get one. May save your life. It probably saved mine. I shouldn't say probably, but there's a decent chance it saved mine. Like, I'm telling you, there's like, like probably like a 25% or chance or higher chance that if I just didn't do this at all, that you'd be hearing in the next few years that I have colon cancer in my 50s. So that would be pretty awful. And now I will never have that diagnosis. I'm going to be very diligent about going every three years as I've been instructed to do. Okay, enough colonoscopy talk. Let's move on to something completely different. I have a phone call that I want to make for all of you. He's a law student from Southern California who wants to get into politics. He says he wouldn't mind being president, but he really wants to be a senator. Sure, there's more job security. And speaking of 
security, can we beef it up? Because frankly, he's scaring me. Say hello to loser Ken Scaler. Master Ken Scaler, hello. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yep, it is radio time. I was worried about a certain issue I don't want to talk about on the air. You should have called me before. Afraid of, did it happen or did it not happen? You mean uh, did Coachella get canceled? Yeah. You can talk about that on the air. It's a very public story. It, it is canceled, yes. Oh, one of the – so is it going to October? They, they don't know, but it's definitely not happening in April. It has been shut down for April. For April. It's not happening. Oh, then I can change my okay. It's okay. already been done. You're, you're, uh, you're. I have already canceled your reservations. But you didn't touch the, the later year ones, did you? We don't have them. No, I did. I, I, I can't talk about this on the air. Okay. Come Master Scaler is I upset because. October. Well, if if we have it, we. I don't remember we got it. I think the last one we got was April. Master, what's going on, people? Is Ma- I won't talk about where, but Master Scaler wants to get a hotel to uh, stay at Coachella. And he likes jumping on it quickly whenever they change the dates. And uh, obviously, we had to cancel the ones for April because that's not taking place in April. That's a, that's actually news from today. I thought I, I thought I scheduled October. I thought I remember making reservations in October. I think you're thinking about October 2020. <laughs> no, I made October 2021. I don't remember I did that. It a but year ago. I don't remember that. But okay, I don't I think remember you're. It. I don't think you're right. Anyway, uh, can officially announce it? Is, is it a rumor or is it like Golden Boy? It's it's, it? I, it's been confirmed. It's ha- it's been canceled. It's gone. Anyway, Master okay. Ken Scaler, did did you uh, you were asking me about uh, sending me something and then you Who's just disappeared? Who's the co-host right now? What? Who's the co-host right now? We we have Trey Ruski. You can say hello to him. Hey, what's happening, Ken? So, so Master uh, Scaler... I guess Coachella's not happening. Go on. Uh, you said you were sending me something. This is, almost as crazy, this is almost as crazy as Marjorie Taylor Greene's brain. Yeah, okay. Master Scaler, I, I want to ask you something here. In fact, I, I don't care if this is out on the air, because this is my business. Well, no, I want my privacy private. No, listen, this is about me. You, you owe me money, and you said you were going to send it to me by money order. I said, I don't want a money I order. I call you to talk. I, but I, I don't want it a money order. appeal... I, I don't want it. I, no, I don't want it. I don't want you to mail it to me. I want you to drop it in the account like you normally do. Okay, well, I applied for a, 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 a ID on Thursday, so I should get it in two weeks, they said. Oh, because of the ID thing. That's why. <sighs> that's why I said, what's your P.O. box? You didn't okay, I'll, I'll, I'll find. I'll, I'll, I'll text to the P.O. box. I forgot about the ID thing. Yeah. Master Scaler lost his oh, ID. Well, you know how many times I've lost my ID? Because they charge I've lost my ID once oh, in my life. I've lost my ID once in my life. It was actually last year on a hike, and I got it back because someone found it and was nice enough to find me. But uh, you lose your ID, it seems like, every year. How does that happen? No, I think it's only the second time in my life. Maybe no, I, this is constantly going on. It seems like it's constantly going on where your ID disappears. I don't know. I, I have an interesting life. Y- you do, yeah. So, uh Okay. We have a new president. Yeah, I know. We, we we do. In fact, I had a colonoscopy to celebrate. Well, let me ask you a question. All related to the topics normally on this show. Under this new administration, will the attitude toward online poker be hostile 
liberalization, legalization, regulation, or neutral status quo? From what you know. Um, it's going to be about the same. So it's going to be nothing will get more lenient. Nothing will get more strict. It'll just be exactly not really. There was there was a recent ruling by the courts that's going to uh, affect it, but that doesn't have to do with Biden. Wait, what court? Wait, what's happening at the courts? It, it doesn't matter. I'll talk about it later in the show. It's it doesn't interest you. Oh no! They might bring back party, kick party poker and poker stars and and cake poker and and you know I guess the merge network's still around and you know but or no, it's not. Wait, I don't even know. Anyway, um. Okay, so so yeah. Master Scaler, so yeah, I'll send you the the PO box here now. Uh, how is life without having to worry about Wait, uh, the sorry, Jeff, Let me just can I ask one question about the concert? You know, Live Nation. Have you seen that thing they're doing where they're like, you know, it's basically related to COVID, so they're testing people and it's tied to concert tickets. Have you read anything yeah, about they're, they're, that? Yeah, they're gonna do it, but yeah. Live Nation doesn't own Coachella. Coachella's Golden Voice AEG, which is their rival, but they're gonna—I guess they're gonna do a thing when things go sort of back to normal, where they could check to see that you had a vaccine before you can attend a live music event or a concert or a music festival. Right. I mean, I Maybe think movie live, theaters live can do that too, and, and sports, sporting events, and live events. You know. Yeah. Well. Right. They own this. They own this third-party company. I think that Live Nation is gonna do it probably for all. I think that's what I heard. Well, yeah, Golden Voice AEG is as big as Live Nation. So whatever Live Nation does, the competitors will do. So they want to make sure that nobody has the virus, you know. Well, it's going to be tough to do, but uh, maybe unless the vaccine goes, uh, you know, goes well and then this goes away. But other than that, it's the testing's not going to help much because the testing has like a thirty percent uh, false negative rate. So with a massive well, number no, of people, no, 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 they're not going to. No, they're not. They don't want to see if you were tested. They want to see that, that you had the vaccine. Yeah, well, but still, with a mass number well, of people, maybe, it's going to it's going to fail for that percentage. You know, like there's still going to be a number of people getting sick there. Not with the vaccine. Yeah, the vaccine, the vaccine even. Vaccine, yeah, no, at best, it's like ninety five percent effective. So that's that's good. Is it effective on these new mutants and variants? There's variants and mutants. I uh, suppose the, supposedly, the but that's a, that's a moderate concern too. Okay. There's this Johnson & Johnson one that you only need one shot instead of, like, at the others, that, you know, Moderna and, and Pfizer and, and Aztec Zeneca, where you need two. Is Aztec Zeneca not going to be approved? What's it called? Not Aztec Zeneca. A- a- AstraZeneca. The best, the best two. We'll, we'll talk about the coronavirus later in the show. Aztec, like, the Mexican, like, <laughs> never mind, go on. The... the- Pfizer and Moderna are the best two. They have the best efficacy rates. They are the mRNA type, and that's the one you want, even if it takes two shots. Now, getting the two shots is not that. What about Johnson and Johnson? That's only one shot. I know, but it's it's not about the number of shots. It's about the effectiveness. That's the important thing. Okay, so 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 break news right here. What's better between Moderna and Pfizer? If you, if, which, which one are you going to pick? For you I, I well, I, you you yeah. sometimes don't know by the time when you go to. Get the vaccine. You don't know which one you're getting of those two. They'll tell you when you get it, but you you can't always plan which one you're going to get. So, and once you get you one, can't you can't say I want the Pfizer one or I want the Moderna one. No, you but you, sometimes you can figure it out if other people have gone there to, to that location and they got that type. But anyway, um, the uh, at well, least I think you can't. Brothers, which one would you pick? 
Paul? If, if I got to pick, I would pick the Moderna because there's less of an opportunity to mess it up because uh, the Pfizer has to be stored. Really? Because the, it's not because of the frozen storage? Yes, because the, the, the Pfizer has to be stored at like minus 90 degrees. So they, there's a lot of ways to screw that up. Oh, so I do, I do Moderna then also. Yeah. By the way, Larry King just died, and, I, and, and Todd is a Larry King story involving me. Oh, yeah. yeah let's play this. Let's, let, I'll, I'll play it right now. I don't know if you'll be able to hear it, but the audience will be able, able to. Uh, Ken Scaler appeared on Larry King in uh, 1990, uh, talking to Ronald January Reagan. January 1990, yeah. a, year, a year before I met this guy. Yeah, so listen to this. Hopefully you guys will be able to hear this, but uh, definitely the audience will be able to. Here's Ken Scaler on Larry King in January 1990. Tarzana, California for Ronald Reagan. Hello. Hello, Mr. President. As a political science student, it is indeed an honor to talk to you. My question is, do you believe that the campaign Bush conducted in 1988 involving Willie Horton in Boston Harbor, did you feel it was a little too negative, too personal? And how do you feel about negative ads in general? Well... I think that he was goaded into this, and I think it was a case of trying to remind the people that uh, Massachusetts, first of all, uh, their own people were calling it Taxachusetts, and many people were moving across a state line to live in another state because of their uh, their tax. You don't think it was uh, was it all dirty on the land? Well. I think you have to realize what the other man is saying, in the, including your response. It isn't just an open attack on someone who has not uh, opened the subject himself. But I think, uh, yes, to, uh, to hold with a program in which a, a man is freed and then goes out and commits dastardly deeds and uh, against his fellow human beings. It's fair game. Yes. I guess the former... Yes, that was Ronald Reagan in his declining years. This was in 1990. So this was uh, January 1990. It, it was a year after he left office. And you could tell that... Uh, one of his last interviews. Yeah, it was one of his last interviews. He was on again a year later. But Ken asked him about the Willie Horton campaign ads during the uh, the Bush Dukakis uh, presidential race and uh, specifically about the ones which... Uh, gave Dukakis a hard time for a program that released uh, Willie Horton uh, on these weekend furloughs, and he went out and committed a lot of crimes, including murder. So uh, Ronald Reagan, when asked about this, about negative campaigning, because it was about Massachusetts and he was in mental decline, what happened was uh, he forgot the question. All he remembered was Massachusetts, and he went into like a talking point about Massachusetts that he must have used over the years on the campaign trail. Of well, uh, Massachusetts was was known as a, a Taxachusetts, and and people were moving across the state lines. Like had nothing to do with Ken's question, but he just went like all he could remember of that call was the word Massachusetts, and then Larry King had to get him back on track. Uh, that's because Reagan had Alzheimer's, and uh, that wasn't known yet at that point. But uh, people had noticed in the second half of Reagan's second term that he was starting to behave strangely and, and forget things and fall asleep abruptly and something was wrong with him. And and we see what it was, which it wasn't his fault. I mean, he was old and he was unfortunate enough to get Alzheimer's and that uh, affected him in the second half of his term. In fact, we may see the same and thing. Three of the people, uh, three of the people on that show, two of them are dead. Larry that, King is dead and Ronald Wilson Reagan 666 is dead. 
but I am alive. Uh, you better hope you stay alive. Well, that's because you were you were the youngster there. You were only uh, you were only you were not even twenty yet when you made that call. Yeah, I think I was nineteen. I was going to college, which is a community college in Woodland Hills. I was a political science major, planning to transfer to a UC school, and uh, which stands for University of California for all you out of state and out of country people. And uh, a year later, I met the guy who hosts this show. Exactly, almost a year, maybe to the day from what I called Larry King Live. And Larry, now, King that's West true. That's King. true. Master Scaler, uh, we actually just recently passed the thirty-year anniversary of us meeting. We met on uh, January 25th, 1991. So it was four days ago. Uh, it was the 30-year anniversary of us meeting. We didn't intend to meet. We just happened to meet that day. We, we got a ride, ride off the board. ride board. Yeah, off the ride board to go back to the L.A. area from Santa Barbara. And uh, the first words Ken ever said to me was, uh, let's stand back to back. That was the first words he ever said to me 30 years ago. He wanted to see who was taller. And I said, Ken, why does it matter who's – I didn't know his name. I said, why does it matter who's taller? You didn't say Ken. No, I didn't say Ken. I said, I said, why does it matter who's taller? And you said, so we can figure out who rides in the front. <laughs> Ken thought that whoever was like a tiny bit taller because we looked very close to the same height. And uh, he thought that whoever's like a tiny bit taller gets to ride in the front, which wouldn't make any sense because that's not a significant difference. So what we did is we agreed that one would ride in the front on the way there and one would ride in the front on the way back. I got it on the well, way there. Taller? They couldn't figure it out. We stood back to back and uh, the three other people who were – going to be in that car all looked and they're like well, i can't figure it out they look the same and kim was very fascinated by that and he's always been obsessed with me not being taller than him ever since then he, it's very important to ken that i'm not taller than he is yeah i'm like adolf heitler <laughs> adolf heitler oh boy okay well uh height height not hit height height like yes. height you know yeah well you, you wouldn't vertical, you wouldn't want to, vertical obsession you, the, uh, you wouldn't want to be adolf hitler ken is also a jew in case you guys are wondering in case you think that was an no, anti-semitic I, I, I joke said, it's I, not. I didn't say adolf hitler i said adolf no, I know. heitler like well, your height in fact every you? everybody on this conversation here is jewish trader ruski is jewish as well and you're doing a show on the sabbath that's kind of sac- sacrilegious well i'm not you know i'm not ben shapiro i i not quite He's as secular. He's secular. I know. I know. <laughs> okay, but, so but that is weird. Anyway, um, yeah, Friday. We actually got Larry away from King Friday. Died. Yeah, that's, and I thought that was the first thing I thought of when I heard Larry King died. Is I called his show, and and by the way, that that called it. He just played it on YouTube. So if you watch it on YouTube, it'll add views to it, and maybe Todd will be able to monetize it or something. I don't think that'll happen, but uh, it, you can go to uh, YouTube and type in Ken Scaler Larry King, and you will find it. Or Ken Scaler, Ronald Reagan, either way. Yeah, you'll find it. And I put out effort to get this thing. It, it was lost for many years, and it was actually at the Reagan Library, but they weren't sure it was there. I went there and described it to them, and they had to dig through their archives, and they found it. They find they they thought it's on this show. It's archives. Uh, so uh, why they, is it, no? It's archives. What on the, on this show, about? on this show, it is archives. So anyway, they who says archive? Like, is it like some like like Filipino in like Minnesota? No, I mean, who says no. that? Well, I, I'm saying it. So they okay. they dug through the archives. So and do they, you say do you say that that is Little Rock in Arkansas? Let me continue the story here. So they they dug okay, through sorry. the archives and they weren't sure if that was it, and they uh, they they actually got it wrong a few times, and then they brought out another one to me and. Uh, 
I thought I'd say, you know what, I think this might be it. And I fast forwarded through it and there it was, Tarzana, California. And I said, okay, well, uh, how do I get a copy of this? And they said, it'll be uh, $65, please. So I was like, oh boy, $65. I don't know if I want to pay $65. Like I was, I was going to if there's the only way to do it, but I thought maybe there is a way around that. So what I did is I asked them, uh, is there something, some other way? Like, could I maybe just pull out my cell phone and record this 90 second segment, which is all I really care about? I don't get the music. Oh, I get it. Never mind. So I asked, can I record the 90-second segment on my cell phone and not buy it for $65? And like, okay. So I recorded it with my cell phone. Because we don't need the best picture quality. If It's just the, 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 the audio is more important. Quality on YouTube. And you, you don't need the best picture quality for this type of thing. So it was great. So it's it's up there. And uh, now it is immortalized on I, I YouTube. Just, I just want to say that the original copy of that of that show was destroyed by someone who's very hardline. It has a big pH factor. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a certain guy I know and Ken knows was was angry at Ken one day and destroyed his uh, his tape uh, out it's of a anger. VHS copy of the Larry King. Well, it probably would have degraded by now anyway, so it's it probably wouldn't have been usable at this point. So anyway, I never would have go- I never would have gotten rid of it. I would have saved. No, it but it probably would have degraded. A lot of these old videotapes have degraded by now. So it's it's just as well, well that I, I wouldn't like do any. I would have put it in water. It wouldn't matter. It, they they they're or... not meant to last forever. So it's good that I went to the they're Reagan not? Library and and acquired this. It, it was good that I was uh, passing by there and thought of this and went in to do it. Took a little time, but it was it, worth it. it. Is that is that is that cell phone where you film the Ronald Reagan call the same cell phone you still use? No, no, it's a different phone. Oh, okay. But anyway, uh, I, I have it saved. I have it saved on my, my computer. My phone, it's, it's, so wait, it's I, I have the file saved on my computer, so it's not going anywhere, and it's on YouTube. So anyway, uh, Ken. Oh, by the way, if if, if 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 your cell phone has mitosis, mitosis, you'll have two cell phones. Great. Okay. <laughs> You know, because a cell does mitosis, a cell yes. phone, mitosis, two cell, excuse me. This, 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 this is like the, the Master Scaler stand-up act here. Okay, so, um, Master Scaler, thank you for coming I on here. I science jokes. I know there's a lot of Asian listeners. I will send you the address, and uh, I have a feeling you you do not have a reservation, by the way, for October. So, I think you're wrong. I thought I did. I don't think you do. So. Why, did you cancel it? No, I don't think it was ever made, so we'll have to handle that later. Anyway, why, why would I? Why would I not make it? I have no idea. I don't. Th- I don't believe it was made. I believe we only had April. But we'll look. We'll look into this made. later. Really we will look into this making, later. I don't I know. I, I think. I think it's only April. But we'll look into it later. Anyway, Master Scaler, uh, we will. We will talk to you later. Uh, make call me this weekend. By the way, is your co-host also? Is your co-host besides being Jewish? Is he also on the tall side? No, he's he's about average, right? Tr- Trey no. Five ten. Yeah. So what, so what is the average, like 5'9", 5'10", 5'8", 5'11"? 5'10", 5'11"-ish. Okay. By the way, 5'11 is a very common height that guys use that may or may not be true. I just want to say that. <laughs> okay. Well, th- thank, you, thank you, Master Thank you, Master Scaler. Yeah. Now, Master Scaler, we're, we're, we're unusual Jews here. There are not many Jews as tall as we are. There's some, but not many. Well, that lawyer friend of yours from, from Oak Park is very tall. Yeah. 
Not 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 Eric Bensamokin. And by and by the way, that, by the way, that, by the way, the new senator from Georgia who's Jewish, who's tall, that John Ossoff, only his father is Jewish, not his mother. No, I didn't know that. I, I, thought, know I, that thought, I, I thought he was a full Jew. Interesting. He, uh, no, it, it, it's well, the thought. Well, in Reform Judaism, it could be the mom or the dad. It, his dad is Jewish and his mom is not, but they're both rich. Uh, yeah, I knew. I knew he was rich. That I knew. Okay, well, he's from a very, very, very wealthy family. Yes. Okay, well, thank you, Master Scaler. We will uh, call me this weekend, well, though, and I will text you the information. Okay, I, I will. I will. I okay. want to fix everything. Okay, it's Master Scaler. Okay, let's get on to what happened this week. Very interesting week. Twenty twenty one has been a pretty eventful year already, and we're not even a month in. Look at all that has happened in twenty twenty one. We had the uh, January sixth Capitol riots. And we had the uh, transition from uh, the Trump administration to the Biden administration. And now we had the crazy week of Internet financial influence. You know, you think something is stable and secure until you find out it's not. And who would have thought that hedge funds that are worth billions of dollars can be decimated by trolls on the internet. But they were. And I'm not talking about hackers or anything illegal. I'm talking about trolls on the internet who did something that is legal and yet exposed a big hole in uh, these hedge funds and in fact uh, exposed a big hole in the market in general. And now people are wondering, well, where do we go from here if people on the internet can wield such power? So before I go into the whole thing, uh, I want to explain for those of you that don't understand what uh, shorting a stock means, because I know some people still don't understand that. When you short a stock, you're basically uh, betting that a stock is going to go down in the future. It's uh, when you think a stock is overvalued and that the market is going to take care of that and it's going to lose in value. It's basically uh, the reverse of normal buying a stock where you buy a stock at the current price and hope it goes up to a higher price and then you sell it eventually at the higher price and make a profit. That's that's normal stock buying. Where you're shorting, you're doing the reverse. You're actually buying – you're sort of buying it in a way and I'll explain in a second the mechanism of doing so uh, – with the hope it goes down, where you make money if it goes down and you lose money if it goes up. So the way you do this is you're basically, whatever shares you buy from the, you want of the stock from the stockbroker, you're basically borrowing the shares from the stockbroker. And then you're selling those shares you have borrowed for the current market value. So right away, you're getting the value of the stock at whatever you buy, however many shares you, you're getting, you're, you're, you're getting it lent to you. And uh, and then you're selling it for uh, for that amount, and then you have that money to play with at that point. However, you promise later on to return that stock to the stockbroker, and the way you return that stock is by buying it whatever price it's at at the point you return it. So, of course, there you're rooting for it to go down because you've basically borrowed it from the stockbroker and sold it. 
for its current value. And when you return it to them, you're going to have to buy it again at whatever the price is then. So you want the price to be lower, so when you buy it to return it to them, that you're buying it at a lower price. And if that happens, if you're buying it at a lower price, then you've made money. Now, you have to pay a commission in this whole thing. But uh, aside from that, you are making money if it goes down in price. But if it goes up in price, then you lose money. Now, the one problem, the one potential problem with shorting is that there is really unlimited downside to it because you never know how much it's going to go up. So if uh, if it goes down, uh, it's pretty much finite, the the very maximum you could make. So let's let's take the best case scenario. Let's and let's ignore any kind of fees or commissions. Let's just talk about what you would make. Let's say you buy a hundred shares or you short sell. I'm saying you short sell a hundred shares of a stock worth uh, fifty dollars. Well, right away you get $5,000 from that. Now, let's say that the stock crashes really, really, really badly. By the time you are giving it back to the stockbroker, that the stock is only worth one penny. So all you have to do is buy 100 shares at one penny and hand it back to them. Well, you got $5,000 from the initial short sale, and then you had to spend $1 to get 100 shares back to give to the stockbroker. So there you have made $4,999, again, ignoring any kinds of fees or commissions. So that's, that's pretty much the best you can do. You're never going to do better than the amount you originally sell it for. So your upside is limited. You, you know your very best upside is the amount you're short-selling it for. But the downside can be unlimited because if it keeps going up, you have to buy that many shares of that stock to return to the stockbroker and uh, whatever it is, it is. And you can lose a fortune that way. And that's the problem with short selling, is that there's a, a, a finite upside and an unlimited downside. Now, a lot of these uh, hedge funds have gotten pretty good at predicting which stocks are going to go into the toilet. So even though they have this risk, they uh, usually don't take that much of a bath and and they diversify too. They don't just do it in uh, with one stock. But uh, in general, they 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 tend to figure out which ones are very unlikely to uh, really rocket up, and ones that are likely to go down. So they when, when they pick what to what to short, not only do they have to uh, analyze what is likely to go down over time, but also uh, what the risk is that it's going to rocket way up and really screw them. Well, there are certain stocks of kind of has-been companies that just seemed really unlikely to rock it up. GameStop, I'm sure you've heard of GameStop by now and what happened this week, but GameStop was one of them. GameStop was kind of on its way out. It, it wasn't an old stock. It was uh, a corporation that uh, that's newer. That's super new, but it's, it's not something, something that's been around for 100 years. It was... Uh, Founded, uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, technically, it goes way back to the '80s, but uh, it uh, it became GameStop in I think '04 or something. But anyway, uh, GameStop was uh, kind of falling out of favor. It just uh, it wasn't something that seemed to have a bright future to it. 
and uh, it was believed by uh, certain hedge fund managers that this is a pretty safe one to short. Uh, it is described as a uh, video game, consumer electronics, and gaming merchandise retailer. But it has a lot of retail stores, and uh, a lot of this is starting to uh, really go obsolete because of video game sales that have moved to online sales. You know, how many gamers actually physically go into a store? Even forget COVID, you know, before COVID. Like I'm talking about before COVID, not I'm, uh, like even 2019. How many gamers were actually physically walking into a store? Most people were getting all their gaming stuff online. You, you download your games online. Often you can actually play online. Uh, you, you can a lot of times order equipment online. They're just just going to retail stores for gaming stuff. It just wasn't uh, something people were doing as much anymore, starting from, I'd say, like mid-2010s. So as a result, GameStop, which was successful at one point, they were doing well from the mid-2000s through the mid-2010s, uh, they started to uh, decline. And uh, they started to accumulate losses. For example, they lost uh, 16% in their stock in uh, 2016 when uh, Microsoft announced their Xbox Game Pass service in early 2017. Another 8% fell off of the uh, GameStop, GameStop stock. And it, it's just going downhill ever since then. So this was a company that just was thought to be on its way out. It was something that was a good idea for a while, and it just wasn't really compatible with what became the present scene in gaming and likely the future scene in gaming. So this was something you just weren't going to picture was going to rocket up in value. It looked like one of these businesses that just was not going to survive. Even if they tried to make some changes and, and to uh, get more with the times, you know how that goes. Uh, once something kind of has the image of uh, an, a company that's kind of obsolete with a, a business model that just seems antiquated, even when they try to convert to uh, anything more modern, people just don't really go for it. They kind of still have in their mind this is antiquated. So I don't blame those who are shorting GameStop or shorting any other stock like that. Another one that you've probably heard discussed this week was AMC, AMC Movie Theaters. Uh, again, AMC is struggling because of uh, the coronavirus, but it's not just that. Movie theaters were already starting to fall out of favor. They were expensive. Um, they required you know, physically leaving your house and going out. They required uh, fighting crowds, especially on uh, like Friday or Saturday night. Um, you had to deal with assholes in the theater with you. I, I, I like the experience of being in a movie theater. It's a lot different than watching a movie at home, but there are certain conveniences of watching a movie at home, and I will tell you that uh, uh, I've hardly been to any movies in the theater in the last 10 years. Part of it is because of having a kid, and that's that, that, of course, is a lot of people's story. A lot of people don't want to get a babysitter. Like, There's something to be said about just being able to watch movies at home. And the rise of Netflix has really harmed AMC. So, so a, lot of, uh, a lot of reasons why AMC also seemed like it was on its way out. But this is another stock that was shorted that was uh, 
ripe to uh, be exploited in the way I'm about to tell you about that you've probably already heard about anyway. So anyway, some trolls on Reddit, on a subreddit called uh, Wall Street Bets, decided that they're going to mess with these hedge funds. Because you can see, you can see which uh, stocks are uh, heavily shorted. And someone over on this Wall Street Bets forum got the idea of, hey, what if we just all agreed to just buy up these stocks of these uh, companies that everyone's leaving for dead? We just buy them up. It'll rocket the price up because of the uh, the, the demand. When it, that always happens in the stock market. If there's any kind of demand for a stock, the price uh, naturally will rise. So what what if we just all agree? Because it's a very, very well-read board. There's tons of people reading Wall Street bets on Reddit, even before all this. So there's, how about we just all do it? How about we just run it up? We run up GameStop. We run up AMC. We run up uh, several other stocks. And we screw the hedge fund guys. Because it'll run up to these absurd values. And these hedge fund guys are going to lose billions of dollars. So that's what they did. And it worked. So AMC ran way up in price. GameStop ran up even more in price. And then word started to spread outside of Reddit. And then others started to get in on it. You started hearing, hey, GameStop is shooting up. That was happening... uh, this week, people are hearing that GameStop is shooting up, and people go, "Why the hell GameStop, AMC? Who'd expect these two stocks to be blowing up?" But people are okay. Well, I, I might as well buy in now and, and get in on this. If it's shooting way up, I want to get in while it's shooting way up. So all these people bought in, and it kept going up, 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 and uh, these hedge funds were getting clobbered and taking billions of dollars in losses. And there was some talk that some of these would just completely collapse. Now, this got a lot of uh, cheer from people who resented these hedge funds. And some of this was because of class warfare. Some people who just uh, have pure jealousy. Okay, well, these people are making a ton of money. They're not doing a lot of work for it. And, uh, yeah, they're making way more money than any of us are. And they don't deserve it. And screw these guys. Or some people thought that these, these hedge fund guys have an advantage, an unfair advantage that the rest of us don't have. So there's a lot of just pure jealousy of uh, people making money through hedge funds, but uh, there, there are some valid criticisms, for example, that uh, a lot of times these hedge funds will get bailed out if they take a, ma- a major loss. So they're really not risking very much. They, they get all the upside, but the downside, they get bailed out, which is a good criticism. That shouldn't happen. Then there's also the belief that uh, these people have a lot of influence on uh, on government and can uh, get things done that are favorable to them. And that also makes the playing field unfair. So there are some legitimate criticisms of the hedge fund guys. And uh, some of this was uh, resentment at that and some of that was resentment just of people who were doing well, people who are rich, people who are successful. So it's kind of a combination of both. But what was interesting is with everything so political these days, with everything that's always like left versus right, this was one thing that across the political lines most people approved of, most people enjoyed seeing. 
most people were happy to see these hedge funds get clobbered and happy to see that uh, these Reddit trolls pulled this off. This also exposed a tremendous hole. See, there are protections in the market to uh, prevent any kind of uh, collusion that would uh, artificially run up the stock price. But these protections are really aimed at uh, preventing uh, individuals in cahoots with each other, where uh, you know a few people are, are agreeing to do this, to, to manipulate, manipulate the market. There is no such protection for a mass group of people that aren't directly associated, that just say, hey, let's just all buy this stock. Not through any kind of deception, not through any kind of false information, not saying, hey, GameStop is going to be worth a ton because it's actually a good company and it's going to be very profitable when it's really not. That would be illegal. But just saying, hey, GameStop's a piece of crap company. It's on its way down, but let's troll the hedge fund, the hedge fund guys and let's just all buy it up anyway. And if a mass number of people just take that advice and say, yeah, I'd like to do that also, there's actually nothing illegal about that. It may sound illegal. It's actually not illegal. So that was done. And that happened. And now currently, there is a game of chicken going on. You may have heard about hold the line. People have been saying this week. What does hold the line mean? Well, what has happened is these hedge funds have had more money infused into them. And uh, the belief is that if they basically reshort it, if they short it again with the belief that it is going to go down soon, that... GameStop is way overvalued at the moment, and it's not going to sit up there forever, especially because, yes, this was done by a bunch of people on the internet together, but these people are not connected to each other, and that these people will be overcome by selfish motivations to sell and take the profit, and not to want to be the last ones holding the bag, because eventually GameStop is going to crash back down. Eventually, AMC is going to crash back down. All these stocks that were run up like this are going to go back down to what they really should be worth. And what's going to happen is those who do not sell before this happens are going to be left holding the bag. They're going to lose the money. So the belief is, by the hedge fund guys, is that uh, this is going to go down and that pretty much everyone's going to panic and bail out very shortly. And therefore, this is a good stock to short sell at this point. Ironically, even after they lost their ass on it the first time that now that it's been run up this high, that you look in the near future, it's definitely going to go back down, they believe. So the counter effort to this of, quote, hold the line is, hey, let's not play their game. Let's let's not sell. Let's just all hold it. And then they're going to really lose their ass even more. So right now it's a game of chicken. Who's going to give up first? I have a feeling the hedge fund guys are going to win here. And as for a few reasons. First of all, for what I already said, is that uh, because there is no hive mind here. There is no uh, direct cooperation. This is just kind of an idea floated out on Reddit and people started doing it. But no one's going to throw away their net worth over this. No one's going to lose a fortune just to hold the line, or at least not many people will. So most people are going to sell before they lose their own ass on this. But the second reason is that they actually have some weapons at their disposal, these hedge fund guys, and some of this has already been used. So trading has already been suspended 
on apps like Robinhood and others that were used to buy up GameStop. So uh, a lot of these services that are used for people to be able to easily trade, to easily get into the market, these have found reasons to uh, suspend trading, flimsy reasons that they claim they're doing this for the customer's own good. In reality, it looks like that they are under pressure from the powers that be to do this, which there's some belief is illegal, that this is, uh, that that is market manipulation, that they cannot, that this is an unfair advantage, that the public can be stopped from trading something they want to trade, just because the hedge fund guys aren't happy with what's going down. And that is being looked into. That is one advantage they have. It, it, it's really slowed down the whole thing in that uh, people couldn't continue trading GameStop, AMC, and the others when they wanted to. And there's a lot of anger about that, that this was manipulation uh, by these companies like Robinhood and perhaps by uh, government uh, forces above them that were pressuring them to do it. Whether anything will come of this, I don't know, but uh, this has renewed a lot of anger at the hedge fund guys because of this. And there's going to be a lot of fallout from this. There's also a belief that this has uh, really hurt Robinhood itself and that Robinhood could be going out the door fairly soon. This is something that uh, could have gone on for a lot longer. And may I, I heard, in fact, when trading opened up again today, that GameStop started to run up again. I didn't really follow it very closely today. It looks like the people who did this are not giving up yet. So this isn't quite over. Elizabeth Warren... I'm not a fan of. She sent a letter to the United States Senate. Now, Elizabeth Warren likes to interject herself into matters like these. And it's easy to give her credit and say, oh, Elizabeth's on the people's side. Elizabeth Warren just loves attention. I mean, this goes back to the 70s when she falsely listed herself as Native American because she wanted attention at Harvard for being the first Native American professor there when, of course, she wasn't and she knew she wasn't. So Elizabeth Warren is a phony. She is somebody who just uh, always says and does what she can so everyone will look at her and admire her, even if it's dishonest. If you remember, she interjected herself into the Wells Fargo thing. What she likes to do is she likes to interject herself into financial matters where almost everybody's going to agree with her. So when Wells Fargo engaged in the fraud that they did with opening all these accounts without people's permission, and then she pressured Wells Fargo about this matter? Like, who's going to root against her there? You watch her questioning Wells Fargo executives in uh, a congressional hearing, and yeah, you're rooting for her because she's coming at them real hard, and they did something really bad. So same with this. Most people agree that uh, these services should not be shutting down the people's ability to trade just because the hedge fund guys want them to. So Elizabeth Warren, of course, jumps on this and she takes the side of the people. So while I don't think her motivations are very good, I think this is, again, more uh, grandstanding on her part. I do agree with what she's doing, just not really her motivations for doing it. But anyway, with that said, this is what she wrote. This is to uh, Allison Heren Lee, the acting chair of the SEC. Dear Acting Chair Lee, 
I am writing regarding the recent surge in share prices for the video game retailer GameStop, whose stocks are up 1,700% this month, including Wednesday's climb of 135%, driven by one, one expert called a flash mob with money. These wild swings in the value of GameStop and other companies that are subject to similar bets by traders are, quote, detached from the factors that are traditionally helping establish a company's value to investors. I'm deeply concerned that these casino-like swings in the value of GameStop and other company shares are yet another example of the gamesmanship that interferes with the fair, orderly, and efficient function of the market, raising obvious questions about public confidence in the market and those trading in it. I'm writing to seek information on how the SEC intends to address these concerns and prevent these and future incidents of potential market manipulation. Hedge funds such as Melvin Capital Management have bet that GameStop shares would fall in the hopes of reaping substantial profits. In recent weeks, however, share prices for GameStop began to rise, with a dramatic surge in recent days, fueled not by any changes in the company's economic fundamentals, but by anonymous traders on the Reddit forum R Wall Street Bets. News reports state that these traders moved quickly to buy option contracts in an apparent attempt to target large investors. This epic contest between Wall Street traders who bet against stocks and legions of small-stake investors has fueled a level of speculation not seen since the tail end of the dot-com boom two decades ago. These shifts also raise questions about broader instabilities in the market and financial systems, such as no one knows how this ends, and the intense activity could eventually prompt a wider sell-off in the market by forcing hedge funds on the losing side of these trades to sell parts of their portfolios to raise cash to cover their losses. By the way, the, the market did suffer after this happened. We already saw that this week. There was some uh, market drop that was attributed to this, general market drop, where this... Uh, was feared was going to happen. In addition to GameStop, several other publicly traded companies, including AMC, BlackBerry, Bed Bath & Beyond, Nokia, and Tootsie Roll Industries, I like Tootsie Roll, that was the funniest one to me, have seen huge shifts in their share price driven by inter- similar internet trading schemes. These wild fluctuations are just the latest indication that many private equity firms, hedge funds, and other investors, big and small, are treating the stock market like a casino, giving little consideration to the companies, communities, workers, and consumers that may be affected by these risky bets. The recent chaos reveals a clear distortion in securities markets, with benefits accruing to investors that do not clearly benefit the company's workers, consumers, or broader economy. So, so basically, this is uh, what, what she's trying to say here, is that the whole system kind of sucks, and that uh, people are making a lot of money actually betting against these companies, and that uh, these people betting against them are not really uh, providing any value. She goes on to say, Also, federal securities law prohibits market participants from misrepresenting a company's prospects to artificially affect its share price. There is a troubling lack of clarity regarding who the major market participants are in this case and the degree which their activities may be coordinated. With many of these traders cloaked in anonymity, there's no way of knowing whether, whether messages touting GameStop came from average Joes or scam artists executing a pump-and-dump stock scheme. She's referring to uh, pump-and-dump schemes are where uh, people circulate rumors that a stock is going to be very valuable soon, and then people will start buying it based on these rumors. It'll force the price up. The people who circulated the rumors already bought the stock at a low price, and then due to their own fake rumors, the stock goes up. Then they get out, make a big profit. Everybody realizes they've been had. They all sell and they all lose money. So that's called a pump and dump scheme. It is illegal. She is 
raising question of maybe these Reddit trolls weren't just doing it for fun, but this is actually a pump and dump scheme. Though there's no evidence that's true, but she is concerned about that. The manipulation of share prices may exacerbate inequality and the impacts of the ongoing pandemic-related economic collapse. While investors work to outmaneuver each other in search of short-term profits, working families continue to suffer, underscoring the growing disconnect between the stock market and the real economy. For example, millions of workers have lost their jobs or left the workforce altogether amid the pandemic and economic collapse. But America's 614 billionaires grew their net worth by a collective $931 billion in the, re- in the roughly seven months following the beginning of the pandemic. The rapid growth of economic inequality is in large part due to the disproportionate impacts of surges in the stock market, which has rebounded dramatically since the onset of the public health emergency. The stock market is not reflective of real economic conditions felt by com- communities across the country, and traders treating securities markets as casinos exploit these growing disparities, and the companies and workers underlie their gambles. Now, I, I don't agree with that. I mean, it's, it's a lot of this is the nature of the stock market. And yes, when there's a weird sort of situation like a pandemic, where certain stocks crash, and then uh, certain uh, people will buy them back up, assuming they're going to recover. And knowing a pandemic probably won't last forever, and some of these industries will survive or will be be projected to survive, and the stock will go back up. That's just the way the market works. You can't complain about the fact that people have made money on that or or that certain industries happen to benefit from it because of changing market conditions, things like Amazon. If you happen to be in the right place for when a pandemic starts, then uh, you're going to benefit from it. That's the way it goes. The SEC has a mandate to, quote, protect investors, maintain fair, orderly, and efficient markets, and facilitate capital formation and promote a market environment that is worthy of the public's trust. The commission must review recent market activity affecting GameStop and other companies and act to ensure the markets reflect real value rather than the highly leveraged bets of wealthy traders or those who seek to inflict financial damage on those traders. To protect and restore public trust in sound securities regulation and enforcement, the Commission must identify gaps in existing securities laws and rules in ways that the Commission can improve its enforcement capabilities. While U.S. law bars the dissemination of the false or misleading information with the aim of manipulating investors into buying or selling securities, SEC standards and enforcement of market manipulation remain woefully unclear. The public deserves clear answers about how federal regulators define market manipulation, how investors may have profited from potential manipulation, and what the SEC will do to mitigate these practices. This means that the Commission must work quickly to issue rules outlining what it means for traders to manipulate securities prices in violation of the law and to offer guidance for market participants. Uh, so, so anyway, it's, that's most of it. I won't bother uh, reading the, the rest of it. But uh, basically she's asking are what the Reddit guys did, is this okay? Is it okay what they did, and is it okay uh, what these hedge fund guys are doing in the first place? I do agree with her concern that uh, maybe the rules are antiquated with the SEC regarding pump-and-dump schemes or regarding price manipulation, that encouraging everybody to get together and buy something to run up the price just to screw other investors, maybe that should be illegal. Maybe any kind of coordinated effort or even attempt to make a coordinated effort to run up 
stock prices, even if it's just a suggestion to a large group of people with nothing dishonest put out there, but just a, hey, let's all do this to run up the price, maybe that should be illegal. It'll be interesting to see what the SEC does about this. There, there, it, it did expose a big hole. It really did. It exposed that, uh, number one, that shorting stock, that uh, there's always a danger of this if your stock gets targeted by people like this. And number two, that a large group of people, even the ones that are not affiliated with one another, if they're all reading the same internet message board, could agree to buy up a stock, and currently it's legal, and it can resemble a pump-and-dump scheme, even if it's not done in a traditional way. So did they find a new way to do a pump-and-dump that is within the law right now? Because before it was assumed people would only buy stocks if they were kind of tricked into believing that it was going to go up in value soon and you got to get in on the ground floor. No one thought of before the direct approach. Just use the internet to say, hey, everybody, let's just buy this. It's not worth it, but let's let's buy this and it'll run up anyway. It's, it's so simple, nobody thought of it. It's funny. But this has really wreaked a lot of havoc. So we'll see where this goes. What I think is related to it, though I'm not 100% sure, but it seems like the timing is very uh, coincidental otherwise, there's also been a huge rise in Dogecoin. And Dogecoin is, is one of many cryptocurrencies. It was actually started a number of years ago as a joke. And uh, it had a little bit of a pop, and then it went back down. And for a long time, it's been sitting around like about a fifth of a penny per Dogecoin. I knew somebody who bought like 250,000 of them, which sounds like a lot, but when they're a fifth of a penny, that's not very much. (laughs) That's not that much money. Some people had some optimism that maybe Dogecoin, despite the fact that it started as a joke, could end up being a relevant cryptocurrency, especially because it it did have a number of people who bought into it. So we thought maybe one day it'll run up, and if you happen to be holding a lot of it, then you can make a ton of money, kind of be like getting in early on Bitcoin. Well, for a long time, that didn't happen. It just sat very low and wasn't going anywhere. Then, then came the Doge run-up. First, it moved out to about a penny. That was earlier this month. And then this week, shortly after the whole GameStop thing, Doge started to run up with a similar uh, reason. It wasn't really done to screw anybody. It wasn't here to screw hedge fund guys, but it was kind of like, hey, guys, now let's see if we can run up uh, Dogecoin. It, it was different people, but it was kind of the same concept. It wasn't that Dogecoin was thought to be something wonderful. It was just like, hey, let's see if we can run this up now. We ran up GameStop. We ran up AMC. We ran up Tootsie Roll. Why not Dogecoin? They picked Dogecoin because it was like the joke coin. And even though it it is a functional coin, there's nothing wrong with it. But the whole the whole name, everything about Dogecoin was kind of meant to be uh, something you laugh at. So if you're going to pick a crypto, a kind of a joke crypto to run up, this is going to be the obvious choice. So like, okay, let's pick Dogecoin, which has been stuck in the doldrums uh, for a long time. Let, let's see if we can run that up. So it it ran up, and the goal that was stated was to run Dogecoin up to a dollar. 
And everybody was encouraged to buy Dogecoin and hopefully run it up to a dollar. Now, what will happen when it gets to a dollar? Probably crash. But uh, people are thinking, okay, well, I'll, I'll buy it now and then watch it run up to 90-something cents and drop it and make a, a nice profit. So sure enough, Dogecoin ran up to one cent, two cent, three cent, four cent, five cent, six cent, all the way up to 8.2 cents. And then yesterday, some action was taken. The action that was taken was that uh, trading Doge started to get restricted. It was restricted on Robinhood, which has been seeing all kinds of criticism this week. It was restricted on Kraken. And Binance wasn't trying to restrict it, but Binance had all kinds of trouble, all kind of technical issues that prevented it from being traded as much as people wanted. And people couldn't get verified on Binance who were signing up new accounts. It was, it was a disaster. Binance just wasn't ready for it. So between these three, the ability to trade Doge was largely interrupted. And when you're trying to do something like this, when you're trying to run up Dogecoin in the very short term for the sake of running it up and nothing else, and then people start having problems trading it, that really destroys the momentum. And as a result, Doge has suffered in the past 24 hours, and it went from a high of uh, 8.2 cents, where it was just rocketing up, and I, I really thought maybe it could get to a dollar, or at least start to get close. Uh, it started to go back down, and it cut in half very quickly. And then today, it's been drifting down further. It is now worth uh, 3 cents. So it's lost uh, more than half its value in the past day. And even in the last uh, like 12 hours, it lost almost half its value. It actually got as low as uh, 2.9 cents before going a little bit back up and now is on its way back down again. So I have a feeling Doge is going to end up where it started at, uh, <laughs> at, at, at under a penny when this is all done. But uh, a lot of people are angry about that as well, that there was, again, an effort to stop it, that uh, Robin Hood and Kraken were putting on some restrictions. They weren't shutting down trading, but they were putting on some restrictions, and Binance just couldn't handle it. So people wanted to keep, keep trading Doge and, and couldn't, or they couldn't to the level they wanted to. So there's a lot of anger this week that the average Joe has wanted to trade and could not. They're angry about GameStop, AMC, Dogecoin, a lot of people, including people who never trade and never get involved in cryptocurrency, jumped in on these uh, little uh, run-up schemes. Some of them just for fun. Some of them wanted to make money. Some just wanted in on it just to be part of it. But a lot of people jumped in on it, and and now uh, they're frustrated because trading was halted or restricted by apps and companies that claimed that that these were for the people to use, so they can get in on trading easily. And then, nope, it turns out that uh, when the shit starts hitting the fan, uh, things slow down or shut down. And the average person starts to feel like, I don't have a chance. Here I want to get in on something and I can't. Now, they're claiming that this is for everybody's protection. That some of these trades are occurring for the wrong reasons that people are going to get themselves in big trouble in these high volatility schemes and not realize it. 
that they're going to believe they're going to get rich, spend a lot of money, and then it's it's going to uh, fall down as fast as it went up, and people are going to lose a fortune. So they claim, hey, we're, we're protecting you guys from yourselves, but that's not really their place. If you're going to have a trading app, you need to let people trade. If you're going to have a cryptocurrency app where people can buy cryptocurrency, you need to let them do it. Now, if there's fraud, that's a different story. But short of fraud, you need to let people do it and, and not interfere with them for, quote, their own good, especially because there's a lot of suspicions it isn't for their own good and that it's actually being done to protect certain influential forces. Now, the Doge thing, uh, that's not about protecting anything, but it, it is maybe about protecting themselves, where I think some of these apps are worried they're going to get cheated in some way with people charging back or whatever when they make these instant uh, deposits and EFT deposits and credit card deposits. So they start worrying that uh, they're going to get screwed this way. So they, they a lot of these stopped people from being able to spend money that they've deposited recently on Dogecoin. And uh, so they said, if you, if you have existing money in here, fine. But if you're going to deposit any uh, currency, any uh, U.S. dollars into these apps – then you're not going to be spending it on Doge. And that's, that's really thrown a big wrench into that whole thing. And then the trading on GameStop and uh, AMC and these others were actually outright halted for some time. And there's a lot of complaints about that and, and belief it was actually illegal. So this is a big mess. And it's it's also exposed that the power of viral... Uh, buying trends is immense on the internet. And it's surprising it took this long to happen. It's surprising that this hadn't happened much earlier. There's no reason it had to happen in 2021. It it could have happened a long time ago. The internet's been around for a long time. People have been on the internet for a long time. This could have happened 20 years ago. This could have happened more than 20 years ago. But it did not happen until now, just for whatever reason, nobody thought of it until now. Let's just outright say, you know what, guys? Let's just buy this. Let's just buy this. The question is, what do you do? What can be done? What should the penalties be? And these are complex questions. They're not that easy to answer. Because you don't want to allow market manipulation. And at the same time, you don't want to be too restrictive to where the average person can't buy what they want to buy with their own money. So you've got to find the right balance there between protection and restriction. And sometimes it's not easy to find that. The hedge funds, they have to be worried because unless something is changed here, they're going to continue to be vulnerable. Every time they think they're going to find a company that is unlikely to rebound and is a good stock to short, along can come a Reddit troll and ruin the whole thing. And then it's going to become a game of chicken where, uh, you know, how long can everybody hold? And that'll be an interesting thing to watch, too. What's going to happen to GameStop? When is it going to crash back down to the true value? It's going to happen. It's a matter of when. Right now, GameStop is sitting at uh, 325. It did open higher than that. It opened at uh, three, uh, 379. If you take a look at the one-month chart, it's funny because uh, even on... Uh, January uh, 12th, it was 
$20. January 22nd, it had already gone up a good deal by, uh, it was uh, $65, but then it hit its peak of, uh, a temporary peak of 347 on January 27th, only to go down and back up on uh, today. And it shows you not anything's a sure bet. Like, could anyone have guessed the AMC theaters, Tootsie Roll, GameStop would become massive stock gainers out of out of nowhere in 2021? Would anyone have believed that? No. Especially not all of these. Maybe you'd say, well, one of them, maybe they'll do something revolutionary and uh, the stock will shoot up. But all of these, you list the, these, these stocks of these has-been companies and you're going to say all of them would shoot up in 2021, in the first month? Very, very unlikely. But it happened. So we'll see where this goes. All right. I'm going to move on to talk about something not having to do with stocks. Doug Polk and Daniel Negreanu are continuing their match, but something has happened that has caused some controversy and some anger. It started because Negreanu had a big session. So this is what was happening, was that uh, Negreanu was on the way back, and then uh, they took a break, and then Doug started beating him again. So Doug uh, started running it back up, and it looked like Doug was in very good shape, and that it was unlikely that uh, Daniel was going to come back. And Daniel then walloped Doug really hard. So on uh, January 21st, Doug was up a million dollars. He was up uh, $1,002,595 over 17,878 hands. Remember, they are going to be playing 25,000 hands, so they're getting closer to the end here. When Doug hit the million point in that session, he won almost 300,000, the biggest win to date of either of them. It really looked like Daniel was done. Here he was down a million bucks, and they had about 6,000-something hands left to play. Well, on January 22nd, then Daniel struck back, and they played about 1,000 hands, and Daniel won $390,000. All of a sudden, Doug realized his lead was not as secure as he had thought. Here, 40% of his lead was gone. Poof! And he was up only $612,000, which sounds like a lot, but they still had 6,000 hands to play. And Daniel had just chopped almost 400,000 hands, or $400,000 off that lead in 1,000 hands. So what if Daniel continued to get lucky? Or what if Daniel has figured him out somewhat? And what if Daniel can have an epic comeback and beat him? Well, Doug didn't panic just yet. And uh, he thought about, okay, what do I do about this? What do I do? And he decided that what he needs to do is just lock up the win. He said, okay, we've agreed to play 200, 400, no limit hold'em heads up, which plays very big. But if you think about no limit hold'em, the reason it plays so big is because uh, when the pot grows, in order to protect your hand, you have to 
bet a certain amount in order to make it uh, more difficult for your opponent to call. So basically, the more money that's in the pot, the bigger the hand's going to play. But if you can get the pot to be smaller in the first place and play what's known as small ball, then you can lower the variance of the session. You can make the 200-400 gameplay a lot smaller. In games like Limit Hold'em, there's no way to do that. Yeah, you can play a less aggressive style, but the bottom line is, if you have a hand, you have a hand. If your opponent has a hand, your opponent has a hand. And and the pot's going to get big, even if neither of you has a huge hand. If you all have some semblance of a hand, heads up, the pot's going to get to a certain level. Uh, In No Limit Hold'em, you can really reduce the pot size by simply bringing down the action that you yourself are putting in. And the way you can start that process is by putting in a lot less money pre-flop. So Doug realized that a way to prevent Daniel from walloping him in a few more sessions, if Daniel runs better, and getting ahead of him, and knocking out that other 600000 that he was ahead, was simply to start limping, something you would never expect a top heads-up, no-limit pro to do, like Doug Polk. But Doug decided he's just going to start limping. He's going to start limping a ton of hands. And this way, the pre-flop pot stays small. And then all subsequent streets, the betting is going to be a lot smaller. It's a lot harder to get people to call a big bet when the pot itself is small. It's a lot harder to make a big bet into a small pot. So Doug just decided he's going to play small ball, and he's going to play it starting by limping. Well, Daniel got annoyed by this. So they played a full session where Daniel, uh, he didn't react to it yet, but you could tell he was unhappy about this. They played 438 hands on January 25th. Daniel did win 46k, but that doesn't make a huge dent into it. So Doug was still up 565k at the end of January 25th, and he wrote, Played a lower variance, higher win rate style today. Weird Daniel Negreanu interview where he seemed to not know that limping increases your EV. Also, of course, good to lower variance. So Daniel did an interview afterwards bitching about this, going, I know exactly why he's doing this. He's doing this because he doesn't want to lose to me, and he just wants to try to lock up his win by uh, hardly putting money into any pots. And this is against the spirit of what we're doing. That These weren't his exact words, but that's what he was trying to get across, saying that Doug's just going to uh, limp to the finish line, literally, and uh, keep ahead that way. So even if he loses uh, you know, 40K here, 40K there, it's not going to be enough in the number of hands remaining to catch up. And that basically he's afraid that he, where he knows that Doug is afraid of losing to him and now has decided just to hardly put any money in any pots so as to avoid that and then finish the match ahead and win all the side bets. So Daniel found this to be very poor sportsmanship. And even though they didn't have an agreement that they won't do this, uh, he felt this was bad form. And I agree. This was bad form. Doug is supposed to be the best heads-up, no-limit player in the world. And he was playing Daniel as the favorite, as the admitted favorite. And this is supposed to be a grudge match. This isn't like the Galfon challenge, which is strictly about money. Like, all of Galfon's opponents, as far as I know, like the guy. They weren't playing because they hated each other or trying to prove anything. They were just trying to 
play pure poker, see who's better, see who's going to win, and also see who's going to win the side bets that are established. But it was purely a monetary exercise. This was not. This is supposed to be something entertaining for the viewer. This is supposed to be something where two guys who have hated each other for years are going to be going at it on the poker table at high stakes. And you get to see who ends up the winner. Yeah, it doesn't prove who's better because one person could run better than the other, but they are playing 25,000 hands. And this was not intended. The the goal here, when there's more than 20% of the match to still play, is not to shut down and do a very low-variance limping style just so you can technically book a win. We're supposed to be seeing them just play out normally for 25,000 hands, and whoever's the winner is the winner. That That's what the point of this whole thing. That's why we're watching. That's why anyone cares about this. It's not so someone can squeak by a few dollars ahead by playing a super low-variant style once they get up. That's not, that's not what this is about. This is supposed to be a grudge match. This is supposed to be, I'm going to take your money. This is supposed to be, I'm going to prove I'm better. That's what this is supposed to be. And... This goes against the spirit of that whole thing. And Daniel had a valid reason to be pissed off about this. Even if it wasn't technically against the rules, he had a valid reason to be pissed off because this was not what he was really agreeing to. He was agreeing, hey, we're just going to play 25,000 hands heads up and see who wins. Not, uh, we're going to play 18,000 hands heads up and if, if you're enough ahead, you're just going to shut down and hardly uh, put any money in any pot so you can lock up the win in the side bets. So Daniel was unhappy about this. He was calling Doug, quote, Grandma Doug, making fun of his new play style. Uh, He was very, very much on tilt about this uh, new limping and uh, small ball play style. It wasn't just limping. He just was trying to, he's limping, he's checking as much as he can. He just, he's trying to just pass hands and lose the minimum. So after one session of this, Daniel had to think, what do I do about this? Now, the mature way to handle this would be to either go to Doug directly behind the scenes or, if necessary, bring it out on social media. This is a public match, so it's fine to bring out on social media if you want to, and say, hey, this is bullshit. You shouldn't do this. I'm not going to continue playing this until we come to an agreement because you're not playing like a gentleman here. You're You are changing the terms by uh, doing this just because we didn't agree beforehand that you can't. But this is against the spirit of what we're doing here, and uh, this is not what I agreed to. I agreed to just the balls out, let's play each other 25,000 hands and see what happens. Not uh, not something where you're going to protect your win when there's more than 20% of the hands to go. And he'd have a good point. If he said that, I'd agree with him. I would say, Doug, stop it. I'd say, this is not what this was supposed to be about. Even if you never agreed to this specifically, there's the general spirit of what the whole thing is about, and Doug was violating that. This is what Daniel tweeted on the 26th of January. He was foreshadowing what was going to happen. Doing some homework on countering a limping strategy. Inside tip... For poker shares, betters, bet the under. It's going to be a slow and painful the rest of the way, and with a, with a laughing face. So he's basically saying if you're going to be betting on the outcome of tomorrow's match, January 27th, uh, bet on nobody is going to have a big win 
because it's going to be very, very slow and very, very small. That was his advice to people on the 26th. I don't know if Doug saw that or really understood what he was saying, but boy did Doug understand on the 27th when it actually played out, because this is what Doug tweeted out on the 27th. Completely pathetic showing from Daniel today. Tanking 20 seconds to open, tanking 20 seconds to check flop, tanking every single decision in an effort to slow down the game to nothing. Total piece of shit move. Wow. So Daniel's counter was just to stall. It's like, okay, Doug, if you're going to limp, if you're going to check, you're going to try to keep the pot super small, I am going to be a dick in return, and I'm just going to let the clock tick down. So pre-flop, no matter what I'm going to do, I'm going to let 20 seconds tick down, then I will act. On the flop, I'll let 20 seconds tick down, then I'll act, then you'll act, then if I have to act in reaction to what you did, if you bet, like if I checked and you bet, then I'll wait another 20 seconds. So every street, he took 20 seconds to respond, which when you're playing heads-up poker is brutal. That may not sound like a long time. It adds up. It's very, very slow and painful if every single street, every single decision is 20-plus seconds. And Daniel was doing this not because he was in deep thought. He was doing it strictly to stall, strictly to punish Doug for the limping. He even wrote that's what he was going to do without directly saying it, saying, I'm countering a limping strategy. And his counter is, okay, I'm going to annoy Doug and make this awful for him, make the whole match unpleasant until he stops this. Well, it actually worked because uh, Daniel... Uh, got him to stop limping. <laughs> Towards the end of the session, Doug stopped limping, and then Daniel stopped stalling. So, I guess it was successful. However, when it was done, Doug put out that tweet, and they had an argument back and forth about it. The next day, Doug looked up the rules of WSOB.com, and he wrote, I think there's actually a good argument that what Daniel did yesterday is against the rules. And then he quoted the rules table etiquette, slow play. Maintaining a reasonable pace is the responsibility of all players. Players should aim to play at the same pace as other players in the table. Uh, when you play on a site, you of course agree to the terms and conditions of the site. I would say this is pretty clearly against the rules, he writes. All of these, all the spheres within the rules bros are going to have to come up with a new excuse for this one. Well... Not really, because the rule actually isn't that clear. It's that players should aim to play at the same pace of other players at the table. It doesn't say that they have to. It's just, they should aim to. So that's maybe what they mean is you're supposed to or you have to, but aim to doesn't mean have to. So I, I think it's a poorly written rule. I actually dealt with this once on Bovada a few years ago. There was some asshole there, and I couldn't tell who it is because it's anonymous, but some asshole there who got mad at me for playing slower for about 10 minutes because I had something going on in the background. I don't remember what it was. I don't know if somebody called me or if I got an email I had to respond to, but I was in the middle of a game. It wasn't heads up. It was like, I don't know, four-handed or something. And for about 10 minutes, I was slower, and I was playing while doing something else in the background. I wasn't like tanking every decision. I wasn't doing what Daniel was doing. But I, I was slower than before, where usually I'm lightning fast when I play. 
So this guy kept uh, making it say zzzzzz and things like that to indicate he was unhappy, I was going slow. And after I saw enough of this, I'm like, okay, I, I see this guy's annoyed by it, I'll speed up. So I, I wasn't doing this maliciously, and I did speed up again after about 10 minutes. Well, what he decided to do shortly before I stopped was punish me and the whole table for this by tanking, just like Daniel did there. The guy was taking the maximum time to act on every single street, which is even worse than Limit Hold'em, which is a faster game than No Limit Hold'em. And this guy continued with this crap for like 90 minutes until he finally quit. I actually called Bovada support and complained as I was playing, and I told them to go look, but they were kind of incompetent there. They didn't get over there in time, and by the time they got there to take a look, he was gone. But I told them to check the hand histories. They'll see how long each hand took and everything. So anyway, they said they'll warn him and, and... make sure this stops. Well, it didn't. A week later, the guy appeared again and did the same crap, and it was the same guy. So uh, he didn't know who I was. I don't know who he was. I still don't know who he was, but uh, I called Bovada and was really pissed. I said, I complained about this last week. You told me you're going to stop this. I mean, you're going to let this guy ruin the games? You're going to let him stall like this? And uh, for like, I, I told you. I gave you all the evidence. You did nothing about it. So they, they assured me that this time they're going to stop it. And I said, okay, are you promising, are you promising me you're going to ban this guy if this continues? They said, yes, we're going to stop it. Well, to their credit, after that second complaint, it never happened again. So they must have laid down the law to him that if he does this one more time, he's gone. Anyway, it was really annoying. So remembering that, I kind of felt for Doug, even though Doug started this whole thing with the limping, which wasn't malicious. It was just kind of a, a poor sportsmanship move to do in order to try to lock up a win in the whole match, uh, I thought Daniel's actions were worse. I thought they both looked bad in this whole thing. Remember, Doug's supposed to be this heads-up, no-limit stud. What the hell is he doing with this limping and, oh, I'm going to lock up my win thing? Like, Is your ego really... Uh, that? Is, is, I don't know if it's an ego thing. I, I, I was going to say, is your ego that big or that small? I don't know what to say. It's just... It, I think that fragile is, is really the term. Is your ego really that fragile? Because... Why is he that worried about losing that he has to do this? This is making him look like a coward. He's supposed to be the better player. He's supposed to be the big favorite. And he's playing like a bitch, admittedly afraid of losing. Why do you do this in that case? Why even take this match on if you're going to play this way for the last like 23% of the match? It's crazy. So I understand why Daniel's pissed. You say, hey, give me a chance to come back. Let's play normally, and if I beat you, I beat you. What is what is this BS you're doing here? The problem with Daniel's response was very immature. Instead of just bringing it out to social media or telling Doug privately, he stalled like a child. And remember, Daniel's supposed to be a, a public figure in poker. Daniel's supposed to be one of the biggest names in poker that people are supposed to look up to and admire. And this was very childish, and very brutal for the viewers who are trying to watch this and enjoy the match. He's not only punishing Doug, he's punishing those who are viewing it, and he told people the day before he's going to do it. That's crappy. I mean, all he had to do is tell Doug, I'm not going to continue until we resolve this. And there were ways they could have resolved it. They, In fact, they even went to Phil Galfond as like a neutral arbitrator on this. <laughs> Galfond couldn't decide... But uh, they could have worked it out. I mean, Daniel would have had a very reasonable case to say, we're going to pause the match until we can figure out what to do about this. And I think a lot of people would have been on his side. 
but he lost a lot of people's respect by the way he did handle it by stalling the game in response to the limping. So both of them looked bad, but Daniel looked even worse, in my opinion. It was actually found that Daniel was in an ad in 2019, of course, way before this, that was giving a hard time to stallers. This is what Daniel tweeted in November 2019. Sick of online poker tanking and stalling? GG Poker uses a final table clock that rewards those who save their time for when it matters most. And then they had some kind of, I I don't know, some kind of mechanism there that uh, rewards people for acting quickly. So he actually tweets in 2019, sick of online poker tanking and stalling, and then he does it himself. This is the, the type of hypocritical crap that he does that pisses people off, that make people think, you know, this this guy Daniel's kind of a dick. He kind of doesn't practice what he preaches. And it's a bad look. I understand why he was mad, and I agree with him. I agree with why he was mad. I agree Doug was out of line there. I agree Doug was not acting within the spirit of the match, and if I were Daniel, I would be pissed there too. So I do not want to take that away from Daniel here, where he was very reasonable in his annoyance at Doug. But he handled it in an immature fashion. Daniel is like 46 years old. He's not a little child. It's not like a 20-year-old behaved this way. This was a 46-year-old man. This is not the way to handle it. Especially, he should have known if he just brought this out with the way he was feeling about it, a lot of people would have agreed with him. And he had the power to refuse to play until this was handled. It's not like someone was going to hold a gun to his head and force him to play. He could halt it and say, sorry, this is not what I agreed to. Bad look all around on this one. Now, Doug seemed to get the last laugh. Earlier today, he was stomping on Negranu and uh, had him down like 200k or more and uh, was probably feeling quite proud of himself, only to lose it back and uh, I think Daniel ended up ahead, like 30K today. If you're wondering, was there any limbing today? The answer is no. So Doug actually went back to the normal play style. So I, I guess ultimately what Daniel did worked, but it made him look bad. Yeah, I think it was... I, I don't see a... Doug always puts up on his Twitter the final result. I don't see it here. But someone on Poker Fraud Alert said it was... Uh, it was 30K in Daniel's favor. Uh, there was another session. It, actually, it was the, the, the session with all the uh, tanking. Doug ended up winning 136K in that session. So when Doug was up 200K today, he was up 900K, and it looked like Daniel was really in trouble because they were past 20,000 hands. But Daniel came back. So I think it's about like at high sixes right now, 670 or so, last I heard. So... Very much alive at the moment, this match, with probably well, like 4,000-something to go. Daniel could come back and take this, and it does look like the small ball, at least the limping, is a thing of the past. I don't know if they came to a formal agreement to stop this, or if just Doug stopped it. I, I, I guess Daniel's tantrum worked, 
But, see, this is... Here's what's funny. The whole point of this match is a grudge match where they're both attempting to make the other look bad. They both really want to punish each other on the poker table and then mock each other afterwards. I know they've been pretty polite throughout this, but that's kind of what they both want. They both don't like each other, and they never will. Daniel could have really scored some points against Doug here in the eye of the public if he didn't do this tanking strategy to stop it. If Daniel handled it maturely and said, look, I'm trying to be mature about this. I've I've treated Doug with respect the whole way, and look what he's doing now. Look what he's doing. He's the, he's the favorite in this, and look what he's doing. How is this fair? And yeah, there would have been a few Doug fanboys and Daniel haters who would have gone off on him anyway, but most of poker would have agreed with Daniel and told Doug that he's being a dick. And Daniel would have relished that. Daniel would have loved to have seen that, with everybody agreeing with him and saying that Doug is being an asshole, and Doug is being immature, and Doug is being... Uh, a hypocrite. Doug is being uh, uh, a coward. Imagine how good Daniel would have felt if that was the public narrative around what was happening. But instead, Daniel looked even worse by his response. Sometimes you got to be careful how you respond, even if you're the one being initially wronged. And that's important to notice, too, is that uh, Daniel was the one initially wronged here. Doug was the one who started this. But still, you have to behave uh, in a mature fashion and think before you act. And he had time to think about it. He even premeditated this whole thing. He didn't just snap while they were playing and start tanking. He premeditated this and announced it on Twitter the day before. That's crazy. So we will see what happens from here. whole thing's going to be over fairly soon. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-5. 8355. Now, here is an opposite viewpoint presented by an experienced player, Ari Engel, who is in the chat right now. Here's what Ari had to say. The spirit of the match is try your hardest to win and do optimal strategy within the confines of the rules or etiquette. Taking away the option to limp is way too extreme. I think limping is not at all out of line. Every hand if you want. I've gone through limping strategies before. Dominic Nietzsche is one of the best in the world and loves to limp. Okay, now, that's all true. I don't disagree with any of that, Ari. But I'm going to give you my response. Doug was not taking this strategy because he felt this was going to win him the most money. Doug was taking the strategy kind of expecting to lose, but believing that he was going to lose at such a slow pace that it would lock up an overall victory. And that does go against the spirit of what they agreed to. They didn't specifically agree that we're not going to make our play style like a small ball style when someone gets ahead. But I I think that's what both people kind of believed when they agreed to this match. They're just going to go out and, and play. And I'm not talking about the the final few hands. Like some people compared it to the Galfond uh, matches where, uh, it was discussed whether it was ethical to fold the final X number of hands if you've got a lead that cannot be surmounted if you just fold every blind. And it was concluded that that was fine to do. But that's at the very, very end. So like, if Doug decided he just wants to fold every one of the last hundred hands to lock up a victory, that wouldn't have been a big deal. 
But this this is the last like twenty three percent of the match. I think that's kind of crappy for the viewer. And uh, uh, so Ari's saying he said the exact opposite. Although Daniel was claiming what you're claiming now. But you know, I, I disagree because Doug was saying it's a lower variant strategy. I mean, it, it was pretty clear to me that Doug was doing this because he had just taken a 400K loss and didn't want it to happen again if he ran bad. So he think, okay, if I run bad the next time, I'll hardly lose anything because I'm keeping the pots very small. And that's uh, that's my problem. If you really believe the, the limping is going to win, then fine. Like, I'll tell you in, uh, in Limit Hold'em, where I will limp, where usually if you're limping in limit hold'em, you're a fish. But uh, if I'm against a passive fish and, like, I'm in the small blind and this fish will check the big blind if I limp to him, like, a good player will often punish you with that, even with a lousy hand, if you limp in the small blind in limit hold'em. But a, uh, a fish who's very passive will often check it. So if you're dealt something that's kind of trashy in the small blind, uh, you probably do want to keep the pot small and then outplay the fish post-flop. You just want to uh, get to the flop cheaply with your trash hand and go from there. So if, you, if you're pretty confident you're not going to get raised with trash or semi-trash hands by the player in the big blind, it actually is smart to limp in the small blind. That, that, that's, that's a situation where limping has a tr- strategic element to it, and in no limit, uh, of course, that exists as well. So I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about banning limping. I'm talking about where someone's limping only to reduce variance, only to make it to where they don't lose their lead in this type of a match. That's that's my problem. Anyway, uh, thank you, though, Ari, for your commentary in the chat room. Moving on to the next topic. Christopher Mitchell. Christopher Mitchell, the Baccarat coaching scammer. Now, I will say that uh, some people are very fascinated by Christopher Mitchell. Some people are mildly fascinated, and some people are annoyed by him and don't want to hear about him. So I try not to talk about him too much, and I try to only cover him on the show when there's news that I think is relevant. Because there's YouTube channels that just release new material about him like every few days. And there's a thread on Poker Fraud Alert that constantly talks about him that I participate in. And if you enjoy the Christopher Mitchell drama, then definitely go check out that thread and definitely go check out these YouTube channels. In fact, uh, Poker Fraud Alert radio listener Jeff Dime runs one of those channels. But I know there's others who say, why are you giving this guy time? It's just an idiot scammer who has, like, fake... Baccarat strategies, like, why is this so interesting? To to me, it's interesting because of how ridiculous it is, and yet, despite the ridiculousness, he still finds people to fall for it, which is sad, but it's also interesting. And it's it's also interesting to, like, watch his gimmicky videos and pick apart all his lies. It's one of these things where the guy is such a clown, it actually becomes fun to watch and fun to expose. Anyway, um, the scam is starting to crack. From our observations, and we, we can't know for sure because we don't have access to Christopher Mitchell's finances, but from our observations and assumptions, and I think we're probably correct, 
it looks like he's running out of money. Christopher Mitchell, for those of you that don't know, I'll give a very brief synopsis of what he what he's about and what he's doing. This is a guy who's like a lifetime hustler. He never wants to get a real job. He always wants to find a way to uh, sell something to you that probably is of very little value. And uh, starting about uh, a year ago, he started with this whole Baccarat coaching thing. And he's, he even admits he's fairly new to gambling. It's not like he's been gambling 20 years. This is a guy who just got into gambling recently. The problem is, he's an addicted gambler. He actually does love playing Baccarat. He likes going into the casino and shooting off. He has a gambling problem. And to fund that gambling problem and to fund his ability to live without uh, having a job, he runs this scam. I'm not even sure if he realizes that it's completely a scam. Because I also don't think he's that smart. He's good at selling things. He's good at propaganda. But I don't think he's all that intelligent from watching him. So I think he may not even understand that these strategies he's coming up with are bunk and have no mathematical basis and are destined to lose. They're negative expectation. I don't think he understands that, and he may not even have the ability to understand it. Or even if he has the ability, he may be in denial. Whatever it is, I do believe that he is drinking his own Kool-Aid because he actually plays. He there, there are some gambling system scammers out there that don't really wager on what they are selling. There's like, for example, sports betting touts that will claim uh, they win 80% of the time, which is impossible. And then they'll give you their picks and they'll claim that they're high stakes bettors themselves. Well, a lot of these guys don't bet on the games at all. They just sell you their picks and in reality, they're just pulling these out of their ass and really don't, uh, they, don't have, they don't have any kind of sports betting talent and they make money from suckers who pay them for picks, sometimes a lot of money. But Christopher Mitchell's different in that he actually does play Baccarat when he has the money to do so. I think he actually believes that if he has a big enough bankroll, these strategies will work. For a while, his strategy was pretty much just martingaling, which is bet, and if you lose, double your bet. And if you lose, double that bet. If you lose, double that bet, and keep double, double, double until you win, and then go back to your original bet. That's called a martingale. It's been known for many decades and the big hole in the Martingale is that eventually when you go on a long losing streak, it'll decimate your bankroll. So even with Martingale, you're still negative EV, and all you're doing is adding tremendous variance to it. But he, he's switched strategies every few weeks. Oh, I have a new strategy. You have a new strategy. Yeah, he's always claiming he's winning 99% of the time. He's always claiming this is the way to quit your job and become a millionaire like him. And he sells suckers often the elderly and working-class people who can't afford it, or foreigners who don't understand very well, he sells these systems. Sometimes he'll do in-person coaching. More recently, he's been doing it through his Facebook group where he sells access to it. And he sells them this bunk system that doesn't work and has not worked for him. And even if he believes that it works, he knows his results have been shit. He knows he's losing his ass at it. And he lies about his success, and that's where the crime is taking place. It's it's not a crime to sell a bad system that you believe is working. That could be something that leaves you civilly liable if someone were to sue you, 
But it's not a crime to sell a uh, gambling system that you think works and uh, in reality is not, just because you made a miscalculation. Uh, Where it would be a crime is for you to claim that it has given you results that it really has not. Because at that point it becomes fraud, and uh, when you collect money to sell such a system based upon false claims, uh, you can get yourself in all kinds of legal trouble. So, and I, and I hope he does go to prison for this one day. He may not because he's kind of small time, but I hope he does. And there's been some efforts some people have been making to make that happen. Not me. I haven't gotten involved in all that. I, I don't have time to go on a crusade against Christopher Mitchell. But there are some who are are putting time into trying to see if they can get him uh, put in prison for what he's been doing. And he deserves to go to prison. It looks like towards the end of 2020, some of the efforts by those that were against him paid off. And it looked like the major strip casinos told him to stop bringing, quote, students there. And he could no longer do the live in-person coaching at any kind of decent casino on the strip. Like they all pretty much told him, don't bring students here. You can come play yourself. But do not bring people here as part of your your training because it doesn't, you know, we don't want that here. I don't know if they called it a scam, but they, they basically said cut this out. So he he used to bring them all around to different uh, strip casinos. All of a sudden that stopped and he started selling uh, the coaching via, via Zoom or via the Facebook group, things where he's helping people remotely rather than meeting with them in person to coach them. And the few times he's meeting people to coach them, it's always to, like, locals' properties, which haven't put this requirement on him yet. So something happened towards the end of 2020 that changed there. At one point, he even claimed he was quitting coaching forever and getting into other things. And then, of course, he couldn't help himself. and came right back to it. But uh, he did kind of transition the whole thing very quickly over to this private Facebook group where you have to pay to access it. And he gives you all of these uh, winning strategies that are going to allow you to quit your job and become a millionaire just like him. In reality, it appears that uh, he's down to his final funds, that he's running out of suckers to fleece. There's only so many people that are going to fall for this. Uh, He doesn't have a gigantic following, so it's not like he has a million people viewing his videos and always has a fresh group of suckers. There's uh, only like a few thousand views on each video, and we believe some of these are fabricated views where he's buying views. So, uh, you know, how many people are going to be? Most people are just watching this for fun or watching this to laugh at him. There aren't that many people who are watching, believe him, and are willing to put their money out there to learn from him. So, uh, he ha- he has found a number of people to do this over time, but it looks like he's running out, and it looks like he's blown most of the money or the vast majority of the money that he made from these scams. So he's he's pretty desperate, and we've seen various signs of that. So uh, this Facebook group, he started running these specials at the end of 2020, starting around Thanksgiving, where for $250, he would let you into the Facebook group for life. He's saying you can have access to his Facebook group forever and all of his winning strategies for a one-time payment of $250, and then that, that was the special. Then it went back up to 400 so some people paid 400 but everybody paid either 250 400 or 500 500 was the original price, to get into that Facebook group. And everybody was made to understand very clearly 
that this is a one-time payment and you will never have to pay ever again. In fact, he said that in his videos. So suckers bought into this and thought they were going to be learning from the master. He likes to call himself the Baccarat King. I mean, I guess he's the king of losing in Baccarat, but he's not, he's not the king of winning. He gets all these people in the group. It was a temporary infusion of cash. And here's the problem. What's the problem when you your main form of coaching is this Facebook group? What is the problem when you sell people lifetime memberships to it for 250 to $500? Well, unless you're about to quit the scam shortly, then you've pretty much killed your income stream. Because once these people buy their lifetime memberships, that's it. You're not getting another penny out of them. So he realized that. He did that out of desperation in December at the end of November. And some people went for it. But then he gets to January. He's like, crap, I need more money. And these guys aren't going to pay me another dime. Because I let them into this Facebook group on a lifetime membership. Now, in reality, these people are buying something that's worthless. In fact, it's worth less than zero because it actually teaches them a strategy to, quote, make money in the casino that it's actually going to make them lose. So they'd be better off never learning this strategy and never having the confidence to walk in there believing they're going to win and risking money they shouldn't be risking. But that aside, these people believed that they were getting a lifetime membership they'd never pay again. That's the reason they bought into it in the first place. So what do you do? What do you do for Christopher Mitchell? You're a career scammer. You absolutely positively never want to get a job. He says this in his videos, that he'll never get a job, which I believe. All of your potential customers have now already bought in for life. So what do you do? How do you make money? I'll tell you how you make money. Listen to this. This is how you make money. I'm very highly protected financially. I have a legal team of advisors that are extremely knowledgeable. And I have many different business entities in place to protect my money. I have corporations, I have LLCs, I have holding companies, I have trusts. I have all these business entities in place to protect my money. So my legal team sits me down just a few days ago. says, Christopher, you're getting pretty big, known around the world on YouTube. We need to add another layer of protection. So they said, we know you have a good heart and you want to help people. But because you and your wife are such good people... There are going to be evil people out there that try to take advantage of you. So they said, everybody inside of your private Facebook group, they actually need to sign a contract and a non-disclosure agreement stating confidentiality, that what you teach them inside of the private Facebook group will stay inside of the private Facebook group. Mm, That's already suspicious. Now, first of all, uh, Do you think Christopher Mitchell, who is near broke, has a legal team? (laughs) By the way, where was this legal team when he appeared in court with Lee Bradbury, A. Hoosier A., with that bogus restraining order he filed, that Christopher filed against him? Why did Christopher show up by himself and act like a fool in court if he had this legal team? Where was his legal team? He could have brought them. That's because they don't exist. The, The legal team is all in his head. But what? But putting that aside, we know he has no legal team, but what is he doing here? Why, why is he making people in that group sign an NDA? Well, there's a few reasons. First of all, NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, are commonly used by scammers. I'm surprised it took this long for Christopher to realize it. Because the problem would be this. 
Christopher would get suckers to buy into his uh, scheme, whether it's the in-person coaching or the Facebook group, whatever. They try his strategies. They'd lose their ass. They'd say to Christopher, wait a minute, I thought you said this wins 99% of the time. Christopher would then get nasty with them and say, no, 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 you didn't do it right. They go, no, Christopher, I, I followed exactly what you said. No, you didn't. You did it wrong. And he'd blame them for it. And then he'd uh, throw them out of the Facebook group or never talk to them again or whatever. So then they'd get pissed. Most of them will just kind of slink away and, and feel stupid, but but some of them will show up and call him out. We even had one of them on this show, Rick Lee, if you remember last year. So he knows that over time, people there's more and more of these people showing up, calling him out for his scam. And he realized what other scammers around the world have realized a long time ago. And that's you can use NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, to scare people in, out of doing this. So what you do is you scam them. In the process of scamming them, you get them to sign a non-disclosure agreement. And then if they dare try to expose what you're doing, if they dare try to expose the scam, then you claim they're violating the non-disclosure agreement and say you're going to sue them for everything they have, and they panic and they don't do it. Whereas if you don't have such an agreement, then they can do what they want as long as they're telling the truth. There's nothing you can do to them to touch them legally. Now, in reality, a non-disclosure agreement is not going to hold up if it's someone exposing a scam. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it becomes something that scares people a lot more because they know they signed an agreement not to disclose the information that uh, they were given. They, won't, they can't disclose the whole scheme. They're, they're basically signing, and people can really be made to be terrified of the consequences of violating that. So at first I thought that's all it was, just to keep a lid on these angry former customers. But it was more than that. See, remember, he still needs more money. This may shut people up, but he still needs more money. And he's already burned through most of the current suckers who are willing to pay him, who've paid this one-time fee and won't ever pay him again. So how does he parlay this non-disclosure agreement into more money? Well, listen. And if they decide to share everything that I teach them, if they decide to share it publicly with anybody outside of the private Facebook group, I can take legal action against them for breaking the contract, for breaking the non-disclosure agreement. My legal team put this in place for my protection. So over the last three days, I introduced this. This is, this is a true story. I tell you guys everything. So now inside of my private Facebook group, every single person from the past and in the future has to sign this new contract, this new non-disclosure agreement in order to be a part of my private Facebook group. And if they share what I teach them, my winning strategies, if they share these, I can take legal action against them. Now, this is also not legal to do. You cannot invite people into your Facebook group and then after they have paid you, demand that they sign the NDA or get thrown out and basically lose their money that they paid to access the group. Now, what you can do is you can say that uh, we're changing the rules here, but if you don't accept them, we will fully refund your money. That you could do because then you make them whole. But you cannot say, after you've already taken their money, okay, new terms, you need to sign an NDA, otherwise uh, I'm throwing you out and I'm still keeping your money. You can't do that. You can't add new rules on – basically when, when somebody pays to access that group and an NDA is not required, that is the contract at the time. You can't uh, uh, create a new contract between the two, even if there's no actual contract signed. You can't just force this new term on them and then keep their money if they won't accept it.
This is the truth. Now, the reason I share that with you, most of the people inside of my private Facebook group, they have no problem signing this new contract to remain a part of my private Facebook group. But there's always an evil person. An evil person, an evil person who has common sense. By the way, do you really think most of the people had no problem with this? I'll tell you who had no problem. He has fake accounts in the Facebook group who always uh, cheer everything he does and tells them how wonderful he is, how much money they're making with the system. These are accounts he controls or his wife controls. And uh, these are the people who said they did it, who said they signed it, because these are people who are not real people. These are mostly fake accounts claiming they had no problem with it. It's, it's all a manipulation tactic. An unethical person, an immoral person when it comes to a bunch of good people. I think they say one bad apple spoils the whole bunch, something like that. So this guy who joined my private Facebook group about a month and a half ago or so, he's unknown, dead broke, works a nine to five job, joins my group because he wants more money in his life, which is why everybody joins my private Facebook group. So he wants to learn how I win all the time because he doesn't. So he joins my private Facebook group. I teach him my winning strategies and he starts implementing them. So he starts winning every single day. Every single day he starts winning. Now, I think about two weeks ago or so, he decides to create a YouTube channel. But not only that, he decides to post his YouTube videos inside my private Facebook group. And then he starts promoting his videos inside of my private Facebook group, telling people to go watch his videos. Hey, everybody, I just created a new YouTube channel. Go check it out. Here's the link. Self-promotion inside of my personal Facebook group that I created from the ground. Now, you guys let me know in the comments section below. Was that right of him to do? Or do you think that's pretty selfish? That's unethical. That's immoral. Doesn't that sound like a scam artist? I didn't say anything. I allowed it. I didn't delete him from the group. I didn't delete his videos. I didn't... But by the way, the reason he's going to this whole story, which has nothing to do with the ensuing controversy, was to try to set up the belief that this guy who was complaining was a scammer and that Christopher here is the innocent guy who actually was very understanding and let the guy promote his own YouTube material in Christopher's group. And Christopher is nice enough not to stop him. So he basically he's saying, look what a nice guy I was. And then listen to how this jerk, this scam artist repaid me. Even contact and say, listen, stop promoting yourself. I did not. This was a couple of weeks ago. He started posting his videos in my private Facebook group. But then just a couple of days ago, I announced to the entire group what my legal team of advisors put together and said, listen, man, things are changing. I've created some new winning strategies, the best I've ever created. And I now have to put a contract, a non-disclosure in place. Every single one of you are going to have to sign this if you want to remain in my private Facebook group. 
So this one guy who just recently created a YouTube channel and has been using my group for self-promotional reasons decides to not only not sign the non-disclosure agreement, but decides to go above and beyond that and start emailing members inside of my private Facebook group saying that I'm a scam artist. I'm a scam artist. Now, how did I scam him? Because I had already had my own private Facebook group. I'm the one that came up with that idea. I'm the one that wanted to start helping people. I had already had a successful YouTube channel. I had already created winning strategies for myself that was helping me win in the casino every single day. This guy paid me to learn my winning strategies, to join my private Facebook group, and he discovered me off of my YouTube channel. Now, this guy came to me with nothing. He's dead broke. That's why he came to me. And then for 30 days, he used what I taught him and made money, thousands of dollars. And then my legal team says, I now have to start adding another layer of protection for myself since I'm getting big. And I need to require that everyone sign a non-disclosure agreement. And this guy decides not to sign it and then starts emailing other people and says that I'm a scam artist for making people sign it. Now, am I really a scam artist because I'm simply protecting myself because my YouTube channel continues to grow every single day and more and more people out there are trying to take advantage of what I've built? Am I the scam artist? Or is this guy who had an ulterior motive from the very beginning when he joined my group to learn what I taught him so he could then take it and profit off of it for himself by creating a YouTube channel and then coming back into my private Facebook group and promoting his new YouTube channel for himself. And now he's telling people I'm the scam artist. Am I? Let me know what you think in the comment section below. Or do you think he's the scam artist who got into my private Facebook group to take what I already knew so he could benefit, make thousands of dollars gambling, and then go create a YouTube channel, and then promote his YouTube channel inside of my private Facebook group, and then decide not to sign the non-disclosure agreement, because if he did, he could no longer promote himself on YouTube using what I taught him. So who's the scam artist? I can tell you, you are. Now, what he's not telling you here is that there's one other aspect of this whole thing. Not only do you have to sign an NDA, but you also have to pay him additional money not to be thrown out of the group. And that's what enraged everybody. Not only do they have to sign this NDA all of a sudden, but they also have to pay additional money after being promised that this is a one-time payment to access the group for life. So that's what made everyone freak out. And that's why a revolt started. And then the main guy who was trying to get everyone together to revolt against this is who he is bashing and trying to make it seem like this guy is just trying to steal his material and that uh, he wouldn't sign the NDA because he was only there to steal Christopher's material for his own channel in the first place. Now, there is a form. There is an NDA form, which we got a hold of here, which uh, I'm going to read to you. This is the real form that 
you know, some of these guys got mad after they were thrown out of the group and contacted people who uh, were exposing these things. So now we got to look into some things here. So here's what the this was prepared by his uh, crack legal team that I'm sure uh, charges him a fortune by the hour. Here we go. Change Your Life, which is the name of his company, Consulting and Non-Disclosure Agreement. This Consulting and Non-Disclosure Agreement is dated this 15th day of January 2021 between, and then the two names, uh, consultant and client. Background. The client would like to engage the consultant to provide a one-time consulting service in accordance with the terms uh, and conditions of this contract. Services provided in term, the consultants will provide the client with a private video coaching session of approximately one hour to provide guidance, techniques, and strategies related to playing the game of Baccarat. The guidance, techniques, and strategies have been developed by the consultant based upon his own personal experiences successfully playing the game of Baccarat. Yeah. (laughs) Successfully should be in quotes. Compensation. The consultant agrees to charge the client a one-time payment for the consulting services described above. There you go. There's the additional money. The payment must be made along with a signed copy of this contract prior to scheduling or commencing of the private video coaching session. Payment in U.S. dollars must be submitted directly to the consultant's account. See, this is not only agreeing not to disclose things, it's also agreeing to pay extra money. So it's uh, it's pretty much changing the rules and getting people to sign this. Uh Warranties and guarantees. There are no warranties or guarantees associated with this contract. The success of the, cl- of the client employing this guidance, techniques, and strategies included in this contract are dependent on many factors, but not limited to the client's skills, financial resources, knowledge, experience, and the amount of time devoted to learning the game. The consultant cannot and does not guarantee any level of success for the client. Any money won or lost by the client is strictly at their own risk, and the consultant will not be held liably responsible. All rights reserved. No part of this private video coaching session described above may be reproduced or recorded, distributed, stored in a database or retrieval system in any form by means whatsoever. The client is agreeing to keep all information shared during the private video coaching session strictly between him and her. The consultant will not share it with anyone else outside of the two parties. Uh, Governing law, this consulting non-disclosure agreement will be governed by and in accordance with the laws of the state of Nevada in the United States of America. I understand that violating this agreement in any way can and will be punishable by law. And then there's a place to sign online there. Now, you may say this kind of sounds like it was written by an attorney. I guarantee he got this from some kind of uh, form. He he downloaded some sort of uh, legal form and then modified it. There's there's tons of stuff you can get like this. So he, he did not have his legal team make this. Uh, at most, he may have paid an attorney like a hundred bucks to quickly throw this together. You, you, you can put an ad on Craigslist to get uh, attorneys who are struggling for work to uh, to take little jobs like this, and you you can find plenty to do it. So he either did that or, or just grabbed a form online. I'm gu- I'm guessing he grabbed a form online and just modified it. So people have to sign this through this uh, online site that he would he'd send them this link, and if they did not, he threw them out of the group. They had to sign this and pay him. And basically by signing this, they're agreeing to pay him. And then that also gives him justification to throw them out. It's a really nasty stuff. I mean, it's one thing to sell them a bunk system, but to, to sell them a bunk system, have them buy it, and then tell them, okay, now pay me additional money to continue getting the bunk system, which I said you're getting for life, that's just really crappy. That's even worse. Now, Funny enough, he's actually doing them a favor by throwing them out because by no longer selling a losing system to them, they're actually not going to lose as much. But putting that aside, he, he's taking away what they paid for and and then bashing 
whoever revolts against this. So people actually made channels about this, and there's now videos calling this out, and uh, some people are exposing what was really going on in the Facebook group. And what was funny is, what was this new strategy he came out with? I mean, he's coming out with new strategies seemingly like every few weeks, which wouldn't make any sense if he's winning 99% of his sessions. But what is this new strategy that he's charging the extra money for? His new strategy is, if you win your bet, then... Bet again on that side. So if you bet on Banker and Baccarat and Banker wins, then bet again on Banker. And if you do not win, then switch to player. That's the whole strategy. (laughs) I just saved you guys $500. You can thank me later. (laughs) One of the guys thrown out of there said you could hear everyone's jaws hitting the floor when they learned that was the new strategy that he was charging extra money for. The problem is this guy, everything's very simple with him. All these, quote, winning strategies, are it's just really, really simple, basic stuff that anyone, even someone who's not that familiar with gambling, would say, wait a minute, how could no one have figured this out in in years and years and years of people gambling? Like, how has no one figured this out yet, if this works? It's not like he's coming up with like intricate stuff or something very uh, unusual, revolutionary. It's just very simple stuff. Oh, you know, if, if you bet on Banker and Banker wins, then bet on Banker again. Like, how how does he think that this this is going to fool anyone? But I I guess it does. I guess there's really some gullible people who want to believe in it. But it's uh, he doesn't even come up with stuff that sounds complex or that sounds like it would work. So there's there's a lot of people revolting against this. And a lot of people calling him out who are once in his corner. And it's only a matter of time before uh, everything falls apart. There was even a, uh, a Facebook chat that someone posted a screenshot of where uh, they were complaining. It was kind of like a group of people all together in a Facebook chat about this, including Christopher himself. And... Uh, You can find this in the Poker Fraudler thread on page 140. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But I I will read the part that Christopher Christopher himself showed up in there and and said to one of his supporters, "Uh, don't waste your time trying to explain yourself to people. Most people will never change. I'm making a brand new video right now titled How to Make a Million Dollars Per Year. I'm also going to explain why most people will never make the kind of money I encourage all of you dead broke haters to watch it. Have a great day. So this is his whole routine. I'm successful. You're not. You're a dead broke hater. Anyone who doesn't like him is a dead broke hater. That's it's always the excuse. It's jealous dead broke haters. He says, who those are the ones calling him out. Who who are calling him a scammer because they're just jealous because they can't win like he can. They're just jealous they don't have what he has. When when in reality the guy doesn't have a pot to piss in. Every every money he every bit of money he makes from the scam he goes into the, into the casinos and chunks off. So the ultimate winner here are the casinos. It's it's not him. I guess it's a little bit him because he doesn't have to work and he uh, he continues to live and uh, have a roof over his head and food in his stomach. But uh, it, it's a really uh, nasty scam and it targets mainly the elderly and people from foreign countries who don't know better. And, and also some working class people who really believe this is their way to finally break out of the rut and get ahead. Because people are very vulnerable to this. This is these get rich quick schemes don't tend to target the rich because 
if you're already rich, you have less motivation to get involved in any kind of scheme because you're already doing well. It's those who are kind of just getting by, those who kind of always wish they had more, but really see no path to it, especially you're in middle age, you're working a dead-end job, you're, you're kind of making just enough to get by, but you know you're never going to um, you're never gonna have any appreciable money. You're never going to have the good life. You're going to have the just getting by life for the rest of time. And same with the, you're going to have nothing to leave your kids. Like it, You think about this, you get depressed, and then this guy shows up and says, hey, look at me. I was in your position, and now I'm a millionaire because I know how to beat the casinos. Let me teach you. Give me 500 bucks, I'll teach you. And people get enticed by this. So the people getting ripped off are not ones who can afford it. These are seniors on a fixed income. These are working class people who are barely getting by. And that's who he's ripping off. And it's very sad. And they go, they walk into the casino with their entire bankroll, believing that it's a 99% chance this is going to eventually run up to a million dollars. And then they lose it all, and they, they say, hey, Christopher, what happened here? And he gets very nasty with them. Tells them they didn't follow the strategy. It's their fault. They didn't listen to him. Go away. Now some are starting to revolt because he's getting desperate, because he, he can't do the in-person coaching on the Strip anymore. Uh, there's only a limited number of people that even come to Vegas right now because of COVID. There's only a limited number of people who are willing to pay him for this at all. And then he has sold them all memberships to this Facebook group in the video coaching, and that's supposed to be a one-time payment, and now he needs more money. So we will see what continues from this. Eventually, he's going to run out. He's got to move on to something else. That's what's going to happen. He's going to he's just going to run out of customers completely. It's good that uh, these channels exist to call him out, and it's good that when people Google Christopher Mitchell Baccarat, Christopher Mitchell scam, you find stuff like Poker Fraud Alert and these YouTube channels calling him out, like Jeff Dimes' channel, because I guarantee this has saved people some money. I guarantee there's some people who considered it. And then saw this stuff and said, okay, forget it. And you don't hear from them. You don't, you don't hear from many people saying, hey, I was about to be a sucker, but I decided not to be because you, t- you convinced me not to. Every once in a while you hear about it, but uh, most of the time you never hear from these people. They just they quietly see it and they go, nope, I'm not going to send them the money. It's good to do this. It's good to call it out. And yes, he'll get to some people who don't see it or who don't believe it. And that's Inevitable, but hopefully one day he gets arrested for this. Hopefully one day he faces some consequences beyond just being exposed. Hopefully one day he faces some legal consequences. I know there's talk of a lawsuit against him, but he doesn't have any assets people can go after. I think what little assets he has, he holds in cash, and it's very little. Like He's not showing more than $2,500 to any of his videos. That's all he shows is $2,500. And he used to flash... Tens of thousands of dollars. Some of it may have been fake, but uh, at one point he really did have tens of thousands of dollars. And that's all gone. So you can see in his videos that he's hitting hard times, which is good. I'm happy to see that. I just wish this would end. But it'll only end when there's no more suckers to scam. Okay, well, speaking of a scam, Mike Matisau created some waves last week when he attacked both uh, Phil Helmuth, who was supposed to be a friend of his, and Scott Ball. Now, again, this is Scott Ball, not Scott Bell. There's also a Scott Bell in poker who has nothing to do with this. Uh, Scott Bell was one of the uh, people exposing UB back in the day. 
But this is a guy named Scott Ball, no relation to Scott Bell. And uh, Mike Matisau was accusing Scott Ball of scamming and a lot of uh, really bad behavior. I, I don't really know Scott Ball, but a pretty interesting story, including how this all played out. And whenever it involves Mike Matisau, you know there's going to be drama. Mike Matisau is someone who always speaks his mind and does not hold back. Scott Ball was somebody who uh, I guess was on Twitch a lot in the past. I I didn't pay that much attention to him, but uh, he accused him of various things, and he accused Phil Helmuth of keeping quiet about it, that basically Helmuth was one of the victims too, but that Helmuth let Ball continue his crap rather than uh, warn people about him. And uh, people had thought since he had some association with Helmuth that he had to be okay. So uh, Mike Matisau tweeted on uh, January 22nd, I despise people who steal and scam at the expense of others. Hashtag the mouthpiece podcast, which is Mike's podcast. Hashtag honesty. And uh, then he did release this podcast, which was called... uh, Judgment Day, episode number 60. And here, I'll play you uh, an excerpt from this podcast. This is starting from around the uh, nine-minute mark. This is episode 60 of the Mouthpiece podcast, the same one that had Postle on it back in uh, 2019, and in fact, uh, became part of my legal defense. So thank you to Mr. Matisau for having him on there. I told you guys at the time that wasn't a bad thing that Mike appeared on there. I didn't know I was going to be sued a year later, but uh, I knew that the more Apostle said, the better for poker. And indeed, um, as you'll see in my anti-slap, that we mention his appearance on that podcast. And that's uh, part of our defense, as you can see. But uh, this isn't about Apostle. This is about Scott Ball, and listen to what uh, Madison had to say about him. So uh, let me address uh, uh, pretty much uh, before we get into our phone call segments, which we're going to take lots of phone calls tonight, uh, the tweets that I, I put out yesterday um, about Phil. Now, I just want everyone to know Phil is my, one of my closest friends. Uh, I love him to death. He's done more for me. Than anybody in the poker world in the last five, ten years, maybe he's been there for me through thick and thin. Um, I got very upset with him, and we got in a big fight yesterday uh, over what I felt was an unjust reason of kicking me out of a poker game, which uh, we had just started. And um, the reason why we started the game back up is because the other game that Mr. Scott Ball was running ended up being a complete uh, fuckfest. Yeah, and he'll go into that. But uh, to talk about these games, and there's a little controversy about these games when they had one on Live the Bike. Matisau and Helmuth are friends, and they had been playing in poker games together. And uh, Matisau is perpetually broke. He's terrible with money. And he'll admit that. I'm not giving away any secrets here. And Helmuth has a lot of money. And Helmuth backs Matisau in these games. So uh, they play a lot of these private games together. And even uh, Live at the Bike, they, it wasn't a private game. It was a Live at the Bike game where uh, Helmuth is backing him. 
But Helmuth has been backing Mattisau in these games for a while with with the belief, okay, Mattisau is a good player. Helmuth believes he's a favorite in these games. He just is crappy with money, so Helmuth backs him. So um, they were playing in a game that was run by Scott Ball, and then that game kind of collapsed, and Mike was then uh, thrown out of the game that uh, he had started with Helmuth. And this was what set him off. See, Mike Manisau, he didn't come out because he felt like it was a moral imperative to do so. It would be nice if that were the case, but in reality, once it affected him, then he said, okay, well, now it's time to come out. Once he was thrown out of the game, that's when he decided to speak up. So here's the rest of the story. I'll get into that in a few minutes. Um, And, uh, you know... Phil gave me some rules. One of them was you got to give a 30-minute warning. I was up for like 24 hours, and I said, I'm going to play a couple more rounds. And Phil says, will you play 30 more minutes? I said, okay. I played an hour, and the next day Phil kicked me out because I didn't follow the rule of a 30-minute warning, even though he he said he didn't have to ask me. Now, it's a little bit ticky-tack, but you guys got to understand, Phil, uh, I take full responsibility for that. Now, that was um, three weeks ago. And it was uh, it's kind of confusing. <laughs> it sounded like he played more than 30 minutes from what he said there is he was given the 30 minute warning and played like an hour something and then quit. Now, maybe what happened was he gave a 30 minute warning and then kept playing way past the 30 minutes, then abruptly quit. Maybe that's what he means. And you may wonder, why does that matter? What What is a 30 minute warning? Well, when you're playing in a shorthanded game and, uh, either the heads up or three-handed or four-handed, when there is a belief that one player leaving is going to cause the whole game to break, not necessarily because the player is a fish, but maybe because the remaining people don't want to play that short. Maybe maybe people don't want to play heads up. Maybe uh, people don't want to play three-handed. So they just they, they want another body in the game, and if that body leaves, then the game's over. So in order to prevent a hit-and-run thing from occurring... There's kind of a gentleman's agreement in live poker. This doesn't apply to online. Online people just bolt, and that's the way it goes. But in live poker, there's kind of a gentleman's agreement that people make when a game is short that uh, they're going to give each other such and such time warning before they quit. And it's kind of like a, a discussion that breaks out. So as the game gets short, people start saying, okay, well, are all of you going to continue? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, um, okay, can we all give each other a 20-minute warning before any of us quits? And you just pull that number out of your ass. You just say, okay, is everybody okay with this? Yes, 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 okay. And then everybody agrees that uh, before they quit, they will give a warning. And this prevents a, a hit-and-run situation where someone uh, wins a few big hands and gets up and leaves and pisses everybody off. Now, is it unfair to get up and leave? No. It, you you can get up and leave any time, technically. And there's, it's not against the card room rules. Nothing will happen to you. But it will piss off other players, and, and you'll be considered an asshole if you do it, especially if you've agreed not to. So uh, that's the general etiquette in a card room, is if the game goes short and it, you, you agree with people, you're not going to... You, it's better to establish it first rather than just leaving. It's better to, as it's getting short, to say, hey... Uh, are we going to give each other a warning here? How are we going to do this? And uh, then come up with something and then stick to it. And I've been in that situation before, and I stick to it. And uh, as long as people stick to it, if they say, okay, I'm leaving 30 minutes, and they leave in 30 minutes, you know, no matter what the situation is at that point, you can't accuse them of hitting and running because they've given the warning. So I think what Mattis is saying here is he gave the 30-minute warning, stayed for substantially longer than 30 minutes, and then just abruptly left. And that 
Phil kicked him out technically for that reason and that uh, Mattisau was not happy about that. And that's what led to him bringing up the issues he had with Scott Ball and Phil Helmuth's protection of him. It's three weeks later, and, you know, Phil likes to always tell me about, oh, I'm doing this in the game, I'm winning all this in the game. I'm like, well, when am I going to be back in the game? And he's like, no, you're never allowed back in the game. I'm like, why? He's like, oh, because of the back. Back in the day when we called you 20 times, you'd always fucking break rules and make things up that you didn't do it. Well, the truth of the matter is he keeps going back to the past when um, Scammer Boy, Scott Ball, was uh, running the game. And what was happening is, you know, going to the whole story of everything is we had a game. We were playing. It started in March. In about the middle of April, Phil brings Scott Ball into this game. And uh, I told Phil there's something about him that's not right. Um, I didn't. Th- I said, I, I think this guy's broke. I don't think he has money. And uh, the next thing you know, Phil's like saying, oh, he's a multi-million dollar of a big CEO of a big corporation. I'm like, yeah, Phil, bullshit. You know, and, uh, you know, he started... The thing was, is back in the day, he, he just started calling Phil and making up things uh, to me, to him about me. I broke a couple rules and I got kicked out. Uh, always friction because Scott would always go to Phil saying I said something when I didn't say it. And he'd make up things because uh, he wanted me out of the game because I was the best player and uh, by far. And I was the biggest winner and, and, and Scott wanted to make money. Um so, uh, you know, I don't want to really get into, like, the whole story, but this guy was doing everything he could to destroy me and destroy mine and Phil's relationship by making up things. Because Phil was only playing, like, an hour a day. Um, and it got to the point in about the 1st of June where all the people in the game got kind of sick of playing with Scott, and they called me on the phone, and we wanted to start our own game. Uh, so we... Because Scott was turned our game from a 5-10-20 game into a 20-40 game. So we went from a 5-10-20 with a 20K buy-in to a 20-40 game with an 80K buy-in. And uh, it was just ridiculous. And I just said that this guy was just trying to win all the money. He he had a guy um, who was an accountant, right? They asked him if he could uh, we could hire his accountant and pay him a 1000 bucks a week. Which we did, and about a week later, the guy's sitting in the game buying in for twenty thousand, and they're both sitting in the game starting the game. So I'm like, "What's what's what's going on here?" You know, I'm like, "These guys are playing together." And it- also, why are you paying an accountant a thousand dollars a week? What, what's this accountant doing? Why do you need an accountant there? <laughs> what? You you can't just get a spreadsheet to keep track of the buy-ins and the cash-outs and whatever. Like you you need an accountant for a thousand dollars a week? Crazy. As it turns out, they were, um, and. Uh, so um, everybody wanted to start the new game. We start the new 10-20 game. Uh goes for about six weeks. Uh, Scott proceeded to um, to uh, be calling people that were in the 10-20 game and to get them to play in his game. And before you know it, we couldn't keep the game going anymore. And Scott had basically taken the entire Helmuth game with permission from Phil and all the players, and I was no longer allowed to play. Why was I no longer allowed to play? Because I called out him for what he is in front of a lot of people. I said, this guy's a scammer. He's a thief. And, and he, he fucking has people ghosting his account. 
um, I called him. I saw what he was. I said, he's broke. He has no money. He makes up shit. And cause I knew what he was saying about me. And so, um, uh, the next six months, I, you know, I had to deal with Phil talking about, Oh, how great Scott game is. I go, Phil, it's not Scott's game. It's your game that he took all the players and he's fucking and he's, you know, whatever. But then like four months went by and I'm like, well, maybe I'm wrong about this guy. I'm going to, I'm going to go over, say hello to him, you know, tell him I got no hard feelings. And, uh, then I was just going to, uh, you know, push it under the rug and, uh, move forward. Cause that's what I do. You know, I'm not, I don't like to hold grudges against people. Went and saw him and, uh, about two weeks before the colossal bullshit came out, you know, I was like, really good friends with them. I was, we were on good terms. And even though in the back of my mind, I kept thinking, well, I know what I think this guy is, you know, but you know, maybe you're wrong, Mike. It's not like you've been right, wrong, right before. So, um, that's how we got to that point, um, into December. But, you know, before I get to that point, I just want everyone to know that Phil, like I said, is one of my closest friends. Phil is not, it will never steal a quarter from anybody um, but what I got mad at Phil was is the fact that I believed that he was protecting him and consistently bashing me to make sure I can't play in the game. I'm like, Phil, how many times do I have to tell you this guy made shit up about me? You know, and uh, you know how people know how stubborn Phil is. So Are you crazy, Phil? Yeah. So we got in a, a big fight and he's like, you can't play in the game again and and you're out for life. And so I got real upset and I was, and I started tweeting. I'm like, you know, you take criminals over your friends. You take, and I'm going to get to that point in a minute. You take people who, who feet steal over your friends. Um, you don't know who your real friends are. That makes you complicit. And, you know, I said mean things and, and I was completely wrong. So I just want you all to know the first thing before I get into the whole story of, Mr. Criminal fucking thief, scummy fuck Scott Ball, um, <clears throat> is, uh, I, um, I shouldn't have took it out on Phil, you know, because I was, I was really hurt because of, uh, what, what this man did to me over a seven month period of time. And I felt like now you want to kick me out for something that happened six months ago that, that Scott made up shit about me. And so I felt like he was taking his side and that's what really hurt me. So that's what goes from there. So, um, so now we, we go in in December. Um, me and, uh, Scott are uh, getting along pretty good. No problem. And I, and, uh, we start talking about restarting the Helmuth game. You know, maybe we, you know, I had a bunch of people. We we're going to play 10 20, whatever. And, uh, but nothing really comes of it. Yeah. People are asking who Scott Ball is. Oh, um, oh, you ask who Scott Ball is? Well, uh, he used to run Twitch poker. He, um, he's now the president, I guess, of Endgame Talent. Uh, but there's a, you know, there's a lot, I don't know, a lot of people want, you know, I basically wanted to talk about, uh, you know, what kind of happened. And so I get this call, uh, I think it was about, uh, uh, December 19th or 20th. And they're like, everybody's tech, my whole phone blows up, right? And they're like, 
dude, everything you said about him is true. He's a scammer. He took everybody's money and blew it all and gambled it away. And then he cheated in this poker game. And he put a bunch of people in the game where he was sharing all the whole cards with them and and I'm like, you gotta be kidding me, right? And everybody's like, how'd you know? How'd you know he was a scammer? How'd you know he was a thief? How'd you know all these things? And I'm just like, well, I mean, I'm a professional poker player. I'm playing with a guy eight hours a day. He's playing 10, 20, seven o'clock at night till three in the morning, never taking a hand off for a piss. I'm like, this doesn't seem like a guy that's worth millions of dollars that owns a company that's worth millions of dollars or whatever. And um, and I know what he kept saying to Phil. Phil would call me on the phone. Oh, Scott said you did this. Scott said you did that. I'm like, dude, I never did any of that. It's a lie. And and listen, in all fairness, I just want people to know, Phil is a very trusting and caring person. And Phil got hurt way more than I did because um, Phil trusted him to run his games. Phil trusted him with giving phone numbers from his rich friends. Phil trusted him completely. And it, as it turns out, um, I ended up being right, and the guy was just a scammer that was, I mean, was, <laughs> he took all these people's money, just everything he said, like when I got in and I got kicked out of the game in May, like, like don't everybody invest with this guy, he's a scammer, he's a fucking piece of shit. I knew what he was, I could see right through it, and he ended up, like, getting, like, Phil's friends to invest, like, 900K, and he took the whole money blew it all gambling uh he played he played uh petraglio and jason coon three-handed lost four hundred thousand of it you know this guy's living the high life on other people's money why he did whatever he could to make sure i was out of the game wow so pretty serious accusations right there already saying that this uh guy took nine hundred thousand for a a business investment then used it to play poker and lost three-handed against very good players of course uh you know these are mike's Claims. I don't have any independent verification as to uh, whether or not these are true. I'm playing this from his uh, mouthpiece podcast, so take it with a grain of salt. These are claims that uh, Mr. Mattisauer are making. Uh, I, I do not know if they are correct or incorrect, but uh, as I will tell you later in the segment, others spoke out about uh, Scott Ball and uh, didn't have very nice things to say about him, so I... Can't imagine that this uh, Scott Ball is a very good person from what I'm hearing, but uh, let's go on with what Mattisau had to say. And now, when I told everybody what the guy was, people want, uh, you know, I felt vindicated, you know. I felt vindicated, but but not vindicated. In other words, I, I was upset that I was right, okay, but I was also upset that all these people could have avoided losing all this money, uh that they invested and you know um you know phil got one of the big fight me and phil got into and again phil's a great person i don't any i take back anything i'll ever say negative because you know phil got hurt really bad himself but you know you know it's like i'm like phil if you just would have listened to me i would have been in the game for another five months maybe made a couple hundred thousand more and your friends wouldn't have got fucked for 1.5 or 1.6 million 1.8 million whatever the fuck it was and uh, he's like, "Oh, all you care about yourself, you would have made more money." I'm like, and you're, you're, you know, I'm still got. I'm like, Phil, what are you talking about? I'm fucking trying. I was trying to protect you because I knew if this motherfucker, if I was right about this guy, that this, that this would come out, and um, and I didn't want uh, 
I didn't want uh, Phil's name to be dragged through the mud. Like, hey, you, you introduced me to this guy. I invested in all this money, and he scammed me for it. Who's going to take the blame? Phil is. You know, so I was trying to protect him. So, um, you know, the bottom line is, is uh, as it ends up, turns out this guy, all the money that, got, that the guy got to invest in his company, he blew it all gambling. Uh, and then um, his assistant, um, who was in the game that I told you about that, that we were paying a 1000 a week, um, uh, he ended up uh, outing Scott for all the shit he was doing because this guy was actually playing in the game with Scott, and they were literally uh, getting in the game, being on the phone, sharing cards, uh, talking about what they had. Uh, they even had uh, they had uh, uh, all kinds of situations where they would uh, they would tell us horses when to bet, when to call, when to fold, when to raise. And they end up, uh, his horses win 550 in that game, and uh, Scott wins 347. So it comes to about uh, like 897. I don't know how much of it he actually cheated, but we'll say like 700 of it. They're talking about thousand, not not dollars, but thousands of dollars, 897,000. Um, in case you're wondering how they can be on the phone while they're playing a game, and how people don't hear them talk, he's referring to an online game. These are online home games they're running. So that you may not have understood that. I didn't state that earlier, but that's what he's talking about. And uh, that's why he's complaining about ghosting, meaning somebody else using Scott's account. And uh, also about this alleged collusion between uh, Scott and his friend uh, when they were in the game together. Um, and so this gets exposed. And, uh, you know, my... Um, uh, my uh, my buddy uh, Marcus Gonzalez, who has a really good rep in the poker world, he's actually the one that kind of exposed this um, because he was playing. He knew something was wrong. He knew people were ghosting on the account, um, and then uh, uh, they uh, Scott was actually taking an extra twenty thousand uh, five thousand a week out of the game without anybody knowing either, uh, and uh, they got caught. They, they kind of uh, this is how it all got exposed. And the sick part about it is like, you know, I was talking with Marcus. He's told me he knew in five days what a scammer and a fucking piece of shit this guy was. And, um, you know, I, the thing is, is the reason why I, I went public here with this is this man did whatever he could to keep me out of a game for making a living. By making up things to Phil Helmuth, and then when he when we started our own game, he called Phil's guys, called everybody, did everything he could to sabotage it so Phil could say, "See, I told you your own game wouldn't work," you know, and uh, refused to let me play in it because anybody who was good he couldn't let play because he had his own guys in there that he was busy cheating with. Let me stop it right here. I mean, I guess the honesty is refreshing, but <laughs> what Mattisau is basically saying here is, I wouldn't have said anything about all this. I, I would not have exposed this. It was because they kicked me out of the damn game. I couldn't make a living anymore. Not now. I've got to expose it. <laughs> so he's he's not taking a high minded approach here. He's not saying, "Hey, I had to tell you guys about it to save everybody money." He was like, "Yeah, well, you know, I, I had to expose the whole thing because you guys kicked me out and wouldn't let me back in." So. Since I can't make a living anymore, uh, time for me to tell you about what's going on there. And, um, you know, that's the whole story. So uh, that's the whole Scott Ball story. Um, 
I just want people to, to understand that I, um, there was a point where, I mean, there's other things too, like his, one of his main, um, guys that in his company, a guy named Phil Nagy, guy runs ACR. I mean, guy was drunk one night and Scott played him with his two horses three handed and beat him for 270,000. I mean, the guy who he's getting all his money from, the guy who's his main source of income with his company, he fucking cheats out of 270,000. Like, who does this shit? You know what I mean? And, um, listen, I ended up being right. And, you know, the point is, is what got me upset with Phil and I was wrong. I should have understood that Phil was just as hurt of what had happened. And Phil's way of dealing with it is just keeping it quiet and letting it go. Um, and so he didn't want to go public with it. And me, I felt, uh, I took it the wrong way. I felt like he was protecting him over me, which is why I tweeted out, um, your, why do you protect criminals over your friends? Why do you protect people who are scammers and criminals over your friends? So that's what it really was. I felt hurt that he wasn't backing me on the situation for being right. Yeah, so okay, if you want to hear the rest of this, you can go to this uh, episode 60, Judgment Day of the Mouthpiece with Mike Matisau. It's uh, an episode that's uh, one hour, 35 minutes long. I paid you, played you the first, uh, not the first, I, I think I started like 10 minutes in or something, but I stopped at the 25-minute mark, so you can hear the rest if you want. But you, you get the idea. He... Drop the main accusations there in the segment I played. And uh, Phil and Mike made up on uh, January 21st. Phil wrote, I know you get emotional, Mike, and I know you have a good heart. Hashtag uh, positivity. And uh, Doug Polk chimed in January 23rd. Lots of talk from Mike Matisau about Scott Ball. I just want to say my experience with Scott Ball is a complete piece of shit. He would call me to talk shit about uh, Jamie Staples and Tonka P. Tonka P is a Twitter user. I'm forgetting his real name. Uh, back in the day, he ran Twitch, Twitch Poker. He would lie all the time about everything. Then, uh, yeah, that's his name. But Parker Talbot is uh, Tonka P. So Tonka P then wrote, uh, confirmed struggle to find even a single positive thing to say about the guy, referring to Scott Ball. Used to regularly talk shit about people to me also. Always knew to take everything he'd say with a grain of salt. He uh, definitely is not liked or trusted by anyone in poker that I've seen. I, I didn't see anyone take up for Scott Ball, who's respected, and say, no, 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 he's cool, he's a great guy, you can totally trust him. Like, like no, Nobody, from what I could see, came out and said that. Nobody was uh, defending him. In case you're wondering what this endgame talent is, uh, Endgame Talent, uh, quote, focuses on digital marketing and working with poker sites, among other clients. I don't know how successful it is, but he apparently, according to Mike Matisau, he postured himself as this uh, already successful multimillionaire. And uh, Mike is saying that's not true. And Mike was saying he's a scammer. So... I think the bigger story here was that the, between him and Helmuth and the argument they had back and forth where he was saying that uh, Helmuth was protecting a scammer over him. I saw all that go down. Then uh, Mike deleted a bunch of his tweets. 
And as I already mentioned, they're friends again. Now, what about the things he's saying about Helmuth? That Helmuth has a big heart. Helmuth uh, trusts people too much. That Helmuth is a great guy. Is this really true? Remember, Helmuth is the guy who's accused of keeping quiet about the whole UB thing and letting people get ripped off on UB and continuing to promote UB until almost when it went down. And I've had issues with Helmuth for a long time over that. Um, I do kind of believe, Mike, in a way, that Helmuth doesn't like confrontation, which is strange if you think about it. One of the most obnoxious guys at the table who uh, makes a big scene there and bashes people for how they play and, 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 and criticizes people and, and mutters about how everybody being donkeys and all that. Like, how can that be someone who doesn't like confrontation? Well, when it comes to serious matters, it kind of seems like he doesn't. And from my own personal experience with Phil, where uh, even when I talk trash to him at the poker table at the World Series, uh, he attempts to get to get me to like him he he will attempt to talk me into understanding that this is just an act that this is just him this is just uh um he doesn't really mean it and uh I, when he does this i think why does phil helmuth give a crap if i like him or dislike him he's a way bigger name in poker than i am and you know i'm a nobody compared to him in poker and he knows that and i know that so why does he care what i think so much and uh, the the thing is, he has this drive inside of him to be liked by anyone with like even a small amount of influence. If I was a complete nobody, he wouldn't care. But he knows I'm above that. He knows I'm someone people know in poker. I'm someone that some people listen to in poker. And even though I don't have nearly the notoriety or audience that he does, and probably never will, uh, he still it still upsets him to think about me uh, disliking him and, and thinking bad things about him and saying bad things about him. And and he's expressed it to me on various occasions, Phil Helmuth, when I played with him. Um, so I, I think this kind of goes along with that, that Phil, uh, if something happens like this, and I think you can even extend this to UB, he kind of just doesn't want to be part of it. He doesn't want to get involved. He kind of just wants to slink out of it and not deal with it. So I, I can kind of believe what Mike is saying about him, that even if Phil felt that he got ripped off, that he did not want to create a scene over it. And that uh, Mike took that as him choosing, quote, the scammer over him, when in reality it was probably Phil just taking the path of least resistance. That's actually kind of believable from what I know of, of Phil Helmuth. So... Uh, Kind of an interesting story from that standpoint. We kind of get a view into the dynamic of the friendship with Phil Helmuth and how Phil Helmuth acts when these type of controversies come up. And I start to think about how this uh, ties in with my own knowledge about Phil's uh, interactions with me and and with with his whole UB situation. I've always wondered with Phil, like, what was he thinking as all the UB stuff went down? Did he believe it? Did he partially believe it? Did he kind of just not want to deal with it? Uh, was he much more guilty than it appeared? And when the whole thing was over, I kind of got the idea that he just really was wishing it wasn't happening and just didn't want to deal with it, which is not an excuse. But he didn't do what Annie Duke did, which was basically come out and dismiss those that were concerned. He didn't defend Yubi. He just, he just kind of kept quiet and kept quietly promoting them. 
which I didn't agree with and didn't like at all, and a lot of people probably played UB and lost money and got cheated because he was promoting it and they didn't know better about the, all the scandals that were going on. And I'm talking about post-scandal, not uh, pre-scandal. I, I do believe pre-scandal, Phil didn't know anything. In fact, uh, even on one of those tapes that got released by uh, Travis McCarr, uh, it was said on one of those tapes that Phil didn't know what was going on. So I believe Phil did not know about the cheating and did not cheat. Uh, but once the cheating all came out, he continued promoting UB for another uh, two-plus years, and, and I didn't like that. And I still don't like that. I'm not going to make any excuses for it. But I do think it was more along the lines of, oh, I don't want to deal with this. Uh, this like, and I, I, I own a piece of this, and what do I do? And you know what? I'm just, I'm just going to ignore this. I'm just going to pretend it's not happening. He, he put his head in the sand. He was an ostrich. And that's not good. I'm not saying that's right. But... I, I don't really think it came from a place of greed or evil, but more of just a, a path of least resistance, which he tends to like to do. And I, I think some of this plays into Phil's, what I believe is a narcissistic personality disorder. I, I think Phil kind of lives in a bubble where everything is about him. Everything has, he only cares about things that directly have to do with him. And uh, that's kind of how he operates. That's how he views the world. So he doesn't really think about who else is getting screwed by UB. He thinks about, well, how do I uh, get around this having an effect on me? It's not that he doesn't care. It's not that he like wants people to get scammed or lose money. It's just he, he doesn't even really see it. What he sees is, okay, how does this affect me and, and how do I maneuver around it? So that's kind of what he's about from what I've observed. I don't know him super well. I, I've never spent any time socially with Phil Helmuth. I may not ever, <laughs> unless I happen to be in a setting where it's uh, me, him, and a few others. I, I can't picture me and Phil ever go hang out uh, individually together. Uh, I, I guess I could picture I could be invited somewhere where it's a small group of people and he happens to be one of them. But uh, just from my observations of various things, that's the read I get from him. I mean, keep in mind, this is someone who, after winning, I think it was his ninth bracelet, did laps around the Bellagio just so people would see him and say, hey, Phil, I heard you won your ninth bracelet. Great job. He walked around and around and around for hours just to run into people to congratulate him. I'm like, who does that? But that's Phil Helmuth. Strange guy. Like, some of what you see is an act, but some of it is really him. Like, he's he's not making the stuff up. He's just vocalizing how he's feeling at the table and knows he can because that's kind of his trademark. So it's not even really an act. And uh, I, I have fun with it. When I'm with him at the table, I'll talk trash to him. Even if he's not doing it to me. Like, if he just... I won't just start up usually. If it's like he's being quiet, I'll be quiet with him. But if he's talking shit to people at the table, then I'll start talking shit to him. And I've done it a few times. And I'm like the only one who will do it, too. It's like, like all the recreational players are terrified to do it. They're like, "Oh my god, that's Phil Helmuth. I can't, I can't talk to Phil Helmuth that way." And you know, I just see him as like a peer. He, he's a much more famous peer than I am, but he's still a peer in poker. He's, you know, I'm a poker pro. He's a poker pro. So that's, that's how I see it. I don't see it like he's some royalty. I have to be afraid to insult. Uh, and I also know he's not going to. Uh, there's not going to be any consequence for doing this. It's not like he he's not going to 
deck me at the table. He's not going to tell me to meet him outside uh, for, for a fight. He, he's not going to do anything to me anywhere else. It, it, it's just like a, a fun thing. He's talking trash to people that I, I get involved and do it too, and, and he and he deserves it. That's what I do. I, I don't even hate him while I'm doing it. I just uh, I, I sometimes think he's being rude and being an asshole, uh, and, and it's fun to deal him and watch him go off. But uh, there's very few people who will do it. Even even other pros don't usually do it. They all, they all have this like intimidation, and it's weird. It's weird how there's like a lot of people intimidated by Phil Helmuth who aren't even like recreational players. I understand the recreational players not wanting to start up with one of the biggest names in the game. It's kind of one of these things where they they figure that it's not their place to do. They they kind of feel like you know who am I a recreational player to talk trash to a huge name in the game, even if the guy's being a jerk. But uh, I feel I can, because uh, I have been part of the game as a pro for two decades. I don't have to be as famous as Phil Helmuth or anywhere near that. Anyway, interesting situation there. And I I watched it unfold. I got to see all the tweets. I should have captured them. I meant to capture them. I was busy with... uh, uh, not really so much busy, but I was, like, this was going down, I think, the day of my colonoscopy and the day before the colonoscopy and the day after the colonoscopy. And, like, I was either prepping for the colonoscopy, doing the colonoscopy, or recovering. Like, the, like the day of the colonoscopy and the day after, I was super tired. I slept a whole lot those two days. So I really didn't have the energy to start screen capturing all this stuff, and then I lost some things. And I, I had a feeling that that might happen. I just didn't. I just didn't have the energy to do it. I just wanted to relax. I think it's pretty much past now. I think there will probably be less trust of this Scott Ball because this got some attention since uh, Mike Matisau brought it up and dragged Helmuth into it. So all the followers on Twitter of Matisau and Helmuth, who has even more followers than Matisau, uh, got to see this. So I, I have a feeling Scott Ball, if he was guilty of the things he was being accused, I think it's going to be harder for him to pull this off now. I think that... Uh, that cat is now out of the bag. So maybe it's a good thing. If uh, Madison's accusations are true, it is a good thing that uh, that was brought out. Okay, so uh, I'm going to talk about somebody else who is uh, accused of doing a bad thing. Dan Bekovac. Remember Dan Bekovac? He was the one who was in charge of the Midway Poker Tour. And the Midway Poker Tour had an ugly situation that occurred a few months ago in Chicago where uh, people were paid in silver for, uh, in like silver coins, I think gold also, for uh, winning a poker tournament. But then they weren't even paid in full. And they were not paid in the proper amount of coins that they should have been. So they were shorted. Those that did get paid got shorted because they weren't given enough. The the coins were overvalued, and that was on purpose. Then also they just outright didn't pay a number of people. So there's a lot of people got shorted by this whole thing. And it was brought out on uh, Poker Fraud Alert on 2 Plus 2 in uh, October. In fact, a, a member of our site was, was one of the victims. It wasn't one of the top finishers, but did finish in the money. Uh, Chad Holloway of Poker News did a great article on the whole thing back in October. Uh, Chad was actually there for it and was reporting on the uh, on the tournament 
uh, Poker News was actually paid to be there and report on this. But despite the fact that Poker News was being paid and Chad was working in official capacity for Poker News, to his credit, he was not a shill. Chad Holloway, who is who's an ethical guy, I, I I really like Chad Holloway. He's he's a great poker reporter. He's an ethical guy. He uh, yeah, you can believe what he says. He doesn't screw around. And so he was not going to take the attitude of okay, well we're paid to be here, so I'm not going to talk shit. I'm just going to write a puff piece for them. No, he didn't. He did the opposite. He was there and said, okay, I'm going to do investigative reporting, and he he jumped right on it and started. Uh, an investigative report from right there. He even took pictures of what was going on there. Very good report. He ended up writing an article on Poker News about it. So, so good job, uh, Chad Holloway. I said that at the time. I still say that today. Well, Chad Holloway was also the one to break the recent story about uh, Dan Bekovac, who still owed uh, about $50,000 to people who uh, hadn't been made whole by this whole thing, either people who got shorted by the coin payments or people who just uh, outright weren't paid at all were paid only a very uh, small percentage. At the time when this happened in October, Dan promised he's going to make people whole very soon. He even posted a screenshot of someone he was discussing this with that uh, he instantly paid them $900 after they were shorted $900. And that was to give everyone an example that he's in the process of paying everybody. But this was uh, just for show. He paid one person who was only owed $900 and then uh, barely paid anybody else. A few of the smaller winners also got paid later, but uh, most of them did not. And the the bigger winners, the ones that made the final table, got screwed. So I think about $50,000 was shorted. At at one point, by the way, the coins that were given out, and nobody knew they were going to be paid in coins. That was another thing that... uh, Surprised everybody. But the, the coins that were given out, some people were suspected they were fake. It turned out they were not fake, but people just got shorted. So anyway, that's all old stuff. You can listen to an episode we had in early October about this, if you want to hear that whole story. The newer information on January 22nd, Chad Holloway tweeted, I get asked often about Midway Poker Tour payout update. <coughs> Still about 50K in missing value, and many players... Yet to be made whole. Founder Dan Bekovac said he'd make it right in October, then disappeared and ghosted players. Ghosted meaning that they just stopped responding to them, which is exactly what I thought would happen. This weekend, he decided to play the $1,100 Grand Falls event. So he decided that, screw everybody, I'm just going to put $1,100 into playing a poker tournament. Pretty bad. So he just didn't give a shit. He just decided he's moving on. And he, he has a lot of bad history behind him. All kinds of alleged scams involving him before this. This is not a guy with a stellar rep who screwed up once. This was a guy who uh, it went from one hustle, one scam to another. And I knew it. I knew when he didn't have the money to pay up front. And he claimed he's going to make them whole very soon, and this wasn't a matter of lack of funding, but it was that uh, they were surprised by uh, certain requirements by Chicago about the way they could pay people, and he'll make them whole very soon. I knew when he was making certain people whole on the bottom, it was just a matter of buying time. He was probably looking for investments into his uh, his poker tour and all the usual schemes people use to get back money they stole from the event. Because this is what happens. A lot of these poker tours, even if they're taking place in reputable venues, a lot of these are run by shady individuals who uh, will 
take the buy-in money and pocket it and use it for other things, and then they have trouble paying the winners. This has happened before. This is not the first poker tour this has happened to. Uh, Look at that uh, one in Aruba where something similar occurred. So uh, I knew when a few days passed and all the bigger winners were not made whole and he didn't show any proof that he had the money, I knew they weren't going to get paid. And sure enough, they did not. He was just buying time and then disappeared on them. So uh, I don't know, had he won this event, which he didn't, he didn't cash in this, but had he won this event, would he have paid people? That may be some, but it's not like, I don't think he took the $1,100 to sit down and play, say, okay, I'm playing for you guys. Uh, He was hoping he wouldn't be recognized, and in fact, he had a big mask over his face, which... He, I guess he was hoping he wouldn't be recognized because uh, it's okay to play with a mask now. You, you have to play with a mask, so if you're trying to hide from everybody, then maybe you can get away with it. So he was hoping that wearing this big blue mask over his face, like it's a really big mask. It's a, yes, you have to wear a mask, but it, it is covering his entire face from the middle of his nose down. So I'm surprised anyone recognized him, but someone did. I don't know if Chad did or if someone told Chad about it, but there's a picture of him playing, and he uh, busted out of the event and did not make it right. Never made it right for these people, and I don't think he ever will. Someone uh, messaged him when they heard about this the next day, on January 23rd. Where's that 50K? Must be out in Iowa trying to win the money to pay people what they're owed. Fucking scum, someone wrote to him on Facebook. He wrote back, I'm sorry, are you some relevant person I'm supposed to give two shits about? It's a very defiant... It's not even like he said, "Hey, you know, no, I was. I'm sorry. I, I, yeah, I don't have the money, but I'm trying to make it back. That's why I was there." For. Like he didn't even try to explain. He's like, "Yeah, why should I care about you? Are you relevant? Do you matter?" That's basically what he's saying in response to that. Very defiant. You know, in the old school days of poker, decades ago, before I got involved, if you did shit like this, there there could be bad results you would probably take a a pretty harsh beating, or worse. And uh, while some of the tactics from back in those days I don't agree with, uh, I will say that there's certain people these days I kind of wish it was like the old days. The people who just outright scam and steal from the community and just flaunt it in people's face and just assume that nothing's going to happen, and often nothing does. And that's really too bad the uh, get away with this and aside from the reputation don't face any consequence and it's pretty bad that people these days can just flaunt it in person without a problem I would give you an update on this but I don't think we'll have much of an update I think the update's going to be Dan Bekovac continues playing poker tournaments here and there and loses and doesn't give a shit and is never going to pay anybody I'd be shocked if anyone gets any money from the Midway Poker Tour at this point, now that it's been several months. The farther we get away from it, the less likely he's going to pay anybody. So, Once he believes that his reputation has been irreparably harmed and paying people back, it's, it's not going to gain him anything. If he already thinks everybody believes he's shady and that they'll never trust him again anyway, he's not going to pay them. He has no guilt. He doesn't care. Okay, so moving on. I'll give you an update about uh, the Kristen Ting situation. It's a pretty interesting story, and we talked about it on a recent show. It was at the end of December. I believe we were the only show that covered it. It was uh, 
something that Alan Kessler brought out. I think he has a friendship with uh, Kristen Ting. I don't really know her. I, th- I think I've seen her around, but uh, she's a, a middle-aged Asian woman. And uh, in this story, which again, I told on the show back in late December, and she has a GoFundMe for this story. She has been taking care of a young child, which is not hers, since, uh, I think, uh, 2014, something like that. And it is the child of her ex-boyfriend. What happened was, what she claimed, was that her ex-boyfriend didn't know that he had a kid from a one-night stand, and then one day, her... uh, the mother of that child ended up in jail and uh, Child Protective Services or some government agency like that contacted him and said, hey, uh, you don't know this, but you have a kid. It was from a woman you dated at one point briefly and uh, you have a kid and the kid's in very bad shape and is way behind for his age and the mother has had a lot of problems and she's in jail now and we need you to take this kid. And that he did, but that he was living with uh, Kristen at the time, and that she welcomed this boy into her home, that the boy had, uh, as I said, he was behind developmentally, and uh, that Kristen worked with him and treated him as if he were her son. She doesn't have any kids, and uh, I believe she's past the age that this could happen. I don't know why she never had kids. Maybe she just never got married, whatever. But uh, she was happy to have a child in her life, even if it's one not uh, biologically related to her or or even legally her child. And she worked with this child who was way behind developmentally and helped him get closer and closer to normalcy. So at this point, the boy is like uh, seven years old. And uh, the boy is very close to her and loves her and kind of knows her as mom because he was like I don't know, two years old when the mom uh, was out of his life. I, I, the mom still was able to see him and, and supervise visits, but really he barely – he didn't see the mother that much. He, he really got to know Kristen more as the mom than his natural biological mom. Uh, it says in this GoFundMe – that in the last two years, she's only seen him on 17 occasions. And you can think, oh, that's a lot of occasions. That's actually not. In two years to see him 17 times, her own son, is is very little. So he's seen Kristen every single day. So uh, in 2020, after six years not being in the mom's care, the mom decided that she wanted the kid back. The mom claimed that she got her life together, that she got off drugs, that she uh, had some financial stability, that she was fully capable at that point, the mom claimed, to raise this boy named Jaden and wanted him back and basically was saying that uh, Kristen has no right to keep him. Now, you may say, well, what about the father? Well, what had happened was prior to this, Uh, The father and Kristen had broken up. And uh, even though the relationship ended, the father actually voluntarily left the kid with Kristen and said, hey, I think you're better at raising him than I am, so 
I give you permission to be the guardian of this kid. That was in 2019. So a year later, after the boyfriend had left, um, Kristen was raising this boy herself, and neither parent was in the picture, even though both parents were alive and not in jail, which is very unusual. But then in 2020, the mom wanted the kid back, and the question became, should she get the kid back? Number one, should she, from a moral standpoint, get the kid back? Ignoring the legal issues, does she deserve the kid back after she lost the kid for being a horribly irresponsible parent and getting arrested and, and not and neglecting the kid and the kid having all kinds of developmental problems because of her? Like, does she deserve a second chance even if she has reformed herself, especially because it could recur and the kid's doing very well under Kristen's care? So on one hand, the boy's probably better off with Kristen as his new parent, who's pretty much been the parent to him his, most of his life anyway, or should the biological mother get the kid back if she is capable of taking care of him because, after all, it is her kid? You can't just take someone's kid because you would be a better parent. There are a lot of crappy parents out there. You can't just go knock on their door and say, hey, you're a crappy parent. I can prove you're a crappy parent. I'm just taking your kid because I'd be a great parent. Even that's true, you don't have a right to do that. You can't just take someone's kid and uh, even if it's the truth that you do a better job raising the kid, you have no right. It is not your kid. So that's basically what the mother is asserting. I can take care of him now. I'm better. It's my kid. I should be able to do this. And Kristen's asserting, look, you were out of his life for six years. And uh, uh, you were barely around. I did all the work. I'm the one who got him back into being uh, very close to normal. I undid all the damage you did. I don't want him back with you, and you're going to re-damage him. You, you, you may go back to the way you were, even if you're okay right now. How do we know a year from now you're not going to be a disaster? So uh, uh, it's not healthy for the kid to now put him back with you and tear him away from me. So it, it's kind of a tough one. Morally and, and legally, I... I as I said back last month, I, it looked like that the mother probably had a much better legal standing because she's still the mother. And uh, if she had greatly improved her own situation, it's hard to legally justify why the kid should not go back to her. So uh, that was a legal battle. And there was a GoFundMe set up by Alan Kessler for Kristen. And uh, that was about a month ago. Chad Holloway, who I mentioned in the last segment, helped promote this and said at the time on December 20th, while Alan Kessler and I like to poke fun at each other from time to time, I want to set that aside and encourage you to support this GoFundMe. I've known Kristen Ting for a long time and have seen firsthand how great of a mom she is. Help me if you can and share if you're willing. So Chad Holloway gave a big thumbs up to that. Now, I will say, without knowing Kristen Ting, without knowing the situation, I believe she did a great job raising the kid and getting him back on track. I think she was very loving. I think that everything she claimed about everything she did is true. I think she probably didn't exaggerate. But the question still remains, should the mom get the kid back? Now, why am I rehashing this a month later? Well, a new development. On January 26th, the mom spoke out. The mom spoke out on a January 8th post that Alan Kessler made about the situation, again, promoting the GoFundMe. And the mom of the kid named Kaylee Marie, probably first and middle name, she doesn't put her last name, Kaylee Marie on Facebook, she showed up on Alan Kessler's Facebook 
and uh, attacked Alan, telling him to take this GoFundMe down and take the whole thing down. That is none of his business. So she showed up and wrote, take this down now. This is my son, and you're exploiting a minor. And my custody case, along with a bunch of lies. This is not even a battle. He's my son. He belongs with his mother, not a fictive caregiver. I think she means a, a fictitious caregiver. She's not the best writer. You can tell, like, as I read this to you, you'll hear that uh, a lot of run-on sentences, and this is someone who probably doesn't have a deep educational background, but uh, nevertheless, I was able to understand what she was trying to say. Well, some guy named Nicholas J. Sam, just some random, said to Alan, uh, good work getting involved here, Alan. Now, he didn't say this recently. He said this two weeks ago. But for some reason, she chose this to respond to. So she wrote back, Nicholas J. Sam, no, this is my son. She's trying to keep him away from me. She is an evil woman. Alan doesn't know me. I'm a great person, and I changed my life 100%. I'm a great mother. This woman is trying to steal my son. Is is not a dog. He's not up for adoption. He should definitely delete this before I take legal action in defamation of character and exploiting my son on social media. He is not in need of anything. I have everything he needs and more. I'm Jaden's mother, not Ting. So she's basically saying, I've got everything he the kid needs. And Alan is exploiting this. He's exploiting my son. He needs to take all this down. He needs to butt out. And uh, I'm the mother. Kristen Ting has no rights to him. I need to take him back. And then she went on to write more. People can get their lives together and get their kids back. Happens all the time. I'm not a drug addict. She actually read addict. A-T-T-I-C. I'm not a drug addict. She's not an addict where drugs are located. She's also not a drug addict, I guess I try to say. And I'm not a junkie. I'm stable. I'm healthy. I'm employed. I have housing. I have full capability of taking care of my son, Jaden. Is not in need of any kind of financial help. This is all one sentence, by the way. I'm, I'm being uh, kind with the way I'm reading this. I, I, I paid my attorney with... I think she's trying to say I, I paid my for my own attorney. Uh, oh, I, I pay my attorney with... Now she puts a period for some reason. <laughs> so this is like super long run-on sentence. She puts a period at with... I paid my attorney with no help from anyone. I worked hard because I have plenty of money to take care of him. She keeps him away from me, alienates him from me for years, and Rex acts like he knows nothing. Rex is the ex-boyfriend, presumably, uh, and the father of the kid. When he knew about Jaden the entire time, he left her and Jaden because he owed her lots of money in gambling debt. Wow, that's a pretty uh, big accusation. So she's claiming that the reason they broke up in 2019, I'm talking they with uh, Rex and uh, and Kristen, that the reason that Rex left Kristen was because uh, he chunked off a ton of money gambling and owed her a bunch of money, and they probably had fights about it, and Rex just ditched at that point. That's, that's what Kaylee is claiming. I don't know if this is true, but she's saying that's the real reason the relationship ended. He was a degenerate gambler. She said, uh, she just wants to keep him from me because me and Rex continue to talk to her uh, continue to talk. Her entire relationship, she thinks, is a battle. I'm not battling anyone. I would simply like my son home where he belongs. I appreciate her help, but it's not needed simply as that. He should take it down, referring to the uh, the GoFundMe. Take it down. She should not move on social media with my son. Should not be on a fun page begging for money. He is not in need, and I'm offended by all the lies. He doesn't even know me. Uh, I paid open the custody case. I want my son back. 
It should not be online for the public and added lies. This is a private matter that Alan Kessler has nothing to do with. Okay, I mean that, okay, so that last part is a reasonable argument. Like, why is Kessler involved? Why is he doing this? The, he's listening to one side and raising money for the opposition when this is really a private matter between Kristen and uh, this Kaylee. And like he said, why is the third party getting involved? However, this happens all the time. People raise money for legal battles all the time on GoFundMe. She may not like it, but if Alan's her friend and wants to raise money for the case, he can. And and using her son in the picture, there's nothing illegal about that. If uh, it's not like he stalked the kid and took pictures of him in the elementary school, I mean this this is a picture of Kristen and the kid together that was taken while Kristen was caring for him. So these. These pictures are not off limits just because he's a minor, and Alan is not selling this for uh, commercial profit or anything. It's not like he's uh, taking pictures of the kid and selling him to model in magazines and keeping the money. I mean, a, this is a picture of just Kristen and the boy together to try to raise money for her legal defense to keep him. Now, I see why Kaylee doesn't like this and wishes Alan would butt out, but Alan's her friend. Alan has a right to do this. So... uh I doubt he's taking it down. Anyway, uh, this does add a new dimension to the whole thing. I have mixed feelings. Now, notice that uh, Kaylee does uh, not deny that she was previously a horrible mom and caused a lot of the problems. She did not say that Kristen's exaggerating in the GoFundMe that she caused the boys' problems. She didn't directly admit it, but it kind of seems like she's implying she's admitting it. Now, if the mom has demonstrated a recent pattern of stability, then I have to admit she probably should get the kid back, even if the kid is more at risk with her than she would be with Kristen Ting, who I believe is more responsible. Kaylee also admitted that she appreciates what uh, Kristen did. That she, she, I thank her for this. She, she did a good job. So there's not even any dispute by Kaylee that Kristen was the main, perf, the main uh, person responsible for this boy greatly improving. So it's not like she's saying, "Oh, Kristen's patting herself on the back," but she wasn't a very good mom. You know, she's actually kind of lousy, and I should be he boy. The boy would be much better with me. She, she's kind of conceding that that Kristen did a good job with the boy, but saying you just don't have a right to keep him. He's not your son. I can see why Kristen doesn't want the boy going back to her and possibly setting back all the progress he made. And also, she bonded with him. She kind of feels like this is her son now. Even though he's not her natural son, she feels like this is her son. And now the boy's getting ripped away from her. And she's thinking, crap, you know, this this parent's just going to screw him up again. And I put all these years into helping this boy. I, I don't I don't want to lose him now. I, I love him. I don't want to lose him. I see him as my son. And I, I can I can feel for her. I can see why this is uh, traumatic to Kristen. But I can also, at the same time, understand the mom. That she's turned her life around, or at least so she believes, and she has a kid, and she says, okay, I'm ready to take care of him now. I'm, I'm Thank you for helping him along to this point. But this is my son. I'd like him back, and I can take care of him now. So... I hope you didn't think that when you were doing this favor that this was a de facto adoption because it wasn't and you have no legal right to him and he is still my son. So I I can see both sides of this. I can see why Kristen doesn't want to return him. She's not evil. 
like Kaylee says. I can also see that Kaylee probably legitimately just wants her own son back. From a legal standpoint, I believe Kaylee is in much better shape, provided that the stability that she claims to have is uh, at least medium term, at least like two years or so, to where she can show that she has not gone back to her old ways. Like, you can't say, okay, I've been stable for a month, give me the kid back. You have to show some sort of record that you haven't gone back to your old ways. But provided she's been in a better place for a decent amount of time, then I think she'd probably get the kid back unless her previous transgressions are so bad that they're just never going to give the kid back to her at all. But I don't think her previous transgressions were that bad. They were fairly bad in that she she basically neglected the kid, but it wasn't like she uh, was abusive to the kid or, or, or molested the kid. Like, I don't believe anything like that happened. I think she just was uh, on drugs and was... Uh, uh, living on the street and neglecting the kid and wasn't helping him develop and, and she wasn't taking care of him. Like, so, so a lot of bad stuff for sure. And it was, a lot of this was abuse by neglect, but it wasn't direct abuse. And there's a big difference there. The, the court can easily believe that she has changed and she's grown up and now she's ready to take care of him. So I, I have a feeling that Kristen's not going to win this. Now, I had always wondered about this father, the one they call Rex. I had always wondered how he, they even found him if he never knew about the kid. The way the story was told is he just gets the message one day, hey, guess what, you have a kid from a one-night stand for, uh, from a few years ago, and, and can you take the kid? But I wondered, like, well, if that was true, how did they find him? If, if she just had this random one-night stand with him, how did she know enough info about Rex to go uh, to give to CPS to track him down? And that was always one part of the story I didn't understand. Now, I thought maybe that she knew his name but just didn't know enough about him to track him down and just didn't bother to. But to me, it was always a little strange that somehow Rex was never contacted that she had a kid with him. And she's claiming Rex knew the whole time and just wanted no part of it. So I kind of believe that. You know, you never know. She could be lying here, but if... You asked me what I believe, I would say, yeah, I think the father probably knew. I think Rex probably knew and just kind of wanted to walk away from it, which is kind of consistent with him walking away from the boy when the boy was living with him. I mean, how do you do that? So you you break up with the uh, woman that you were with for a long time who's helping you raise the son. You should take the son with you at that point. You don't say, okay, well, he's better off with you, so goodbye. That's, uh, that's, it was always kind of questionable to me, like, how that father could do that. It kind of seemed like he just wanted out of the whole thing. He was like, okay, good. The boy's with someone responsible. Okay, I don't got to worry anymore. Okay, I can pretend I don't have a son again. That's what it seemed like to me. So I, I didn't think much of this father in the story. And now I think even less of him. I think that Kaylee's probably telling the truth. I think he probably knew. Don't know for sure. Just an accusation. But I think he probably knew. Interesting story. I have a feeling that he's going to lose. No, he's gonna, I have a feeling she's going to lose. Kristen. And Kaylee's going to get the kid back. Now, if Kaylee gets the kid back and screws up again, then it might open the door for Kristen to get custody. 
Then Kristen can say, look, you guys tried it. She screwed up a second time. Obviously, the kid's best off with me. Give the kid to me. And I have a feeling Rex will agree to this. So if that is what ends up happening, then she does have a shot to get the kid back. But if the mom really has changed and isn't going to mess up again, which is possible, I, I got the impression that she was younger. So it's very possible that this mom just had to grow up and isn't going to go back to her old habits. On the other hand, when you're as messed up as the mom was alleged to be and isn't denying having been, it's hard to completely turn around. Some people do it, but a lot of these people who are on drugs to the point where they're homeless and neglecting their children, uh, they don't completely turn their lives around and become mother of the year. Usually there's a short period where they're better and then they get worse again. And I've known people like this, not not necessarily people with kids, but I, I've known people who have temporarily turned around, even for a few years, who were once uh, big into drugs and had a mess of a life, and then only to see that they end up back there. So I, I don't have a lot of confidence that this Kaylee is past everything and can responsibly raise the kid. But I have a feeling she'll be given another chance. So we'll see where this goes. But interesting that she showed up on Kessler's Facebook to challenge this. I don't think she has any kind of defamation case, though. Because basically it's Kristen telling her story through Alan. Uh, I I would think this could even be something that would be along the lines of uh, litigants' privilege which is basically that you have a right to state uh, what your point is in a current legal matter, what you're alleging, without being open to defamation. So I think it would probably be along those lines that Kristen's saying, hey, this this is what I've been alleging in court, so it's not defamation. I, I don't know it's more complicated than that, but I, I don't think a defamation case could be uh, brought out here, especially because a lot of this stuff seems to be true, and she's not even denying it. She's not saying, hey, you made all this up. I was never a bad mom. Like, this is not true. Like, it, it kind of seems like she's uh, admitting it by omission, by, by not denying it. And by saying she's changed, it, it does seem like that all or most of what Kristen wrote is factual. It's just the question is, has Kaylee the mom changed to where she uh, should have a second shot? I think the court's going to say yes. 775-FRAUD55 is the number to text or call the number. 775-FRAUD55. A number of texts we got tonight, I'm going to read for you. From the 314, thanks, I told you the profile was a memory eraser, so I'm glad they got the polyps. You'll be A-OK. Be sure to get another one in three years. Yeah, I will. I, I don't think the profile is really much of a memory eraser. I think that, uh, and I haven't heard that it is. I just think that uh, I was out the whole time. I pretty much remember everything from the second I woke up. I, I, my, my thinking process was a little bit slower. My talking was slower. I was kind of, uh, I, I kind of seemed like a little sedated, but I was coherent. In fact, I was able to think logically enough to ask the doctor in the first minute or so I was awake if uh, that large polyp meant that there's any chance of cancer. 
from uh, 954, was it painful after they cut them out? Referring to the polyps. It was a little painful uh, starting about 12 hours after the procedure. So it was not painful when I woke up. When I woke up, I was in no pain. 12 hours later, I had soreness in my abdomen, which, as I said, they told me was uncommon. When I reported this to them, they said people don't usually feel this. Sometimes they'll feel gas pain because they actually inflate your colon with carbon dioxide so they can get in there. But that's not what I was feeling. I know what gas pain feels like. This was not gas pain. And it lasted a lot longer than gas pain. Gas pain usually one to two days at most. This went several days. I could tell it was soreness. It was some kind of soreness in there, and I do think it's because they removed a big polyp from the very deepest part of my colon. I think that's what it was, and it just, maybe people don't normally feel pain there, but I did. But it's it's uh, just about all gone now. It was never terrible pain. It wasn't like like sharp pain. It was just kind of sore. From a Desert Runner, referring to himself in third person, Desert Runner and his girlfriend Michelle met you and Ken at the Indian Casino in Fresno County in 2018. That is true. From the 505, don't these hedge funds pump and dump themselves? It seems like they band together, manipulate the markets. For example, Bloomberg has his own news network. By the way, the main guy on uh, WBS, referring to the... uh, the Wall Street uh, Bets Forum on uh, Reddit. Uh, Deep fucking value. Supposedly bought 50K shares of GameStop in 2019. He posted his current portfolio and it's up $46 million. He claims it's still holding. I don't know if you've read that forum, but it's the PFA version of stocks. Lastly, if roles were reversed and people lost their ass, there'd be no bailout or interference to stop the bleeding. Yeah, that's true. I, I, the, bail, the bailout shouldn't happen in these situations. There, there never should be a bailout of hedge funds. I don't believe in bailouts of any kind of investment. Otherwise, you're encouraging irresponsible behavior by those that believe there's always a safety net below them. That's not the government's role. But yeah, if the guy who was uh, encouraging people to do this had 50,000 shares of GameStop, that could be a crime. But I don't know. Someone asked, uh, is Christopher Mitchell coming on the show from the 702? Somebody asked, uh, uh, saw Dime made some post. No, Christopher Mitchell's not coming on the show. Though if, if he'd like, he can come on the show. It's an open invitation, Christopher Mitchell, if you'd like to come on. I'm serious. I'm not joking here. I give everybody equal time. Now, I will tell you that if you come on, these are not going to be softball questions. I'm asking you tough questions, not unfair questions. And I will give you all the time you need to answer them. But I will ask you important questions that we all want to know. And this is a show that is for people who understand the gambling world well and not for chumps who can be fooled and scammed. So I will ask the tough and relevant questions. But you are welcome to come on and state your side. And I will give you all the time you need to do so. I doubt he will take me up on this, though. From the 702, a different number. In Las Vegas Review Journal today, the Plaza Casino gave U2 slot scammer Brian Wilson his own door section. Uh, each 100 points earns a free rubber bracelet from him personally. His own slot section. Wow. Yeah. Sometimes these uh, YouTube celebrities 
they get credibility they don't deserve. I don't know about much about this uh, Brian Wilson guy. I know we talked about someone, about, I think we talked about him on that uh, YouTube slot segment we did a few weeks ago. But uh, I haven't studied this guy like I have Christopher Mitchell. This is the last text I got. Very nice text uh, from the 641. You ready? Did your asshole have lube in it? (laughs) Great question. Answer, no. At least I think no. I wasn't awake. I mean, maybe it did. I didn't... I didn't feel any lube when I woke up, so I think the answer is probably no. But what they do is they inflate your colon, as I mentioned. They they actually inject it with, uh, not inject it, but they they put uh, carbon monoxide, monoxide, carbon dioxide up your ass, and it inflates your colon like a balloon. And then they insert this scope in there with a light and a camera on the end of it, and also with something on the end of it to... Uh, cut off the polyps. And three of the polyps they cut off with the uh, the normal way of just kind of snipping them off. The big one at the end, they actually had to use something called a hot snare, which kind of uh, burns its way through and then grabs it with like a lasso type thing and pulls it out. I have to imagine that hot snare is probably what caused me the uh, lingering pain. But I didn't feel any of this as it occurred, nor did I feel any pain when I woke up. From this description, you'd think I'd wake up and my ass would be hurting big time, or my abdomen would be hurting big time, but it was not at all. I felt no pain when I woke up. And like, it took about 12 hours for the pain to show up. But it was not terrible pain. I don't, I don't want to scare anyone out of doing this thinking you're going to wake up in horrible pain. It was never like that. It was never terrible pain. I, I had a lot of fatigue the first two days. Pain was kind of uh, moderate, and then it kind of decreased from there. I just didn't want to do a long show with my abdomen feeling like that. I, I just felt like I might make it worse, so I just uh, relaxed. I was told to relax for a week, so I did. We're going to do one more topic, then we'll take a break. This would be something that normally would have been a, a top story, but there are so many things that have happened that it's buried in the middle of the show. But there's actually a pretty big thing, even though it's a story which isn't uh, something that's that sexy of a story because it's uh, a legal story but it will have very big implications for online poker going forward the wire act the 1961 wire act has dogged online poker for many years now you may think why should it a 1961 act how could that have to do with online poker There was no internet in 1961. Nobody was online in any way in 1961, and that's correct. 1961 is now 60 years ago, very long time ago, especially when it comes to technology. But the 1961 Wire Act was passed in order to make it a federal crime to make sports bets over state lines. It was really something that was aimed at bookies who were trying to... uh, operate not just locally but to operate uh, across state lines but the 1961 wire act was then used as a basis to uh, uh, justify making online poker and all online gambling illegal 
Now, in 2006, it was made more clear by passing a new law called the UIGEA, the uh, Unauthorized Internet Gambling Enforcement Act. But that was kind of an extension of the Wire Act. The UIGEA was basically using that Wire Act and and stating the way they're going to be enforcing it and, and stating exactly what actions are illegal. And basically, it was saying that any act of funding online gambling is illegal and is uh, criminally punishable. So it, it made it more clear that it's not the playing of it, it's that uh, it's the funding it or using the money to bet once it's funded as an operator, not as a player. So that was the UIGEA that passed in late 2006. That's why a lot of sites exited the U.S. market in late 2006 and the UIGEA was used to bust these poker sites, the three biggest poker sites, in April 2011 in what's known as Black Friday. Now, that same year, later in 2011, there was a reinterpretation of the 1961 Wire Act. And the reinterpretation by the DOJ said that that Wire Act did not apply to poker. It was about sports betting. There was no online poker. There was no way to play poker across state lines in 1961. So there's no way it could have been about poker, which is true. There was no internet. There was no online in any way. So it was only passed in order to make sports betting across state lines illegal. So it was reinterpreted in 2011 to only be about sports, meaning that the door was open to poker being legal in the U.S. online across state lines. Very good news for online poker and being legalized even after Black Friday had occurred. So that was seen as a silver lining of Black Friday, that this brought on the reinterpretation of the Wire Act, which it definitely did. That's why they were thinking about it, because it followed Black Friday. However, there was a re-reinterpretation in 2017. It was really the only victory that Sheldon Adelson got in all the money that he spent to try to defeat online poker. Uh, he did exert his considerable influence and finally got something done in that the DOJ in 2017 re-reinterpreted it and decided that online poker and online gambling was covered by the 1961 Wire Act, even though at the time in 1961 neither of those existed, that they were similar enough and that the concept's the same, that basically any gambling across state lines is covered by the 1961 Wire Act. Now, that would have technically made any of these cooperative, legalized, regulated online poker sites illegal, like WSOP.com, which has a player pool that is a combination of New Jersey, Delaware, and Nevada, that would have become illegal. However, this was not enforced yet. But the new DOJ opinion was that this was illegal. And it was possible that they were going to have to force WSOP.com to stop doing this and only allow people to play within the same state. This also would have prevented further expansion of states combining to provide online poker, which would would have really stopped a lot of states from licensing and regulating online poker, because as we've seen, other than perhaps in very large states, there just simply isn't the population and the interest to support online poker 
unless states combine to make a bigger player pool. So that would have prevented a lot of the smaller and medium-sized states from bothering to legalize online poker, knowing that there's no way they could combine player pools with other states. And that was the case since 2017, and things were starting to look bleak. However, on January 20th, the U.S. Appeals Court for the First Circuit re-re-reinterpreted the 1961 Wire Act. This time it happened because the New Hampshire Lottery, of all things, was challenging it. The New Hampshire Lottery, which uh, was concerned that this would make their uh, this would make any kind of uh, gambling illegal even within the state, because uh, sometimes they use communication devices that technically go across state lines and come back to New Hampshire. That uh, they wanted to make sure that anything done within the state, any gambling within the state, even if it leaves state lines and comes back in, is still legal. And the one way they could assure that is by making the 1961 Wire Act back to the 2011 interpretation, reinterpretation, that is, that uh, this only applied to sports betting. So uh, the New Hampshire lottery challenged this in the U.S. Appeals Court, and the decision came down on January 20th. I was aware of the challenge that was taking place by the New Hampshire lottery. I just uh, had forgotten about it. I knew it existed. I just hadn't been thinking about it. But then on January 20th, it came down. The decision came down. And here, I'm not going to read the whole thing. In fact, I'm only going to read the very end of it because it's 49 pages. And even though this is a long show, we're not going to make it any longer. So here's what they wrote after 49 pages. In conclusion, we find that the plaintiff's claims, the plaintiff's being uh, the New Hampshire lottery, are justice justiciable... I don't know that word. Just J U S T I C I A B L E. I think it's justiciable. I've never heard of that word before. And that the Wire Act applies only to interstate wire communications related to sports betting events or contests. Therefore, we affirm the district court's grant of the plaintiff's motions for summary judgment and its denial of the government's motion to dismiss and motion for summary judgment. But given that declaratory relief under the Declaratory Judgment Act is sufficient, we vacate the district court's grant of relief under the APA. Costs are awarded in favor of the appellees. Now, what does all that mean? It basically means we're back to 2011 as far as the Wire Act is concerned. That the initial reinterpretation 10 years ago is the current uh, view of the DOJ. This, This is the that the it's been rolled back. The 2017 has basically been undone, and it is now once again interpreted to mean that the only thing it affects is sports betting. So, online poker is once again totally legal to be transmitted across state lines as long as it is done through regulated and licensed sites. Basically, the federal government is not going to get involved. If the states are okay, the states are okay. Sports bets cannot cross state lines. Everything else in gambling can. That's the, the, the very simple conclusion here. So it's not just poker. It's any other kind of game except for sports betting. So casino games, that can also work. So you can have casino gambling cross state lines. You just can't have sports betting. So you, you're not going to see an online sports book 
which crosses state lines. You're not going to be able to play, uh, uh, you're not going to bet on sports in a Nevada book when you're in California. Even if it's legal in California, you're not going to be able to bet on the Nevada book in California. It has to be separate books where the bets don't cross state lines. But poker, casino games, all that is okay. Provided there's not some kind of re-re-re-reinterpretation, this is it. I don't know if this is going to really make a difference. Because there had not been action taken yet. And since there had not been taken action against these sites that had already combined player pools, nothing had changed yet. And they were still waiting to be forced to change. They were not going to go against the law. But as long as they were still operating within the law, then nothing really was imminent as far as changing anyway. So this basically preserved the status quo, which is good, but it's not like everybody's going to go, ah, okay, it's legal. Okay, time for online poker everywhere. It's not going to be like that. Here's what a guy named Nick Jones wrote. I don't really know him, but uh, Nick Jones wrote this on January 21st, the day after the decision came down. Here's the timeline he gave. Circa 1961, Wire Act prevents sports betting from crossing state lines. Law is poorly written and leaves open some ambiguity, especially when trying to apply it to the world of online gaming and poker. December 2011, Obama-era DOJ Office for Legal Counsel clarifies its position on the ambiguous law, saying it only applies to sports, betting events, and contests. 2017, New Jersey reaches an agreement, joins the shared liquidity pool of Nevada and New Jersey. 2018, it goes live. That's referring to WSB.com. Uh, everyone starts to get excited. Party Poker starts talking about its U.S. network. Uh, Pennsylvania is happening. It provides a big opportunity for poker stars to expand its U.S. network. Things are looking up. Then December 2018, DOJ, now under the Trump administration, says, actually, no, we're rereading the Wire Act again, and this bill actually does not apply to only sports betting. Stop what you're doing. I thought it was 2017, but may- maybe he's right. Maybe it's December 2018. So he says, a couple things happen. One, legal battles battles were launched asking for clarity in this opinion. Two, it put pause to a lot of expansion efforts. But one thing that didn't happen, that WSP did not change course and close their network, which is what I was saying, that that nothing had really happened yet. That basically everything, the status quo stayed, they just, there wasn't that much expansion yet. He says, uh, sites that have hoped to go live in Nevada and connect with New Jersey or launch in Pennsylvania connect with New Jersey were put on pause. Most operators can't afford to launch into small segregated markets. That's why as of today PokerStars remains as the only operator in Pennsylvania. So that's why he's claiming that uh, nothing else showed up in Pennsylvania to compete with PokerStars that it just didn't seem worth it and they thought they were never going to be able to. Uh, apparently he's saying West Virginia also regulated online poker in April 2019, but that there's never been an attempt to try it because the population is only 1.8 million there. He said, uh, none of this stopped WSOP with their shared network. They vowed in mid-2019 to stay the course in the face of DOJ deadlines and were bolstered by the uh, New Hampshire lottery decision that has remained online, remained legally unchallenged. So he said, this is a big deal. It's potentially the last efforts the DOJ will make in trying to fruitlessly assert their broad interpretation of the Wire Act, an interpretation that so far has been struck down in clear, robust terms by every judge so far. 
So he's saying that it might be over. He's also claiming that Biden has claimed he's not interested in challenging this, which might be true. I don't think Biden cares. I don't think Trump cared either. Just Sheldon Adelson donated a ton of money to him, so he probably uh, cared a little bit for that reason. But other than that, Trump didn't care. None of these presidents really care about online poker. That's the that's the dirty secret here. Obama didn't care. Trump didn't care. Biden does not care. So currently we're looking better again, and I guess that's good. So this Nick Jones believes that now that this hurdle has probably been permanently removed, that more sites will be willing to start online poker, believing that it will be able to cooperate with other states and have a bigger pool to be worth doing. He was saying otherwise it's just not worth setting the whole thing up, which is what I was saying earlier. The problem is that online poker itself is not that lucrative compared to online sports betting and online casino gambling. It just isn't. So now that online sports betting is legal within state lines, in states that want it, and now that online casinos are legal, I think the focus will be more on those and poker is going to be like a ride-along in states that want it. But it's just not going to make that much money compared to what they can make in other online gambling. So why focus on it? That's that's the way I think a lot of these operators are going to look at it. So if they're already going to have an online casino or an online sports book and they can kind of slap an online poker offering with it, then they will. Kind of like what happened in Michigan, which we'll talk about shortly. But don't expect all the possible uh, states that could have online gambling to suddenly legalize it and uh, for poker. And, and don't expect that there's going to be a ton of operators wanting to jump in on it and we're going to have like a, a massive legalized U.S. cooperated uh, online poker site. I think that's going to be a while away. I mean, it's good news what we got here, but it's going to be a while away. Okay, so let's go on to talk about what happened with poker stars and then we'll take a break since it's kind of a connected topic. PokerStars Michigan has launched. You can now play PokerStars in Michigan legally. Not the PokerStars you knew prior to 2011, but PokerStars nonetheless. It is a fenced-off PokerStars that is only for Michigan, much like they have a fenced-off PokerStars in Pennsylvania and one in New Jersey. So uh, you can play this if you are physically in the state of Michigan. You don't have to live there but you have to physically be there when you play on PokerStars Michigan. It looks like PokerStars. Of course, uh, the player pool is much smaller than you would remember on PokerStars, especially because it just opened. It actually opened today, January 29th. Now, PokerStars also opened the Stars Casino and FoxBet today, which is their sports betting product, which is partnered with Fox. They announced, Welcome to the Table, Poker Stars, Stars Casino, and Foxbet are now live in Michigan. All you need to do is sign up. Well, not so simple, because people tried to sign up, and many of them could not download the software. They had a long time to prepare for this. I don't know how this happened, but it did. Actually... It was legalized a week ago, 
and yet PokerStars did not open then. Pretty much every other gambling offering online in Michigan that was building towards this opened last week. PokerStars remained closed, as did uh, Stars Casino and Foxbet. But they opened a week later, on January 29th, and they opened together. The assumption was that uh, PokerStars Michigan simply wasn't ready, and therefore they did not want to launch the Stars Casino and Foxbet without PokerStars to go along with it. They figured they'd wait another week. Apparently it still wasn't ready because a lot of people had trouble downloading it and other technical difficulties in getting the whole thing going. Uh, Now, do you think Michigan is going to partner with other states? Answer, possibly. Michigan and New Jersey are already talking about a partnership for poker. And since poker stars exist in both places, they could easily join together. The PokerStars in Pennsylvania at the moment is not going to join that. I think it'll be with New Jersey first if it does happen, because Pennsylvania is currently not in talks with Michigan about this. Pennsylvania is actually the largest population state to have legalized online poker. They've got about 13 million people, slightly less. But Michigan is now second with 10 million people. New Jersey slightly behind with 9 million. Nevada has 3 million. Delaware has 1 million. And then uh, West Virginia, as mentioned, uh, 1.8 million. But they are not offering online poker anywhere. There are five states where online poker is currently legal. It's currently legal in D.C. as well, but nothing's been done there. Uh, combined, all of these uh, six states, not, a, not, not including D.C., but including uh, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, New Jersey, Delaware, Nevada... Combined, they have about uh, a little less than 38 million people. But that's still only about 12% of the U.S. population, less than 12%. California has 40 million people, so it's bigger than those six states combined. That shows you what an impact California would make if it joins the market. But if these six all merge together, their player pools, then it would almost be like uh, California in a way. It's very similar populations of those six combined or California itself. Now, the launch did not go well, as I said. Very little action on uh, PokerStars throughout a lot of the day because of a number of issues downloading the software and geolocation failures. Atari Robbie on Twitter wrote, took my deposit, told me I'm not in Michigan, and then crashed. Must I take a video of myself at 8 Mile? (laughs) So that did not go well. A lot of people reported different difficulties getting on there and getting funded, being recognized as being in Michigan. Still working on that. It was the first day. Uh, Supposedly they haven't even promoted it yet, other than those tweets. Atari Robbie later said to me that the advertising is slated to start on Tuesday, and hopefully they will be ready for it by then. Kevmath posted a picture of uh, someone's PokerStars screen showing only uh, 10 people sitting at the tables at the time. Four people at uh, $0.50 cent a dollar, two people at twenty five fifty, no limit, this is all no limit, and, and and three people at one cent, two cent, no limit, and uh, nobody above fifty cent of dollars. It uh, wasn't exactly a high stakes game on there. 
But it's very, very early. It will take some time for people to be able to download it and get it going and the bugs to stop. They they should have worked out these bugs beforehand. There's there's no excuse to still have these bugs when they had all this time. It's, it's one thing to take time to get uh, regulated, but to not have the software ready to download and run the geolocation working is pretty embarrassing. But, you know, Stars is not the same Stars it used to be. It's, it's now run by a different company, and it's not the same as it was in the Eastside Scheinberg days when they were very confident with everything. And that's a good example. Kind of seems like something would happen with Caesars. <laughs> I'd, see, I'd expect this on WCB.com, not on uh, Poker Stars, but today's Poker Stars is not like yesterday's Poker Stars. So anyway, there is a Poker Stars Michigan. But it's going to be a while till we see some other states, especially some of the bigger ones. California has just been dragging. No progress has been made in years after an initial attempt. Just too much infighting between the Indian tribes. And Texas, I don't think there's much progress. New York is kind of trying. I think of the three big states with New York, Texas, California. I think New York's going to get it first. That'll be pretty big. But if, if you get all three on board, you get New York, Texas, California, and you get a combined pool with those three and some others, then you're gonna have you're gonna have a player pool there. That'll be nice. Don't know when it's gonna happen though. I may be uh, quite old when this occurs. Who knows? Even Benjamin might be quite old when this occurs. <laughs> okay, well I'm starting to feel old because uh, I'm starting to feel worn down here. And we have a lot more to do with this show. I have gone through the topics uh, relatively quickly. We only have four more topics left of gambling and poker topics. And then we have four coronavirus topics left. So we did get through nine topics, which is good. What's not good is that I have uh, a lot of talking left to do and not that much voice left to do with. So I'm going to take a break. If you're listening live, the break will be longer than if you're listening in the archives, where I edit out a lot of that. But I will be back. And thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio, especially if you're listening live. I know it's uh, not easy to make it through the break. It'll probably be about 10 to 15 minutes. I, I just take a little time to get some energy back and to rest my voice and uh, feel good again so I can finish the show. Trader Risky should be waking up sometime soon. We're getting closer to 3. It's 2.36 a.m. Eric Benzamokin is uh, currently in Las Vegas. He sent me an interesting picture of Southwest Airlines. There was a full plane during kind of like the worst COVID outbreak we've had in this area. So I don't know why they're running full planes in Southwest Airlines. Eric had nothing to fear because he already got over COVID back in November, but... Some of these other people there, I don't think it's very safe. I would not get on a Southwest plane right now. Nevertheless, he is in Las Vegas, probably not listening to the show tonight. Probably won't listen until he's back home. Eric is a very nice, very generous guy and a very good attorney. You can see the anti-slap that I've uh, posted many times before. You can look at my Twitter. You'll find a link to it. You can see some of his work right there. Feel free to contact him if you have any need for arbitration, mediation, bankruptcies, uh, especially you know, a lot of things he can do in California or federal cases. But uh, arbitration, mediation, he can do anywhere. doesn't have to be in a place where he's licensed. 
He will not bite your head off. There are some attorneys who contact them. They act like you're wasting their time and what do you want? Why are you bothering them? That's not him. It's the opposite of him. So play his ad. Now maybe I'll play some other things to pass the time as I'm getting ready for this second half of the show. I hope it's not a second half. Then the show will be too long. But the second portion of the show. And we'll be back in a little bit. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew. And it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California. You can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin. Eric at eblawfirm.us. Okay, we're back. Let's move on to talk about the accusation of a sports betting scam. And this is a pretty interesting story because it involves something that I wasn't aware existed. Now, I know sports betting scams exist. I know there's a lot of them out there. I know a lot of online sports books are scams. A lot of online sports books will never pay you when you win. But this is not about that. This is about the attempt to avoid using online sports books and how it resulted in an alleged scam. <clears throat> now, we have a guy named Shane Sigsby who posted this accusation on Twitter. I was not really familiar with him. I've heard the name before, but before all this, I couldn't have told you much about him. The way he describes himself on Twitter 
is Shane Sigsby, co-founder and CEO of I'm a Whale Staking. So he's a poker staker in some way. Co-founder of I'm a Whale Sports, real estate investor, entrepreneur, Christian husband, dad, golfer, Las Vegas, Alabama. Okay, so apparently the guy's like a sports better and a poker staker. And he has a number of followers who are poker players. So even though I don't really uh, know the guy, he has some credibility in poker, presumably. I've never heard anything bad about him. I've heard his name before. I haven't heard anything bad about him. He is the one who's reporting this. This alleged scam does not involve him. And in fact, when I showed him the thread I created on Poker Fraud Alert about what he was reporting, he wanted me to make sure that I made that clear. So I did make it clear in that thread, and I'm making it clear on this show that Shane was not a victim here. He was just the one reporting it. And... As I always do when there's something that I'm presenting on the show that others have said, but I have never verified, these are allegations by a third party that I'm repeating on this show, but use your own judgment. This stuff may or may not be true, and you can form your own opinion from what is stated. And of course, if uh, the person named here wishes to give a rebuttal, they are welcome to do so. I am only going by what I'm reading. That was put out on public Twitter. So this is on January 13th. Shane Sigsby wrote the following. I've seen some crazy things in my gambling career, including numerous thefts. Today's unveiling of John Martinelli's premeditated $500,000 theft on the sports community via a VIG-free chat is the worst one I've ever seen. Okay, so let's stop right there. Who is John Martinelli? I don't really know. I've never heard of him before. But Shane Sigsby is insisting that he perpetrated a $500,000 sports betting scam in what was called a VIG-free chat. Now, what is a VIG-free chat? Well, because people either don't trust online sports books or can't get enough action or just simply don't want to pay the VIG, which is the basically the commission that a sports book takes every time you place a bet. You may not realize they're doing it, but they, they are. That's built into the line you're getting. So let's take a spread, a spread game where, uh, let, let's take a hypothetical game where the Milwaukee Bucks are playing the Golden State Warriors and the Milwaukee Bucks are a five-point favorite. So if you bet on... Milwaukee Bucks would be Milwaukee minus five, meaning that Milwaukee has to win by five to tie and more than five to win. And Golden State would be plus five, meaning if they lose by fewer than five or win, then you win the bet. Or if they, if they win by five, you tie. If they lose, or if they lose by five, you tie. And if you, if they lose by more than five, you lose the bet. So that's, that's the way spreads work. I'm sure most of you know that. But, uh, the amount you'll get paid would not be even money. In most cases, you would be getting 10 elevenths of what you bet as your win. So if you bet $110, you would win 100 not 110 That extra $10 difference between 100 and 110 in that case would be the VIG, the commission that the casino is taking. So the casino would have it as a minus 110 bet on both sides. Minus 110 meaning you'd have to bet 110 to win 100 
and that would allow them to show a profit even if there's equal amounts of money bet on both sides. And that's how sports books generally make money. They will sometimes make money by allowing lopsided action where they have a strong feeling of how the game's going to go. But usually the way they're making money is by trying to take approximately equal action on both sides to guarantee themselves a win based on the VIG, the commission. So a VIG-free chat is where people betting directly with each other can just cut out that VIG. So let's get back to this uh, hypothetical basketball game I was talking about. Uh, Here you would just be betting at even money. So if you want the Milwaukee Bucks minus five, if they win, if they win by more than five, you you get exactly what you bet. And if if they lose, then uh, the other side gets exactly what they bet because nobody's taking a commission because you're betting with another individual. So it's called a VIG-free chat. As I said, some people use them because they don't trust sports books online. Some of them can't get enough action or enough high, or high enough limits for what they want to bet. And some people just want to avoid the VIG because it adds up over time. It really does. So the one downside to the VIG-free chat is you have to trust the people you're betting with. And at any point, an individual can screw you because there's usually not someone holding escrow there. Usually you're just betting with others who are trusted sports bettors and who have made a name for themselves as someone who's not going to rip you off and you can trust you're going to get paid, but you never know when one of these people will change or when they're in a bad situation and not telling anybody. And someone who has been trustworthy for years is now desperate and now could be free-rolling you. They could be placing a bet with you where if they win, you're going to pay them and if they lose... They won't pay you, and you won't know that until they lose. So you'll think you're in line to win, only to find out the bad news when you win that they don't pay you. So that's the downside to a VIG-free chat. Even people you can trust, who knows? Who knows where they really are in life? Well, Shane Sigsby is alleging this is exactly what happened with this John Martinelli character. He's saying that Martinelli took part in one of these VIG-free chats, and took $500,000 worth of bets on a particular game, knowing he could not pay. He's accusing Martinelli of taking such action on Ohio State in their game against Alabama on January 11th. And when Alabama ended up winning, he lost that bet, obviously, and then stated right away he couldn't pay anybody, and he didn't have the money. So this was a premeditated free roll, according to Sigsby, because uh, he's saying Martinelli took 500k of action on that game, hoping it would go his way and he'd get paid. And if he lost, he just wasn't going to pay anybody. So right when it lost, Sigsby saying that Martinelli said, ah, "Hey guys, I can't pay. Sorry." Sigsby went on to say that Martinelli did this and claimed he did this in order to help his brother, his brother uh, Timothy Martinelli and I see this in the Review Journal, is accused of uh, child abuse in the death of an infant that his very young baby uh, son was allegedly killed. Well, he was killed, but uh, eight months old. Very tragic story. And reportedly it was uh, during uh, child abuse. That's what they're accused of. This is an ongoing uh, criminal court case. So this is the brother of John Martinelli. And that uh, 
Sigsby saying that John Martinelli claimed that he did this to help his brother, and that even though he had a good reputation, I'm talking about John, that he was willing to throw away that reputation in order to help his brother out with legal fees. He basically made a choice. Okay, I've been honest thus far, but I need this money for my brother's expensive legal battle, and uh, this is the only way I can get it. So, sorry guys, I was going to try to get 500k to help my brother, and since I lost this bet, uh, I'm just not going to pay you guys. I, did, I didn't have the 500k. I had nothing. So that's a pretty ugly story, if it's true. This is something that Shane Sigsby is compl- is claiming happened. I have no reason to believe he's not telling the truth. He said, uh, numerous guys posted looking for action on Alabama in that national championship game. He sent direct messages to 10 to 12 guys and bet 1 to 2 Bitcoin with each guy on Ohio State and free-rolled them all. Posted today that he can't pay and is free-rolling. I presume it was in the chat. That's why we can't see what he posted on Twitter. But that's Shane Sigsby's explanation on what happened there. Now, I was not familiar with these VIG-free chats. I didn't even know they existed. But another member of Poker Fraud Alert named Sidewinder responded to me in that thread where I uh, posted Shane Sigsby's tweets. And he said, uh, people vouch for others in that uh, thread. They solicit offers, but all transactions are done in DM, settle up after the game. And uh, he said that uh, you have no clue what happened until it's over because everything happens in DMs. That's a tough... That is what's tough there. You you don't find out until it's too late, and that's why I don't recommend getting involved with things like this. You just you just never know. Now I guess if there's a really rich guy that you're sure is doing really well, not just a pretend rich guy or a guy who appears to have assets but is really on the verge of bankruptcy, but someone you know legitimately is doing real well and just wants sports action, I guess it's fine. But you just never know. Something about gamblers is that situations can change quickly. I've known over the years many poker pros who were very rich one day and uh, broke very soon after, sometimes uh, shockingly quickly. I've known poker pros who have bet uh, six figures on individual sports betting uh, situations where they didn't have any kind of uh, information that would lead them to believe that was a uh, great opportunity. They just were degenerates who were firing big because they were wanting more and more action. And eventually, betting six figures was the only way they can get excitement out of it. So they would, and they'd lose, and there would go their bankroll. And then they'd chase, and it would be gone very fast. Sometimes someone you believe is good for it, or someone you believe would never screw you, does end up screwing you. And sometimes even someone who has a great reputation as someone who is a very honest and trustworthy guy could end up screwing you. Now, you might be thinking, okay, Druff, are you saying that I shouldn't trust you? Now, not not that I do these bets, but uh, let's say I wanted to. And let's say it was more than you know, some token sum of money. Let's say I wanted to bet 10K with you on a game. Could you trust me? Well, of course, I'm going to say yes. 
And I can tell you from knowing myself that I'm never going to be in a situation where I can't pay 10K. But how well do you really know me? Could it be possible that behind the scenes, while I maintain the same uh, demeanor on the radio and on the forum, that I've been chunking off all my money, that I've just been on a terrible run, a terrible uh, gambling shame spiral, and I'm really desperate for money. But I'm acting normal. I'm acting the same way I always did. And then one day I come up with a need for the money and think, okay, I've built this reputation for 20 years. Now I'm going to roll everybody. It's the, the longest of long cons. Not a premeditated one, but nevertheless one of opportunity. Now, I would never do that. I couldn't live with myself if I did it. But you don't know that for sure. I know it because I know myself. But you don't know what's in my head. Only I know what's in my head. So I can tell you I wouldn't do it. But you never know for sure. Now, somebody who knows me really, really well, they could probably say I wouldn't do it. But people who just know me from this show, or from the forum, or from meeting me a few times, you don't know for sure. My mom could tell you for sure I wouldn't do it. My girlfriend could tell you for sure I wouldn't do it. And close friends of mine could tell you that. But uh, if you're just judging me based upon my reputation or my history, I mean, yeah, that's very strong that I've had 20 years in poker and never rolled anybody. You never know. Sometimes things can just happen. Sometimes people can get in a desperate situation, they become a different person. And they surprise you. That's not to say that You can't do risk assessment and figure out who's trustworthy and who isn't. Even if you're not 100% sure, if you're 99.9% sure, that's good enough. After all, sports books, unless they are legalized and regulated, can screw you too. Even the big ones. In fact, they are probably more likely to screw you than someone who has a very good reputation in the sports betting or poker worlds. But... This was an example of someone who had a good reputation, never screwed anybody, and is alleged to have run a 500k free roll. Free roll scam, that is. Not a 500k free roll. (laughs) 500k free roll would be nice, but not a free roll scam, where he's free rolling others. So you just always have to watch out, and don't just go by reputation, especially uh, when large bets are involved. And also, remember, you may not be the only person. Each of these people... We're betting five figures. They didn't realize that there were like 12 people betting. So it's a lesson to be learned there. Sometimes you just don't know. Sometimes you don't know somebody until you see them at their worst and find out that they're at their worst. Sometimes people who are desperate will do things that are not like them. And they will find ways to justify it, especially if it involves family. So let's say this Martinelli character believed his brother's innocent and wants to help him. Let's say his brother convinced him he's innocent. I don't know if the guy's innocent or not, but let's say it really was an accident and he's accused of child abuse and he can go to prison for the rest of his life for this. Uh, Maybe his brother, John, felt so bad for him and said, okay, I will throw away my reputation to raise the money for your defense. You need a good defense here, I'm going to raise the money for it. So sometimes when it comes to standing up for family, people will do bad things. I mean, let let, let me show you another, a more extreme example of someone doing bad things for money. 
Do you remember uh, Ernie Shearer, the murderer of his parents, the convicted murderer? This guy, a lot of people liked. This was a guy who people did not picture as a violent criminal. This is a guy I played with before in poker. He sometimes played Limit Hold'em. Ernie Shearer was getting further and further in debt. He couldn't pay off his mortgage. His parents wouldn't loan him any more money. And he didn't know what to do. So his parents had money. They just wouldn't give him any more. They said, your poker career is not working out. You're not winning. We're not giving you anything more. So he drove to his parents' house all the way from Las Vegas. He drove all the way to Northern California, like a 550-mile drive, and murdered them for the inheritance. And he staged a murder to make it look like a break-in. And he almost got away with it, but he made a few mistakes, and they figured out it was him, and arrested him, and he was convicted. And now he's in prison. And, of course, he didn't get that inheritance. But this guy murdered his own parents to try to get a bankroll again. So keep that in mind. You never know, with people in poker and gambling, what's really going on and what they will do to screw you if given the opportunity. So always keep that in the back of your head before you expose yourself too much. And sometimes people will justify it when they're doing it to themselves. It's easy to think of someone who pulls something like this as an evil, horrible human being who's uh, getting pleasure out of cheating people. But much more often it's somebody who's just desperate in some way. Now, I'm not making excuses for them. I'm saying that in their mind, they don't like the fact that they have to do this, but They'll do it. They justify to themselves why they need to do it. Always use caution. Okay, so I want to talk about somebody else who is accused of wrongdoing, who has had some notoriety in poker. This is a World Series of Poker bracelet winner named Ivan Deira, D-E-Y-R-A. I hadn't heard of him before. There's a lot of bracelet winners out there. I don't keep track of them all, but Ivan Dara is accused of multi-accounting, and uh, this was on uh, Winamax, a, a European poker site. He's accused of uh, multi-accounting in a tournament there and has been thrown off, and his account as a pro has been terminated. Yeah. So here is the story. Uh, he played in a 2,000 euro buy-in event on Winamax, but is accused of using two accounts, one his and one his father's turn account. That's pretty obvious. And uh, his father ended up uh, winning the tournament and was allegedly him. Here's what it said. Faced with overwhelming evidence... Dayra released a statement confirming that he indeed played the super high roller on two accounts, winning on his father's account, with Winamax banning both accounts. The 83,300 euros from the super high roller win, along with prize money from the two other tournaments they were cashed in, were subsequently redistributed to affected players. Basically, they take him out of the pool and uh, move everybody up a notch. As a result, his contract with Winamax, which was due to expire in June, has been terminated immediately. In the statement, 
Dara cuts a contrite and disconsolate figure, saying his punishment was heavy, very heavy, but also logical and understandable. So it's it's a multi-accounting case where had he been more careful, he probably would have pulled it off. But the fact that he's his father, come on, that gives it away. Has he not learned from Justin Bonomo and the many other multi-accounters over time that you've got to be better at it than this? Come on now. So this is what happened. The uh, French poker forum Club Poker uh, started to uh, talk about this. Participants in the tournament on Winamax started talking about how they were getting a bunch of uh, refunds to their accounts. Yeah, I got a refund. Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. So they're like, okay, well, what happened here? Obviously, somebody got disqualified. Then the fifth place finisher, known as uh, Mama Razi, said he got reimbursed over 5,000 euro. Now, what does that give away? That gave away that it had to be one of the top four because if the fifth place finisher moved up, then it wasn't someone lower than fifth. So if Mama Razi got over 5,000 euro, that means Mama Razi became fourth, which means, uh, I guess it was actually, uh, yeah, it was one, one through four. So one of those four got disqualified. So then people started looking at the top four and noticed that uh, Ivan Dera had not played on the account since January 6th, and that was uh, two days after the tournament that took place. And also, he also didn't play in any of the day twos for the Winamax series tournaments that he'd already qualified for. So they were saying, hmm. So, okay, let's let's put this all together. It's someone first place through fourth place who got disqualified. And uh, Ivan Dara, a regular on the site and a Winamax Pro, has vanished from the site. And uh, they looked at the accounts that won. And the winner, Mati Vanau, M-A-T-I-V-A-N-A-O, Mati Vanau, that screen name was like a combination of all the first names of his brothers and sisters, which I don't know how they knew this, but somehow they looked it up and figured out that, uh, I guess, uh, M-A-T-I-V-A-N-A-O, like whatever it is, it's kind of like if you combine the names of all the brothers and sisters, this makes Mativa now. <laughs> so like, okay, well, that's obviously related to him. It's pretty good to figure that out. So... uh then it came out. So so Winamax didn't say that Ivan Dara did it at first. They just gave people refunds saying, hey, we disqualified someone, here's some extra money. And then everyone's like, hmm, wonder who it was. And then they did their internet detective work and figured it out. And then, I guess, Dara admitted it. And Winamax uh, had banned both accounts. He said, neither Winamax nor I would have wanted this, but it is so. Today, with hindsight, I recognize the cheating aspect of multi-accounting. Come on. You think he didn't recognize this was cheating when he did it? Of course he knew. He just... He just wanted to win. How could I have been so naive or oblivious? For the days and nights that follow, I am searching within myself to dig into the reasons for this unforgivable and serious act. (laughs) I'm searching in myself. Why did I do it? I believe he is actually 
searching within himself why he was so stupid to use his dad's account. Because he already got caught. It's not like the internet sleuths caught him. Winamax caught him. They just didn't denounce who it was until people figured it out. Now, why did he do it is the question. Um, He had $1.4 million in lifetime caches uh, in live tournaments. He was part of the Winamax Pro team. So why did he do it? He said, in the past, I realized when doing my finances that on Winamax, I hadn't been making money for three years since I became a teen pro. After asking myself several questions about why my uh, about my game, I came up with a theory. Players change nicknames every six months. All the information I collect on their play disappears, but the reverse is not true since I keep the same nickname. So he's... Uh, now, that, that I might believe. That I might believe, that he was struggling on there... And he's going, why, why can't I beat this Winamax? Why, why am I not making money here? And he's like, oh, all these people with, with the data mining software, they, they have my play style down pat, and yet they're changing their names constantly. I don't know about that. I don't know about the rules on the network, but he's saying that they've been uh, changing their names every six months. Maybe that's allowed. So he's claiming after six months they basically get a reset, and he doesn't. So they already have info on him, and then to them, to him, these people appear new, and they've got an edge on him. Now, now maybe he's right about that. Maybe that is part of the reason he's not winning. I can't think that's the whole thing, but th- that's what he blamed on it. And yeah, that is something that isn't fair to him. But on the other hand, he's getting money as a team pro, so you know, I can't really feel sorry for him. But he claimed that uh, he played on another name to see the difference and to see whether the hypothesis was true or not. And that uh, if people didn't know who he was, that he could do better. Yeah, one little problem, though. If this was what he was testing, then why did he also play as himself in the same tournament? Come on. <laughs> See, I kind of believe the first part of it. I kind of believe that like, what brought him to do it, aside from just greed, was the belief of, hey, I deserve to do this. I, I deserve to cheat because all all these other people, they get to keep data on me and I don't get to keep, keep data on them that last more than six months. So screw them. This is unfair. This is unfair. This, this is the great equalizer. I get to multi-account. Yeah, I'm going to multi-account. That'll make the whole thing equal, okay? They get the data on me, but I get to play on one of two accounts they don't know is me. So if he was really just trying to keep himself from having uh, data on him, then he would just only play on his dad's account in the tournament. He wouldn't play his dad's account and himself. And, you know, if he was caught playing on his dad's account, but he didn't play as himself, and then he was uh, disqualified for that reason, I would actually say, okay, the man has a point. I don't like the way he did it, but if it is true that everybody's allowed to change nicknames every six months except him, and he's afraid that over three years people compiled so much data on his play style that they have a big edge on him now, that if he's playing on an anonymous account to combat that, then okay, maybe give him a warning and tell him quit doing that. But uh, the fact that he played with two different accounts in the same tournament, like if he doesn't think it's cheating, how, how does he explain, like, what if they end up at the same table, both accounts? What if they both end up at the final table? So, that's BS. Even if he went onto his dad's account after he busted early 
in a freeze out. I don't know if that's what happened, but let's say before the late registration period is over, he busted and he's like, he wanted to play then under his dad's account. Still, you can't because that violates the whole point of a freeze out. A freeze out means if you bust, you can't rebuy. And that changes your strategy because you can't uh, play fast and loose if you want to have the opportunity to keep playing. You you cost yourself the opportunity in that tournament if you take chances early. So that's something everybody has to deal with in freeze out. And if somebody has the ability to rebuy, then uh, that can give them an edge. So that's still a problem. It, obviously, multi-accounting in a tournament, no matter what, is cheating. The only way you can kind of say it's not cheating is if you're just using a different account, but you're not using two different accounts. Once you use more than one account in the same tournament, you are cheating no matter what. There's no question. If you're using an account just to avoid being uh, data mined, but you're not playing under any other account in that tournament, that's not that bad. That's different than playing under a second account for cash games, because then you could be getting action from people that wouldn't normally play you. But since in tournaments you don't have the choice who you play, you can't say, oh, I'm not playing this guy in this tournament, he's good, I'm going to avoid him. You can't. You have to play whoever they put you with. So for that reason, uh, playing under a different account in a tournament is not terrible, as long as it's you the entire time, you're not switching off with people. But once you've got two accounts in the tournament, for whatever reason, it's terrible. So that, uh, and we've, we've dealt with this for well over a decade. I mean, look at JJ Prodigy, remember him? Look at Justin Bonomo. I mean, these are very high profile cases in, uh, multi-accounting in tournaments. And anyone who hasn't learned from this by now, uh, it's their fault. To Justin Bonomo's credit, even though there's certain aspects about his personality I don't like, uh, he hasn't been involved in any cheating scandal since then, and it's been many years, so I, I don't want to drag his name through the mind that way, but he did do it, and he admitted he did it. I know he's much younger, and it's many years ago now, but he did it. That's a well-remembered uh, scandal. But come on, oh, I wanted to see if people would see uh, uh, play me the same under my father's account as me. Yeah, well then, why are you playing as you do still? That doesn't make any sense. At the World Series of Poker, he won the $3,000 No Limit Hold'em event late in the World Series in 2019. And he had on a Winamax patch when he won. And he got uh, $380,000 for that win. That also pushed him over the million-dollar line for total cashes. A line that I'm very close to, a line I thought I might break in 2020 until there was no World Series. At least not a real World Series, so I didn't play anything. But I was like 20-something thousand away from that million mark. Maybe this year, maybe next year. But I hope whatever next World Series I play is when I break it. This is one of the events that takes place after the main. This is event number 79. There's also a $3,000 limit hold'em event, which I had played to, planned to play last year, not last year, in 2019, but did not because I made it deep in the main and fortunately wasn't available for it. I have never played with Ivan Dara before. I hadn't really heard of him. It doesn't really matter. 
Uh, Ivan Dera is from France. At the event he won in 2019, it was a pretty uh, international final table. The second place finisher, David Gonzalez, from the U.S., but the third place finisher from Canada, fourth place finisher from the U.K., fifth and sixth from the U.S., and same with eighth, but then seventh, Hungary, and ninth, Argentina. A lot of different countries uh, represented there. Looks like uh, six different countries. Pretty interesting. I have to imagine that he's not going to get any more jobs as a site pro. He now has this uh, stench on him as a multi-accounter. In general, multi-accounting has gotten more and more of a stigma as time has gone on. In the 2000s, believe it or not, while it was always considered bad to multi-account in a tournament, to use two accounts in a tournament for obvious reasons, uh, multi-accounting cash games was considered okay as long as you didn't sit yourself at the same table with two of you. So if you were playing on somebody else's account or if you share your account with other people, that was not considered a bad thing in the 2000s. That was more of a 2010s thing where the definition of multi-accounting expanded to also mean account sharing or using several accounts to hide who you are or to get action. In the 2000s, the way this was viewed was that, hey, it's still a fair game. You're still sitting down and playing poker normally. People just don't know who you are. But once data mining became more prevalent, this was seen as a way for people to avoid having their play style known and also to get action from good but maybe slightly lesser players who otherwise would avoid playing you. So let's say you're the, you perceive yourself to be the fourth best player on the site, you're probably not going to play heads up against the top three. And if one of the top three is using somebody else's account, or especially an account known to be a fish, uh, then you will play them, saying, okay, as long as it's not one of these top three guys, I'll play anybody. And then you get crushed, and you're like, what the heck? And then you find out it was one of those three guys you've been avoiding. So that that's why multi-accounting is uh, considered cheating in that way, too. Though I've always said it's not as bad. There's, there's various levels of multi-accounting, and that's not a, anywhere near as bad as having two of yourself in one tournament, or even worse, two of yourself in one cash game. But still, I understand why it's bad, and I understand why people get in trouble for it. And it is fair when people get money confiscated that they won when breaking rules like this because you're giving yourself an unfair advantage in breaking the terms of service. And it's not like a ticky-tack break of the terms of service that doesn't really matter. I mean, this is something that really you shouldn't be doing and is unethical and give yourself an edge. So if you get caught, it makes sense that you suffer the consequences. If you don't suffer consequences, then people will do it. Then people really don't have much of a downside to doing it aside from maybe a reputation damage. So I fully support action taken against proven multi-accounters, but, but here it's very clear because he played with two accounts in one tournament. I've always laughed at the people who play under relatives accounts when they do this. You'd think he'd be smarter about it. Like use a friend's account, at least to use his dad's account. is pretty crazy, Though maybe it was just something he did out of anger. Maybe he, busted and thought, shit, 
they they busted me because they know my play style. You know what? I'm going to go on my uh, on my father's account. It's just not very smart because you think that just an account that doesn't normally play very much does so well, and then they will get suspicious. Maybe even see the same IP. I don't know if he used the same IP. If he did, that's really stupid. But even if he changes his IP and changes the computer, still, uh, they're going to look and see if it's possibly related to a regular on the site. And if they see, then they're going to get very suspicious. But a lot of these guys don't think of it that deeply. They they really believe that they're going to pull a fast one and get away with it and win a lot of money. And they do justify in their head. That's why I think the justification that he gave is probably what he's really thinking. He was probably pissed. He probably thought that he's been getting a raw deal all this time. He's not making money on the site. Being a site pro actually hurt him, not helped him. If he only didn't sign that contract to be a site pro, then he could have changed his name a bunch of times. But I I have a suggestion. Just quit being a site pro. Or quit when your contract's up. Say, "I, I don't want to renew. I'll just be a regular player now. Or go to the site and say, this is a problem. Why... Why can't I ever change names and they have an edge on me? Now, the site may say, well, that's part of the job here is you have to uh, represent the site and you have to play on here. But it would be reasonable for him to say, hey, can I have a second account, which I'll never sit at the same time as myself, but uh, that I can use sometimes for cash, that I can change the name every six months? Maybe they'd say yes. Maybe they'd say no. They also might just say, hey, look, if, you, if you're not happy with the situation, just quit being a site pro. I do think that this is a little bit unfair to the site pros, that they can't change their name and everybody else can every six months. If that is the case, that's that was what he was saying. I assume that's what he meant. So, I don't think he'll be getting any contracts anywhere else after this. It's not like he's a huge name in poker. I mean, the guy has live results only slightly better than mine. Maybe they should hire me. I won multi-account, I promise. Okay, well, speaking of prestigious tournaments, let's talk about the World's Poker Tour. The World Poker Tour has been sold. And how much has it been sold for, and who has bought it? Well, according to Pocket Fives, the WBT has sold now for the fourth time in the past 12 years for $78 million to Element Partners LLC. The current owner, Allied Esports Entertainment, is going to get paid $68.25 million up front and then a guaranteed 5% of tournament entry fees on company-owned platforms until $10 million is reached. So it is possible that will never be reached, but they are getting... million up front. The deal includes only the WBT brand and associated assets. It hasn't officially closed yet. It is expected to close either at the end of January, which I guess we're kind of at, or sometime in early February. The CEO of the WBT, Adam Pliska, said, We think this deal will allow the WBT to do a number of things it's always wanted to do. Unfortunately, I'm being told that the deal closes. Until the deal closes, I can't really say that much about the transaction. What I can say, however, is that for myself and my management team, we're still here and it's business as usual, and we look forward to this exciting and next chapter of the WPT. 
So, so basically, the, the guy's saying it's going to be the same thing. Don't worry, we're not changing anything. Same people in charge. We're just uh, switching ownership. But the WBT has changed hands so many times now, you have to wonder how profitable it really is. Either it's just being flipped, or it just isn't winning. It isn't, isn't winning. It isn't making money. And every time it's got someone new trying to make it work, and it just isn't happening. Now, who is this Element Partners that bought this from Allied Esports? Element Partners is uh, not really very well known. In fact, there's very little known about them. And as I said, they haven't explained if they're going to do anything differently. They also have to wait till COVID has seriously subsided, so it's kind of a funny time to purchase it. Club WPT, which is a subscription-based online poker platform, it got a 61% increase in new registrations in the third quarter of 2020, thanks to the coronavirus. Maybe they're hoping that's going to make some money. Frank Eng of Allied Sports Entertainment, the CEO, he said, despite the many challenges caused by COVID, the WBT business has delivered substantial impactful results, specifically through its online platforms and services, and has made meaningful contributions for the company. That sounds like a lot of BS. That kind of sounds like they lost their ass, and he's finding a silver lining. Like, yeah, we we couldn't hold live tournaments and we lost a fortune, but the online platform did kind of well. <laughs> he also said they're looking to sell their existing esports business, and also they own the HyperX Esports Arena in Las Vegas, where there's been some uh, WBT final tables over the last three years. In 2009, BWIN paid a paltry $12.3 million to acquire the WPT. And then six years later, they made a very nice profit selling it for $35 million to a company called Our Game. Our Game uh, paid almost $23 million more than BWIN paid. Then uh, Our Game sold it to Blackridge Acquisition Group, which was uh, Lyle Berman's company. And uh, at that point, uh, Blackridge Acquisition Group purchased Allied Esports and then took on the Allied Esports name. I don't know uh, how much was paid for it there. But this sale was for considerably more than the first two sales, for sure. $12.3 million and $35 million. I don't think that was a good sale. I mean, it was good for the seller, but the buyer, I wouldn't pay $78 million, or even $68 million for the WPT at this point. I'll tell you the reason that I, or the reasons that I don't love this sale. Number one, who knows where live poker is going post-COVID? Not just post-COVID, but also current COVID, which isn't anywhere near over. I was telling people recently and I'll continue to say so, that I am not going to play any live poker tournament as long as I have to wear a mask. And this isn't one of these anti-masking, it's my right not to wear a mask things. This is like, it's uncomfortable to wear a mask and I'm not going to enjoy it. I'm not going to play. It's just a personal choice. I I just don't have to go 
I'll stay home. I do not want to sit there with a mask on for 10, 11 hours playing a tournament. Be very uncomfortable. It'll cook all the fun out of it. And I think many people feel this way. Yeah, you'll have some degens showing up to play, but I think a lot of people are going to feel it's very unappealing to sit there with a mask on for the entire tournament. I think it's really going to hurt registration. And any ongoing threat of COVID, even with people taking the vaccine, will drive away people from wanting to play. It's just a different environment. That's the first problem. The second problem is WBT in general has been kind of losing prestige. It's it's really been hurt a lot more than the WSOP as poker has been declining over the years. So it's not the 2000s anymore. The WBT just doesn't have the same allure it used to. I'm not saying it's dead, but I don't think it's increasing in value, even though it's being sold for more and more money each time. I think those buying it have an optimism that really shouldn't exist. It's being sold for more. Uh oh, I, I hear myself here. Welcome to Poker Father Radio Traderuski. My bad. Sorry. <laughs> so yeah, I would not pay seventy-eight million for the WPT. I think that uh, Allied sold it because they know that it's worth a lot less than that, and they're happy to get that money for it. I think it's a brand in decline, and I don't know how profitable it is. And Club WPT, to my knowledge, has never made very much money. It's not like it's a major player in the online world. So I don't quite understand why this company is buying it, this Element Partners. But I don't think this is a good time to buy a poker tournament unless you're getting it real cheap. I, I bet the Midway poker tournament is, is up for sale cheap. I, I wonder if Dan Beckovac would sell it for 50K. He might. And then he could just, then he could pay off those players and act like he's a hero. And then you can try to get people to play again. And you could say, okay, brand new Midway poker tournament now with real cash. That could be the slogan. Now with real cash. No more coins. No more coins and we won't stiff you on your prize. The brand new Midway Poker Tour. Maybe I'll buy it. Maybe I'll contact Dan Bekovac and say, uh, would you like someone to buy you out? And he will say, okay, can I pay you in silver coins? And I would say, never mind, no deal. Is, is Vinny staying with them, did they say? Is who? Does Vince Van Patten stay with them? That's a good question. That's a good question. That did not say. They're claiming it's business as usual, so maybe. He's been there all that time. All right, so uh, final uh, gambling topic here, and then we'll go to coronavirus stuff. Trader Risky, you had like a full sleep while I was doing this show? Oh, yes. Oh, boy. Okay. I'm up. I got a duty at 7, 8, 9. Okay. Well, thank you for coming on here. Glad we got yeah. you back. See, it wasn't a short show, so you didn't have to wake up to the show being done already. I knew you couldn't do two shows in a short shows in a row, Drafted. No, especially happen. not skipping a week. I think if I did, I could have done it if I did it last week, but just skipping a week and all these things happening, I just I, I couldn't do it. So, okay. Anyway, I want to tell you about what's going on with these New Jersey online sports books, and they're accused of doing something illegal. An incorrect assumption people make is that if 
an online site, whether poker or sports betting or casino, whatever it is, if it is legalized and regulated, then it will always behave ethically and legally. And that is not always true. You can trust them more than the non-regulated or uh, regulated by joke jurisdiction sites out there, because basically they just do what they want, and all your only recourse is to try to trash the reputation. But still, a lot of times these online sites, either out of ignorance or greed or arrogance, will attempt to uh, break the law and do what they want. And some people don't question it because they go, they say, look, it's a legalized site. They've got to be following the law, right? But sometimes they're not. So there's an accusation that these New Jersey, uh, some of these New Jersey online sports betting sites are breaking the law regarding cash outs. So this is on uh, Poker Fuse. And there's an article that they released called How to Deal with New Jersey Sportsbooks and Other Internet Gaming Operators that Attempt to Delay Withdrawals. Knowing how to properly lodge a complaint can be helpful in resolving a dispute, how to get your money faster. Now, by the way, this also happened in Nevada in a way with John Mahaffey when they were trying to refuse to let him cash out because they said he didn't play enough, which is also illegal. A, a site in a regulated market does not have a right to demand you have to play a certain amount to get your money off. Your money is always available to be withdrawn. So in New Jersey, they're doing something a bit different, but they are doing some illegal things. So this article says, according to a letter published by the New Jersey Division of Gaming Enforcement, there has been an increase in the number of complaints from players reporting various withdrawal delay attempts implemented by licensed bookmakers in the state. They didn't mention the names or the number of complaints, but it's clear that there is enough pressure coming from the players that it warranted a public statement. The letter states that certain sports books went as far as offering bonuses for those players who decided to reverse their withdrawals and continue gambling. The New Jersey regulator described this practice as unacceptable. And it says in the uh, state rules regarding withdrawals, operators should clearly understand that the division will take regulatory action and impose civil penalties whenever patrons are improperly encouraged or incentivized to rescind the withdrawal requests for the purpose of resuming gaming activity. Now, why would a sports book do this? I think you probably know. Most sports bettors lose partially because of the VIG that eats them alive eventually, and partially because most sports bettors are known as public bettors. A public better is someone who bets on what seems like is the obvious way to bet and is often the wrong way to bet. Now, opposing the public is actually a strategy some people use, but that alone is not going to make you a winning sports better. But it is true that being a public better is a faster way to the poorhouse than attempting to be a sports better who is not a public better. Uh, what is a public sports better? Uh, a public sports better is someone who's going to take uh, the better team and uh, the favorite line. So one team is playing much better than the other. You're always going to bet the better team and take whatever line it is. The 
public will often bet uh, big money lines that are favorites, like minus 400. You have to bet like 400 to win 100. The public will take overs instead of unders because it's not fun to bet on unders. Who wants to root for no scoring? So the public will do things like that. And uh, the public is less inclined to bet on underdogs or under totals or uh, or props, things like that. That uh, and, and also public bettors don't understand teasers very well and bet them to where it becomes big time negative expectation. So that that's what a public sports better does, and that's the sports books love them. So let's say you're a public sports better, a very negative EV sports better, but you get lucky. You just go on a nice run, which happens. I, I knew a negative EV sports better personally who ran up 120k on just a very lucky run in sports. What happened is he, and this was not a high limit better. This is a guy who was uh, starting off kind of small to medium. And then as he won, he kept pressing his bets, and he won on a great streak, and he ran up 120K, which, by the way, it was 120K he really needed. This was not a guy who had a lot of money. And guess what he did? He chunked it all off. So, let's picture this guy gambling on a New Jersey sports book. He wasn't. This was uh, on an offshore sports book where this happened, and it was many years ago. But... Let's let's take this same situation in a New Jersey sports book online. He goes to cash out his 120k and they look at his bets and go, "Oh, this guy's a total losing better. He's guy's a total public better who just gotten real lucky." So, we would love to see him continue to try to win because he's going to chunk this all off and give it back to us. We know it if we just give it enough time. But how do we get him to do this? They go, "Hey, you know, I see you want to withdraw, but if you'd like to keep that money on here, we'll give you $10,000 of additional free play. You'll have to roll it over somewhat, but how do you like $10,000 of free play? And he'd go, whoa, $10,000 of free play? Okay, never mind, no withdrawal. And then chunk, 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 and it's all gone. So that's what they're hoping for. They're trying to keep your money on there. Because as long as your money's on there, they don't have to pay you. Just because your money's balance on the screen, they don't actually have to pay you until you actually take the money off. Also, when you actually take the money off, it's a lot less likely you're going to put it back on and lose it. When the money's just sitting right there, you're more likely to bet it. But this is illegal. By New Jersey law, they cannot provide any kind of incentive to keep your money on the site. Once you've pressed withdraw, they need to withdraw your money. They're allowed to ask you for details that they don't have to process the withdrawal, but they cannot offer you anything to take back the withdrawal. Nor can they unnecessarily delay it. So here's how PokerFuse suggests that you protect yourself from any kind of withdrawal delay tactics. The current betting law in New Jersey does not require operators to immediately process withdrawal requests. They can take an undefined amount of time to verify the player's identity and make sure there's no fraudulent activities. However, as soon as that process is complete, they have the obligation to process the withdrawal as quickly as possible. Bookmakers trying to delay withdrawals by directly communicating with the players and trying to get them to change their mind, even if it's offering them cash bonuses to reverse the withdrawal, are breaking the rules and such communications would be considered an aggravating factor in any disciplinary proceedings against the operator. In the event that a player is approached by a bookmaker in this manner, there is a procedure to file a complaint. 
First step is to document the complaint with the operator. If the original complaint does not produce satisfactory result, the player can take up their complaint with the New Jersey Division of Gaming Enforcement. Now, let me stop right here. That doesn't seem right to me. I'm not saying that... I'm not saying it's not right. I'm not saying their article is incorrect. I'm saying that if this is the procedure, that's not very protective of the player. Because if you have to just ask them to stop pressing you to keep your money on there, then this becomes what I call a negative checkoff scam, where they get away with it as long as the book immediately backs down when someone raises an issue. So if they were to do this to everybody withdrawing that they want to see on there, uh, if people just turn it down and they go, okay, cool, we'll, we'll process it then, that's still illegal because some people are going to take it and stay. So the the instruction should be, if you get an offer like that, not only say no, but immediately complain to the Division of Gaming Enforcement so they can suffer a consequence for it. Like, Like, take a screenshot of it, document it, send it in, and the Department of Gaming Enforcement will put a stop to it. So then it explains how to submit the complaint with the New Jersey Division of Gaming Enforcement, that you have to first file the complaint with the operator itself, that is with the site. Then you have to document your complaint and their response, and then you have to submit the documented complaint with a completed internet gaming dispute form, which you can find online. And you have to send that to the New Jersey Division of Gaming Enforcement. And the, the UK Gambling Commission, which of course regulates UK gambling, recently took on this issue themselves, especially because they were figuring that during COVID this may occur even worse. So they ordered that uh, any licensees in the United Kingdom could not offer to stop withdrawals and could get fined if they try to do so. So I agree that this shouldn't be allowed. You may say, hey, what's the harm if someone wants to get, get a bonus to keep their money on? Why not? Well, because it's it's a sleazy tactic. It's If someone wins and they want to take off their money, then you should let them. You should not try to interfere and keep them – try to get them to keep it on there and keep gambling. Uh, all casinos are required to adhere to responsible gaming rules, and that is uh, they can't try to create – problem gamblers out of their players. Now, many of them are problem gamblers, and there are ways to make problem gamblers show up and gamble more, such as offering them comps, but they are never allowed to pressure people to gamble when they want to stop. Now, I guess one form of it is when people get comps and they're asked by the host, hey, are you going to play more? But that's a little bit different because that's something where they're saying, hey, I'm just letting you know, next time you're not going to get comp this way, this is all you're going to play. But in a situation where people just say, I don't want to gamble anymore, and then they're offered an incentive to keep gambling, that is trying to create an addictive behavior where you're just never getting your money off. Where just, the, 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 What the idea is to just keep offering you bonuses over and over to keep your money on to where eventually you're going to lose it all. You'll just never cash out, and they're trying to facilitate that instead of letting people take their winnings and keep them, or at least keep some of them, uh, when they want to do so. 
It's one thing if the gambler is happy continuing to bet or wants to escalate his bets to press his luck. I don't think it's smart, but if the gambler wants to do that, then that's more understandable. But if they're trying to pressure the gamble not to withdraw, the gambler not to withdraw, even if it's with a friendly offer of a bonus to keep money on there, that is definitely violating any kind of uh, attempt to create an environment of responsible gaming. So it's good that they're putting out these statements. I just don't understand why you have to complain to the operator directly. I think this should be... You should just go tattle to the Division of Gaming Enforcement. That should be the procedure. You shouldn't have to rectify this with the operator. Where where you would rectify this with the operator is where it's not a matter like this. Like, if if there's something where... Like, let's say you go to withdraw, and they say, uh, yeah, we don't really like your ID that you sent in. We we think that uh, you may not be who you say you are. We need to verify it. It would make sense that the first thing that you're instructed to do by the Division of Gaming Enforcement is to communicate with them and say, okay, well, what's wrong? What do you need from me? And if it's reasonable, just do it. And if they're asking for something unreasonable, then at that point, file a complaint. That's where you should try to rectify with the operator first before bothering the Division of Gaming Enforcement. But if they're actually doing something outright against the rules, you should just go report them. That should be the thing you're told to do. I, I don't quite understand that advice. The Division of Gaming Enforcement does take take things pretty seriously in general. In fact, last I saw, they actually are on-premises at brick-and-mortar casinos in New Jersey, where you, you could actually go to a gaming agent who is sitting there in a little office on-premises, which is better than Nevada, where you have to call them to come down. Here, Here they're already there which makes it a lot quicker and makes the casino screw around a lot less. In fact, I remember when I was card counting at Blackjack in New Jersey casinos where they can't kick you out for doing that. I remember feeling a little funny as I was doing it, and they're like shuffling up on me. I'm like, I wonder if they're going to try to find a flimsy reason to kick me out. But I, I felt so assured by the fact that there is a Department of Gaming Enforcement officer sitting right behind me there in his office that... I'm like, okay, if they try any BS here that's against the law, I'm going to go say, hey, bring that guy over here. So there's a difference when the casino can intimidate you and you know you have to wait for a gaming enforcement agent to get down there. When he's right on premises and you can ask for him, then there's a lot less the casino can do to skirt the rules. Online, looks like they're trying. So don't just assume that a casino doing something is legal. It may not be, even something that seems innocent. Always make sure you know the law and you know your rights. Okay, let's talk about the coronavirus. The vaccine distributions continue to be a problem. They continue to have issues all over the country. And there's a lot of blame to go around. First of all, the distribution plan being left up to state and local governments is a mistake. Now, the actual distribution being done by the state and local governments is fine because the federal government, uh, it's too much for them. It's, it's, it would have to be distributed in so many different localities they wouldn't be able to manage it all. So giving it to the states and local governments to do is fine, but they needed to give them some sort of uh, framework on how to do it. There, there should have been a, a definite standard created for 
how this is done. Not just a suggestion like the CDC. There should have been some kind of standard that uh, the states were told to uh, adhere to, or at least really try to adhere to, if there was not the actual federal power to do it. I know there are states' rights issues there that could prevent that, but uh, something where they're really given a strong plan on how to do it and how to set the whole thing up logistically, maybe even uh, develop a website on the federal level that all the states can use. All of that could have been done. But instead, every locality had to set up their own way to do it. And a lot of them didn't do it well, including some big cities. So that's one problem. They have buggy websites. They have poor procedures, a lot of bureaucracy. Then there's there's sometimes not enough vaccines. A lot of times there's vaccines that go to waste because uh, the, the groups of people that can get it are very narrow and sometimes some don't show up. So, so uh, it's, a, it's a big mess. And also, another problem with the vaccine distribution is the very loose requirements of who qualifies in certain groups. And, and this is a problem. This is the problem when you don't make it very specific. Just about every country that's distributing the vaccine right now is doing it the way it makes sense, except the U.S. So what's the way it makes sense? You just do it by age. You do it by age, and if you want to vaccinate the healthcare workers, you do you vaccinate those that work directly with COVID patients, and that's it. That's who you make the top priority, and that's generally what other countries are doing, which is correct. The U.S. complicated the whole thing because number one, vaccinating healthcare workers became incredibly broad. I know a number of people who were quote healthcare workers that got this vaccine and got it legally who should not have gotten it. And when I say should not, I don't mean from a legal standpoint. I mean from a moral standpoint. If you have any peripheral connection to healthcare, you can qualify. So if you have a license to practice healthcare but have not practiced in a long time, you are still a healthcare worker and can qualify. If you are a healthcare worker who does telemedicine, you qualify. If you are a healthcare worker who rarely sees patients and you work behind the scenes or don't see patients at all, you qualify. If you're a healthcare worker who's an administrator who would never have a reason to see patients and may be working from home and for very little risk, you qualify. I even know somebody who works with healthcare in uh, selling the medical equipment and he qualified because he's considered part of the healthcare industry. So it is really stretch of who is, quote, a healthcare worker. And this has left a large group of people able to get the vaccine who are not elderly or in particular immediate need for it. Many people I know who have received the vaccine are in no more need of it right now than I am. In fact, in many cases, they're in less need than I am. Now, I don't go and give myself any exposure, but I would like to, but I can't. And these people can now. Some of them are younger than me. Some of them are a lot younger than me, but they've gotten the vaccine and I have not. And I'm not talking about medical workers who are routinely dealing with COVID-positive patients. You want to give the vaccine to those people? Fine. Makes sense. They have such direct association with people who have COVID. Even if they're young, I can see why they want to get the vaccine. 
But to give this to all, quote, healthcare workers, including ones who don't even see patients, it doesn't make any sense. But boy, did they make that broad. So that what, what's the problem with that is that it uh, puts a lot more competition for getting the vaccine and those who really do need it can't get it. Then there's also the essential worker BS where the U.S. is the only country that decided that, quote, racial equity is going to be a factor or is a recommended factor in distribution of the vaccine. And I don't mean racial equality. Racial equality is good. That means that you make sure that all races have equal access to the vaccine. I agree that should be done. But racial equity means all races shouldn't have equal access to the vaccine. We should actually give more access to the vaccine to other races to make up for other hardships they've had elsewhere in life. That's what racial equity is. That's BS. That shouldn't be happening. We should not be politicizing the vaccine like this. The vaccine should go to those who need it the most. That's who should get it first. And then you go down from there on the priority list. You do not throw in racial politics in it. It doesn't make any sense. You you make sure no race is getting screwed. You make sure that uh, any minority races that are uh, living in circumstances that you think that they could be at a disadvantage, that they are not at a disadvantage, and that should be done, but you should not be giving them an extra advantage to make up for other areas in life where they may be struggling. This is not the place to do that. And this is the only country in the world that I know of that is doing it. And there are many countries that are far to the left of the U.S. in terms of uh, general political policy. But they're not doing that either. So what that also does is, again... It greatly increases the number of people qualifying for the vaccine and people who really need it, like very elderly people, people with major pre-existing conditions. They can't get it. They try and try. And not only that, there's these fail sites that are so poorly designed and they're very user-unfriendly. They're, they're tough for someone like me to use. Can you imagine an old person who barely knows how to turn on a computer trying to get these done? So, so they don't. If they don't have a younger relative who could help them with it, a lot of them just don't bother. Or they try and they fail and they give up. So the fact that there is not some way to do this without being computer literate is another problem. So the, the vaccine distribution has been a disaster. And there's a lot of old people who are very frustrated. There's even some people that have become so desperate they uh, show up early in the morning and line up to get any extra vaccines that are left over. In, in places where they are vaccinating a different priority group and may have some leftovers if not enough people show up. And people stay all day and all night waiting for this. It's insane. This shouldn't be happening. And this is what happened when you make the initial priority groups too big. You have to cut out those that don't really need it. And I know personally a number of people who got it that really don't need it. I mean... All of us who are over 40 need it to some degree, but I'm talking about an immediate need for it, where it could be life-threatening if you don't have it. And I know a lot of people who got it that are not in contact with COVID patients that really should not have gotten it. But yet they didn't break the law. These are not people who 
are secretly uh, pulling shenanigans to get it. And if, it, if they were caught, they'd get in trouble. These are people who are completely following the law as written. Completely following the distribution rules. They just shouldn't be part of it. So this whole thing's been a mess. I do blame the federal government for not providing better guidance. I also blame them for putting out that horrendous recommendation about the very broad definition of a healthcare worker and this racial equity nonsense. Some of this is the fault of Trump and people under him. Some of this is the fault of people who technically worked under Trump but were very left politically and put out uh, that type of a policy. How Trump didn't interfere in that, I don't understand, but that happened. I can't really blame Biden for any of this. He's only been in office for 10 days, so there's only so much he could have done. However, it's not like he's come in and said he's going to reverse these things. In fact, he fully approves of the whole racial equity thing, and he fully seems to approve of the... uh, the quote healthcare worker thing. In fact, I don't, I don't, I'm not even sure if Biden's aware of what's going on with the healthcare worker thing. It's like, seriously, I, this isn't like a joke about Biden being senile. Like this, I really don't know if he knows about that situation. But I, I know if I were president, I would say, and like, let's say I was Biden and I just took over on January 20th. I would look and I'd say, okay, why is the vaccine distribution so bad? And I'd get a report on it. And I'd ask for a neutral report, not a, not a politically biased report, but a neutral report. And I'd say, okay, I think these mistakes were made under Trump, even by some people on my own side who happen to be working for Trump. But, you know, this is how I feel it was done wrong. This is what we're going to change. And one thing you can do is you can look at other countries that are doing it better than we are and say, what are they doing? How come they're doing it better? Now, in some cases, it's easier for them because they have a smaller population or a more concentrated population. Uh, whatever, and so so it's easier to do. I know the U.S. has a big population; it's spread out. There's a lot of different local governments and state governments. I, I know it's a lot different than when you have uh, one government controlling everything, and when there's fewer people and they're all concentrated in one area. I, I understand that is the case in some of these places that are doing better, but still, you can learn some lessons from what's being done correctly elsewhere, or at least semi-correctly. And I would think you'd look and go, wait a minute, why why are we the only country doing this racial equity stuff? Maybe maybe we shouldn't be doing that here. Maybe we shouldn't be politicizing the virus and and the vaccines like this. Maybe maybe if we want to do some nice things for minorities who we feel have been exploited over time and need a break in some way, we'll find a way to do that for them later. Not not with a vaccine. Vaccine, we just got to make sure everybody has equal access to it. And that the was in most in need of it right now get it first that's who gets priority doesn't matter what race they are that that should be the decision that's what's been the decision everywhere else so why they make this needlessly complicated and screw everything up i i don't know and i so i do blame biden for not stopping any of this nonsense and in fact it seems like he agrees with it but I won't say he caused it because he's only been in office. Uh, we're just coming into the tenth day, or the eleventh day. So let's talk about who caused it. If you want to bring up Biden, 
Your boy's out there golfing every day, not doing a goddamn thing. Why well, I, I said that, but I already said that. I said I said I blame Trump yeah. for some of it. I I, I blame Trump but and see, for, yeah, I blame Trump for some of it. How about the whole thing? Because he's the leader, and you're supposed to be accountable if you run your company or business or your country or whatever. Well, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell that you. Cunt wants to blame everybody else. I'll I'll, t- I'll tell you why because. He had, he actually had four million employees under him in the executive branch. You can't supervise four million employees. So where I do fault him is that this nonsense about the racial equity, it did come from an office that's under him. The CDC's under him. And he should have said, no way. I'm not, I'm not allowing this. This is not, uh, uh, try again. He, that's that's what I would have said if the CDC. If I was the, uh, I don't care who's working. I don't care if they're on the left in the CDC. If, if they presented this to me and said we're going to be distributing the vaccine based on racial equity, I say no, you're not. You're distributing it based on need. Uh, that's what I would have said. And go try again. So the fact that he didn't do that was bad. Uh, but it was also bad that that they came up with this at the CDC because that was pretty ridiculous. It was, so there, there was incompetence there, and then. There was uh, in the state and local governments. There's been plenty of screw ups and incompetence, and that shouldn't be just because the federal government failed in their guidance, which they did. Uh, doesn't mean that that means the state and local governments can't do a good job. And some of them have. Some of them have done an okay job. But uh, and it's funny, like the city of Long Beach. I, I was observing them because you know they're in Southern California, not all that close to me. But I, I was observing Long Beach. In fact, Master Scaler used to live there. And uh, they took a lot of pride in doing the vaccine efficiently. And they were actually one of the better distributors of the vaccine, even though they were adhering to this uh, racial equity stuff. And everything was going well until the mayor made a very obnoxious and stupid announcement. And that was, well, everybody, uh, we've done a great job so far. We've got a lot of vaccines out and everything's gone smoothly. And... uh, just letting you know, uh, the second dose, yeah, uh, we didn't hold back any second dose, and uh, we're, we may not have it for you. In fact, there's a good chance we won't have it for you, but but don't worry. Don't worry. Uh, it's okay. If you if you wait too long for the second dose, it'll work just as well. Once you get the second dose, it won't matter that more time than recommended has passed. It'll work just as well. But that, that's not true. That hasn't been studied. He might be right, but he also might be wrong. This has not been studied yet. So he's making this statement, this definitive statement, that, okay, if you don't get it in the time you're supposed to, don't worry about it. It'll be fine. Once you get it, it'll be the same thing. That's not necessarily true. That might be totally false. He's just stating it like it's a fact. He should have said, we don't know. It may be just as effective, but it also may not be. So we're going to try, but if we if we don't get it to you, uh, it, it is possible it'll be less efficacy. He didn't want to admit that because it'll look, make him look bad. So that that was a total BS statement he made, and uh, who knows? This this could leave people somewhat vulnerable. So that even the, the city's doing it well screwed up to some degree. So uh, there, there's been a lot of fail to go around, and uh, it's too bad. There's a lot of mistakes here. I, I have a feeling that eventually everywhere we'll kind of get it together and we'll start to see improvement. And if we have another process of vaccine distribution, for example, if there's a mutation that requires a new vaccine, I have a feeling a lot of the kinks will be worked out by that point. But there's no reason they can't get it right the first time. It's the same thing I always say about the World Series. Like when the World Series introduces a new event, 
And I go, oh, I know there's going to be tons of fail with this. It's going to be tons of fail. It's going to be six-hour lines. And sure enough, tons of fail on six-hour lines. And I go, why, why don't they foresee this? Like the Big 50 in 2019. I saw it coming. I said it on the show it's going to happen, and it happened. And I go, why can't they plan for this? Why, why do they have to have fail first and then adjust to it when they, when they can see the fail coming a mile away? And that's, that's how I feel about these, these vaccines. That a tremendous job was done by these pharmaceutical companies to come up with it so fast and, and like Moderna and Pfizer to come up with a vaccine that is a new type that had never been done before, or at least never been released before, and is, is super effective, apparently. So great job in less than a year to get that done. And then to screw up what should be the easiest part, distribution, and they really should have had some practice runs and other things. They, they had a long time to prepare for this. They didn't have to scramble and come up with this all on the fly. They, they knew this was going to come. They knew that eventually the vaccine will be ready. They should have been all ready to produce and distribute it in a sensible and fair and uh, efficient fashion. And they were not. They're acting like they just had this dropped on them and they had to quickly come up with something in one day. I saw something on the news yesterday, Jeff. I guess West Virginia had opted out of the federal program just to do it themselves, and they've got like 90% of the people done already. Well, good. I mean, that's, that's some huge system. number like that. But it's, yeah, it's amazing. You know, you get one competent governor in, <laughs> and then they can just take it by the horns. I mean, I'm sure West Virginia is a little easier to handle than some bigger cities, but hey, got to give them some credit. Yeah, I didn't see that, but if that's true. That's that's great. I mean, that's it is true. Like, it, it's amazing if you get someone that cuts through the BS and that sees what needs to be done and gets on people to not screw up and do it right how much better results you can get than when you just let bureaucrats run it with no accountability and you kind of just throw something hastily together and hope it works. Like it's, it's amazing what differences you can see in, in government and even in large organizations when there's someone really on top of things and when there's not. And when the whole thing kind of just runs uh, with no direction and no efficiency. And unfortunately, it's usually the latter. So... Very disappointing to see this, and I, I, I have no idea when I'm going to get vaccinated. I mean, even Biden is saying, at first he's saying by the end of spring that we should get this done. First he was saying by April, then he changed it to the end of spring, then he changed it to the end of summer, all within like a week. The end of summer is kind of like, ugh. I mean, here the vaccine is right there, and I may not get it until September? I mean, that would be insane. But maybe. I might not get it till September. I think I'd get it before then, but who knows? So they could definitely be doing a lot better. So, in other COVID news, you know I've been complaining about the way New York handled it with the nursing homes and how they were covering up the real death toll from this? Because uh, when asked about this, Andrew Cuomo has always avoided it, and New York just would not release the real data on what really happened in the nursing homes. And people have been demanding it. They said, look, you, know, you guys screwed up. You, you forced COVID-positive patients into the nursing homes, and a lot of extra people died. 
and this shouldn't have happened, even though it was early in the pandemic. Some people saying, oh, it was early. They didn't know back then. Of course they knew back then. I remember when I first heard about this and I told Benjamin it was happening. And Ben's, Ben, who was, was nine years old, said, why would they do that? Why would they put people in a nursing home who have COVID? It's going to kill everybody. I said, how come a nine-year-old sees this and Cuomo doesn't? Like, it was crazy. So this isn't one of these things like months later when we know more about COVID, we're criticizing this. This was something at the time was stupid. It was just plain stupid. They did it in New York. They did it in Michigan. They did it in Pennsylvania. So uh, in New York, which was having the worst problem at the time, it, it killed a lot of people. Remember, New York was a disaster in the spring. They just had a terrible COVID there, problem there in the spring, especially in New York City. In fact, that's kind of what led to it because uh, Cuomo didn't do this because he's evil and wants to kill people. Cuomo did this because he thought it was right, but it was really stupid. The thinking at the time was that there was a panic they were going to run out of hospital beds. And a lot of the nursing homes had open beds. And they thought, oh, wait a minute. Most of the people with COVID are old. Most of the people in the hospital with COVID are old. Nursing homes have open beds. Hospitals are rapidly filling up. Rather than just let them fill up and having to deny people care, why don't we take the people who are still COVID positive but stable and move them to nursing homes? And yeah, that will put the other residents there at risk, and these are the most vulnerable people, old people in nursing homes, but... We'll just separate them. We'll put them in in a wing by themselves. and It'll be fine, right? Well, no, that was a horrible idea because, uh, number one, it can spread through the ventilation system. And number two, it can spread th- by employees. They didn't bother to separate the employees between the uh, uh, the COVID people and the non-COVID people. So uh, tons of people died in the nursing home because of this. This decision was made in New York. This decision was made in Michigan. This decision was made in parts of Pennsylvania. It killed a lot of extra people in nursing homes that shouldn't have died. And this has always been something that a lot of people don't want to discuss or want to acknowledge. New York has been long asked for the numbers, as has Michigan, and we're not getting them. Well, finally, some information has come out. In a 76-page report... It was said that uh, the actual death toll of COVID-19 may be 50% higher than officials claim. And uh, this came from Attorney General Letitia James on Thursday. So this is not from some uh, right-wing crazy source that wants to uh, make Cuomo look bad. This is from the... uh, State Attorney General Letitia James, who is a Democrat. But the 76-page report said that uh, some nursing homes underreported resident fatalities to the State Department of Health and failed to enforce infection control measures. And there's 20 currently under investigation, 20 nursing homes. The tally right now of 8,700 deaths in New York and nursing homes may balloon to over 13,000 when they count the nursing home deaths properly, which is crazy. And it said that uh, 4,000 people or more died after 
the March 25th uh, mandate that nursing homes have to admit, quote, medically stable coronavirus patients. And that uh, in this report, Letitia James said that it may have put residents at increased risk of harm in some facilities. Yeah, you think? So that's uh, that just came out. That's the first attempt to quantify how many people died there in the nursing homes. It looks like maybe more than 13,000. Many of them probably unnecessarily. Uh, according to the New York Post, uh, Governor Cuomo callously said, who cares if they died in the hospital, died in a nursing home, they died. And what he's referring to is how an underreporting tactic out of New York was that if someone caught COVID in a nursing home and then was rushed to the hospital to save them and they died in the hospital, it was not considered a nursing home death. That's really bad. That is really, really bad. So, and technically, if they if they stumbled out of the nursing home and fell on the sidewalk in their final few seconds on earth alive, that wasn't a nursing home death. That's a sidewalk death. Now, that didn't happen, but that would have been counted the same way. So basically, if you rush someone to the hospital because they're about to die because they got COVID, caught COVID in a nursing home, it's not a nursing home death, guys. It's not. Uh, Cuomo actually had the nerve to brag about the nursing home death rate in New York, saying that a third of all deaths in the nation are from nursing homes, and in New York, we're only about 28% were below the national average. But who cares, he said. 33%, 29% died in the hospital, died in the nursing home. They died, he said. This got a lot of people angry. Someone tweeted back to Cuomo, my uncle died in a nursing home from COVID two weeks ago. And then uh, he, he wrote, I care. Another person wrote, pathetic. And then someone wrote, uh, how about the families who lost loved ones? We need to know where the contagion spread and if the governor's march order doomed many of them to suffer and die alone from COVID. Remember, the, nobody was allowed to visit them. So if you had a relative who was dying of COVID then, who caught it in a nursing home, you weren't allowed to visit them and say goodbye. They had to go die alone. So th- this was uh, very bad. This was very, very bad. And uh, Cuomo is still not taking responsibility for it. So this, this is not someone who should be lauded for his coronavirus efforts, Andrew Cuomo. And if you look at the facts, you may say, oh, this is just a Republican bashing Cuomo. No, no go look at the facts on him. Go, go check this out. This is someone who got a lot of plaudits because he went on TV every day and bashed Trump in, in a very straightforward-sounding manner. He's good at sounding straightforward while not being straightforward. I know all politicians like to do that, but he he has that down to a science. But that, that was a tremendous mistake, and he has yet to take responsibility for it, that this was a tremendous mistake. It'd be one thing if he said, yeah, I, I screwed up. I was trying to do something good in free hospital beds, and I made the wrong call. Instead, it's the, the whole time has been a cover-up. So it's it's really bad. And it shows you that uh, the screw-ups with COVID, the mistakes that were made, were really everywhere. It wasn't all on one side. There's a belief, oh, if if only Trump wasn't president when this happened, we would have had different results. No, 
Trump wasn't uh, responsible for this decision. Didn't make the decision in Michigan. There's there's a lot of decisions that Democrats have been making regarding COVID that are anti-science. This was one of them. So I'm not saying Republicans have made no mistakes in this. I'm not saying Trump made no mistakes. Just saying you, you got to be realistic. You, got, you, you can't say one party is a bunch of uh, rubes who don't believe in the science and just uh, make stupid decisions and killed 400,000 something people. The other party would have followed the science and done a, an impeccable job. That's not, that's not true. And if you look at the examples, you see it's not true. Some of these were good-hearted but terrible decisions, like what Cuomo did. Again, I don't think he meant poorly or, or wanted people to die. I just think he uh, made a really dumb decision that even at the time was dumb. There are some decisions that were made that just were based upon not knowing well. Listen to this. This is uh, him blaming politics. Where this starts is, uh, frankly, a, a political attack from prior federal administration, HHS, their great spokesperson, Michael Caputo, who's Roger Stone protege, who said, we had more nursing home deaths in New York because of something that the state health department did. Uh, this report affirms everything the commissioner said for the past year. Federal guidance uh, said that uh, people who were in hospitals but who were presumed not contagious could go back to a nursing home, which could handle them. Not all nursing homes can handle them. And the nursing home had to, by law, say that they could handle those people. Okay, there's a lot not, not true there. Um, first of all, I don't know about this federal guidance. I've never heard of this before, that the federal government said this is okay. If they did, hardly any states agreed with it. I, I never heard before the federal guidance said this. But uh, I know that there wasn't a single red state that did this. So you'd have to wonder if this is federal guidance from a Republican administration. How come it was three Democratic states doing this and, and no Republican states? That's the first question. The second thing is, the nursing homes didn't want to do this. The nursing homes were saying, please don't make us do this. Please don't make us do this. And he's like, no, you have to do this. you got to take them. So it's it's not they have to say they're ready. It's, they, they were saying we can't do it. This isn't going to be safe. And they were told, do it anyway. It's excuses. That's what it is. By the way, unrelated to this, before I move on to the next topic... Ryan LaPlante used to listen to this show, one of the earlier openly gay male poker players, by the way, won a bracelet a few years ago. Good tournament player. Ryan LaPlante announced today on Twitter that he went to go play a live tournament. And he knew he'd get some backlash and said, I know that I know about the risks. I, I, I know I'm not recommending others do this. I know I'll get some criticism, but, uh, you know, I'm being careful. And, of course, he, he got people bashing him for this. Now, Ryan LaPlante, I think, is like 29 years old. He's like about 20 years younger than me. Uh, not one response, not one response said anything about his age until I responded. I, I had to finally step in and say, 
you know, you guys are missing the whole thing. All the responses he got were basically either encouraging, like, okay, go ahead and play, no problem, but not based upon his age, just like people who were denying this is dangerous to go do, or people shaming him and telling him how irresponsible he is. There wasn't one person who said, okay, I understand why you're doing it because you're young, but older people shouldn't. Not one. Why? Because that narrative has not been pushed. That narrative that the media should have pushed has not been pushed. Why? Because they're afraid young people will be reckless and spread it, so they don't want to put out the message to young people that you're okay, and therefore people who are not young aren't sufficiently uh, convinced that they should stay away. It's, it seems like every day on Facebook, I have an argument with somebody who doesn't understand that there's a tremendous difference between being 25 and 50 with COVID. They understand there's a difference between being 75 and 25, or 75 and 50. They don't understand the difference between 25 and 50. They, they kind of see it as all the same. I, I had a Facebook friend posting about a club, a nightclub that was uh, advertising about uh, like some event they were having and trying to get a bunch of people to come there and the whole description of things seemed pre- pretty unsafe. And so I actually agreed with the criticism. And the person who was posting this was in their early 50s. And I don't think it was a nightclub aimed at all young people. I think it was kind of like a mixed age crowd they were aiming this at. And so I agreed with this person. Yeah, this sounds very unappealing to go to. and looks It seems like a COVID trap. But I did say, I did say, okay, I understand why you would not go to this, and I understand why it would be stupid for anyone around our age to go to this. But young people who don't have exposure to older people, uh, it's not that bad for them to go. And boy, did that person bite my head off. What? Older, young people die from this too. Young people get terrible things happening too. And I said, not really. Like occasionally, but if they don't have any pre-existing condition, if you're 25, you're you're really not going to have much of an effect to this unless you're super unlucky. Well, see, so there is a risk. So there is a risk. I go, okay, then why aren't you worried about the flu? Same thing happens with the flu. There, There's the occasional young person who dies of the flu. In fact, there's a number of them every year. Look it up. How come you're not avoiding uh, going anywhere then? How come? How come it's only this? I said, do you understand if the danger of COVID for everybody was the same as it was for people under 30, we wouldn't be having this conversation? There would be no lockdowns. There would be no panic because it would be something killing a very tiny percentage of people and harming a very tiny percentage of people. The reason this is a big deal is because of the people 35 and older, and especially 45 and older. That's why it's a big deal. That's why we have shutdowns. That's why there's all the panic about this. 99% of deaths are people 35 and older. 99%. Almost all of the permanent damage from COVID is people 30 and over, and mostly 40 and over. So to say that young people, because a few of them are super unlucky, and a few of them have pre-existing conditions, plus are super unlucky, and that most of them are actually safer with COVID than they are catching the flu, like if you're, if you're 19 years old, you're better off getting COVID than the flu. Um, people are not aware of this. And they, they very angrily argue if you dare say that somebody who's young is pretty safe. 
Now, again, if this young person lives with a parent, that's that's not good because they'll probably give it to the parent who's not safe. They live with a grandparent even worse. If they work in a place where a lot of older people go, even not really old people, even like middle-aged people, and okay, that can be a problem too. They can spread it. But if this is a, a typical young person who's not going to have that much contact with, with older people, then uh, it's not a big deal. And if they do have contact with other people, then the, the concern is who they spread it to, not about what's going to happen to them. But there's such little understanding about that, and it's it's frustrating. There's, there's been... Uh, it's, and this is on purpose. This was this was not. People are stupid. They were misled, and it bothers me. And yet, you don't hear much complaining about this. You hear about idiotic complaining that oh, it's not a dangerous thing. COVID's not dangerous. That it's it's, a, it's a, a frenzy ripped uh, that was whipped up by the by the left to screw Trump. That's not true. It was a justified frenzy. That's the reason I I don't go anywhere. It was a justified frenzy for people who were older. The older half of the population, which I'm in. But uh, there also has been a lot of dishonesty and a lot of dishonesty by omission. And I still see it. I mean, the fact that Ryan LaPlante would post this and not a single one of his responses mentions his age on either side shows you that there's a lot of confusion about this. And and I, I've always said the best way to look at COVID is like a mathematical equation. A lot of times math answers everything. And it's a mathematical equation in various ways. Your risk is a certain percentage depending upon your health and your age. Mostly age, but also health. And uh, you should adjust your life based upon that risk. Because everything in life is a risk. Every time you take a drive down the street, there's a risk. So... Everything you do every day has an element of risk to it. And you balance that risk with whether you're willing to take that risk. You, you can't take no risk in life. It's impossible. So same with COVID. You have to look at what your realistic risk is and uh, adjust accordingly. I decided that the permanent lung damage or other permanent damage that can happen to someone my age is not worth taking that chance. And also the outside chance that I'd be one of the unlucky ones who dies, which isn't the same as someone 25 who's super unlikely to, to die. At my age, it's not super unlikely, it's just unlikely. So that's what I decided. But, but also it's a math equation as far as your chance of catching it. If you expose yourself a lot to catching it, there's a good chance you'll eventually get it. If you expose yourself very little, there's a very small chance you'll get it. It's, uh, I, I say, think of it like a poker bad beat. If you play 100,000 hands, there's going to be some horrible beats you take in there. If you play t- 10 hands, you're unlikely to take a really horrible beat. It's the same thing with COVID. If you uh, keep doing something over and over, even if the chance is relatively small, you'll catch COVID. Eventually, you'll catch it from repetition. Anyway, just wanted to throw that in there. Let's move on to the next topic uh, related to COVID. The double and triple masking is something that is being suggested. I thought it was a joke at first. I saw a picture MSNBC had posted. I I really thought 
it was some kind of parody where they showed a double mask and a triple mask. The double mask I could almost accept, but the triple mask <laughs> just looks so weird. <laughs> so the, the recommendation was that uh, single masks, single cloth, cloth masks don't do enough. Which is strange because we were told otherwise for like the last year, but single cloth masks don't do enough, we're being told now. But if you put on two masks, then it significantly improves. And three masks is even better. So I think they claimed a study showed that a double mask has a 75% efficacy and a triple mask has 90% efficacy. They did not mention what the single mask efficacy, which must have been that it was pretty bad. That's probably why they didn't mention well, it. Well, I think, I think too, Jeff, and I did have a, you know, part of some group I'm involved with. Some, some doctor came and talked about this. So what he said was they want you to double mask just because they've been finding, like, the longer you wear the single mask, it start, you know, might get a little damp. So then that breaks down some of the integrity of it. So that way, if you have a second one, it kind of, you know, is an extra shield above that. So I guess the third one would be if you had it on an extra long time, you know, maybe it's getting a little wet around the second one, I guess. I don't know. It just, it just seems kind of crazy to me because, like, well, where does it stop? So so I, it, why didn't they test four masks? I bet four masks would get, like, 95%. Like, maybe if you wear 10 masks, it's 100%. Maybe the solution to stopping COVID is we all wear 10 masks. Like I, I'm not joking well, here. Like, like, like no, well, Jeff, hold on. They had a solution at CES. The, 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 what is they that? They had a uh, yeah. I mean, it's basically this really cool kind of. You know, it kind of goes under your chin, around your nose. It's like a hard plastic. I mean, I just saw pictures of it, obviously, because CES is virtual. And then, like where your mouth is, it's clear, so you could see the mouth. It's got a built-in microphone, and then. Bluetooth headphones. So anyway, that's kind of I think what what could be coming in the high end mass. But uh, but how do you breathe through it? Well, you yeah, I think you breathe through. So I think it has like some filtering system and everything else, oh, okay. and that's how you breathe through it. So well, I don't, it just seems like I mean something that's a device designed to be uh, at least somewhat comfortable and function much better than a cloth mask. I can understand. I just think like wearing multiple masks, one on top of the other, it, it just seems kind of uncomfortable and ridiculous and also kind of hard to maintain, even if you're willing to do it. Uh, I, I would think that they're going to start falling off because they, they don't stay on as well. If you have one mask over another, over another, or another, just think about it. Like, because uh, it's, it's not like wearing a jacket or something, which is securely on your body. This is a mask which can easily fall off. If uh, you know, I, I sometimes have one mask fall off if I uh, move my head the wrong way or bend down the wrong way or if I uh, scratch my ear and it knocks it off. Like I, I have had it slip off before, and I quickly grab it and put it back on. So, like, or, or slip down. So, so imagine like two or three. I would think you, you could start having the outer layers fall off. The whole thing seems like something that would be good in theory. But I can't imagine working. And I, I also think it, it kind of just, it kind of has bad optics. It kind of looks crazy. It kind of starts to look stupid. Like, okay, what's next? So the next week they're going to tell us to wear five masks? Like, uh, people are going to start thinking that and just not want to cooperate is the problem. And then, like, I, I had people sending me this article 
and writing, oh, come on, fuck off. Not telling me to fuck off, but they're actually telling like the, 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 the people giving this advice to fuck off because they, they think it's so outrageous. So uh, th- this is the problem is you've got to ask people to do something reasonable or they're just not going to do it. And that's been some of my problem with a lot of the lockdowns is that there are some things that people are told not to do that are pretty safe that they shouldn't be restricting. Because if you restrict too much, people are going to start saying, screw it. I, I'm going to, I'll just do what I want then because I can't, I, I can't follow all these crazy rules, so F it. And then they, uh, and then they behave much less responsibly. A, a good example is uh, telling people they can't go to parks, they can't go to the beach, they, they, you, you start, they can't do outdoor dining, so then they say, okay, well, I'll just go to my friend's house then. That's, that's a lot more dangerous than being at a park or a beach. So that, that, that's where you start seeing problems like that. You've, you've got to, you can't just always look at what is the total optimal way to act. You have to look at what is going to get cooperation. And if you think what you're suggesting is going to lead to less cooperation and more backlash, you just don't suggest it. you got to look at what's going to actually work, not what in theory would work if everybody followed it. So I think that's sometimes a mistake too, that they're, the human behavior, especially in the U.S., which is very kind of rebellious in general and individualistic. Yet you have to look at that before you make suggestions and not just always suggest what you think will work great. I'm not even doubting that three masks is better than one. Like I'm sure it is. I'm not I'm not that part I'm not laughing at. Okay. Uh speaking from of Pennsylvania, which I mentioned earlier, with uh regard to COVID, I want to go back to that. There was a lot of talk of a, a an appointed uh, person in the Biden administration, a transgender doctor named uh, Rachel Levine, who was appointed to be assistant health secretary, who was the first uh, openly transgender person to uh, get a uh, a position like that. I don't know if assistant health secretary is officially in the cabinet, but uh, whatever it is, it's the first person of a position of of that uh, level in the government to to be appointed to such a thing who's openly transgender. And everything we saw about this, we saw one of two reactions. So this this is an older person. I think this person's like in their early sixties, like sixty three or something. And uh, so you see the picture of this person, and it, this person does not pass for a woman very well, like at all. Like this, it really looks like a, a, a dude with long gray hair who just says they're a woman, like a kind of like a heavy dude with long gray hair. Like it really, it's kind of a scary looking picture. And the, like this, there are certain transgenders who pass as women very well, and. You know, you have to look really carefully to tell, or sometimes you can't even tell. And then there's certain ones who don't. And a lot of times that's just based upon genetics and how you look and how how easily you could pass and also how much effort you put into it. But uh, this person does not pass well and is older, so there's a lot of jokes about uh, the way Rachel Levine looks. And uh, I guess Rachel Levine even kind of looked like the, uh, the, the, the crazy scientist in... Uh, in Independence Day, and people were laughing at that, and uh, so so you got a lot of mocking 
of the way Rachel Levine looks, which yeah isn't really relevant here. I I, I understood the comments, and I, I admit Rachel Levine doesn't look like a woman at all, but. Whatever it's like, that's not that relevant about how competent Rachel Levine is at her job. So on the right, you mainly saw the mocking of how Rachel Levine looked, and how, oh, this is a man. How can he even say this is a transgender? It's just a guy who grows his hair long. He says he's a woman. Like, okay, that that's not really the, a fair criticism here, as far as being appointed to the job. On the left. Lots of praise. Oh, this is beautiful. This is great. What a great day for transgender rights. Blah, 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 blah. Well, okay. Both sides missed it. Both sides missed what should have been the story. The story should not have been, this is the first transgender whatever. The story should not have been, oh, look how unattractive and non-passable this person is. That that should have been the argument. Neither should have been the argument at all. What should have been brought up was Rachel Levine's recent history which was about a year ago. And back then, nobody knew who it was. But uh, I knew who Rachel Levine was. I remembered Rachel Levine long before Biden appointed Rachel Levine to the position. And that was because the decision to force COVID-positive patients into Pennsylvania nursing homes was by, yes, Rachel Levine. But it was worse. It was worse than Cuomo. Because at least Cuomo believed in what he was doing. Rachel Levine did not. And how do I know that? Because Rachel Levine actually has a mother who is still alive. And as you can imagine, someone who's like 63 years old, their mother is pretty old. So Rachel Levine's mother was like 95 or something. And in a nursing home. Well... When you make the decision to force COVID-positive patients into a nursing home, when you're the one actually making that decision, as Rachel Levine was with the uh, position they had in uh, Pennsylvania, this affects your own mother. It's a bit of a problem. So if you know deep down that this isn't safe, if you know this is going to put people in nursing homes at risk, you know you're going to put your own mother at risk, what do you do? How about... Move your mother out of the nursing home right before you make that decision. That happened. Rachel Levine took all kinds of heat for that. It was obvious. It was obvious that she knew. She knew that this decision was going to kill additional people in nursing homes and did not want her mom to die. So basically it was... Everybody else's mother can die, not mine. I'm going to make a decision which is going to kill your mom, but not my mom. My mom has to survive. My mom's more important than yours because I'm an important government official. My own policy may kill your mom, but I I make a lot. I make five hundred thousand a year. I can afford to put my mom in a hotel, which is what Rachel Levine did. Like right before this policy, right before. Well, when this was brought up, I mean, you can Google it and read about it if you think I'm making this up or you think I'm exaggerating. When this was brought up and Rachel Levine took all kinds of criticism for this, she said, oh, my mother just wasn't comfortable there. So she wanted to move out. Well, yeah, you think? Because you're, you're, you're making a policy that COVID-positive patients 
are going to come into that nursing home. Of course, your mom's not comfortable. If I were your mom, I wouldn't be comfortable either. I'd say my son-daughter is an idiot. So this is someone who wasn't willing to let their own mother suffer the consequences of their decision. But other people's moms had to. That should have been an immediate disqualifier before being appointed to anything. But this was not discussed very much. Yeah, a few right-wing outlets picked it up and discussed it, but you didn't see any mainstream media discussing it. And uh, even a lot on the right more focused on uh, how Rachel Levine looked rather than this pretty horrendous history. This was someone I had talked about on the show at the time, a year ago. A little less than a year ago, but it was in, like, I think May or something, or April or May of 2020. But I couldn't believe that when I read it back then. And then I'm like, oh, wow, I can't can't believe this has got appointed by Biden. I don't even think Biden knew. I think Biden was trying to be inclusive and okay, I'm going to do something revolutionary. I'm going to I'm going to appoint a, a transgender into a uh, an important position. This person seems to have good qualifications. Okay, let's put him in here. If Biden did know, I don't know why he did it because that that was a pretty embarrassing thing. But fortunately, uh, this isn't being covered. But but go look it up. I, I talked about this last year. It's not like I'm just picking on. Rachel Levine, because uh, she got appointed to a position by Biden. I was talking about this last year when it happened. I thought it was outrageous. And and the reason I think it's so outrageous is because common sense said this is not going to work. Common sense says, what the hell are you doing? And, And obviously, because the mom got moved out. So much is a bad identity these days. And it shouldn't be. I, I remember when uh, we were taught that we were supposed to not pay attention to people's identity, and treat them all just as human beings and not worry about what color people are or anything else about them. Just treat them all the same. That should, that should be the goal, I would think. We're getting away from that. So I just wanted to point that out. I don't have much else here. I actually got past 17 topics faster than I thought I would. Not that this was a short show. It was a long show. Troy Drisky, you, uh, what's going on with you these days? You, uh, uh, I assume you're going to be waiting a long time for the vaccine as well? Yeah. You know, I mean, where I am, it's, you know, I mean, I've got, I'm kind of away from, from everybody. You know, we've got a spread out area up here, so I'm not really in a rush. I'm trying to get my mom in. She doesn't seem to be too much of a rush either, just because she's not seeing a ton of people. But um, yeah, you should anyway. You know, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, exactly. She just doesn't want to go there where there's a big mob of people. Yeah, you know, I guess right now. So, which I get. Hopefully in like a you know couple of weeks, it'll chill a little bit. I get her appointment. I actually, uh, I was with my parents for the first time in a while uh, when COVID kicked up. I, I actually didn't see them for some time. Believe it or not for my sake, not theirs. They were actually going out more than me. So I didn't want to catch it from them. <laughs> they weren't going to get it from me because I don't go anywhere. Uh, but uh, when I got the uh, the colonoscopy, it was actually where, where I chose to go get it was actually closer to them than to me. So I stayed with them when I got it done. And, and they uh, they picked me up. But uh, 
they got the first dose of the vaccine. It was very tough, and they, they put tremendous effort into getting an appointment. Unfortunately, they're they're good at this sort of thing, especially for their age. But they they really put a lot. Of, I mean, a lot of time online searching, searching, searching. Like they they were just hammering these sites. As far as like they didn't pull any shenanigans, they were just like hammering the sites over and over and over and right, over. Right, just like, like reload, reload. reload. Yeah. yeah, and they were both doing it like all day and all night, and then uh, they they finally got it, and and they said so they got uh, they they were lucky, and they, they they got the first dose. Now they're panicking trying to get the second dose. I even offered to look for them in the middle of the night. I said, you know what, uh, maybe some things will refresh in the middle of the night, and I can sign you up. But so far, every time I look, there's nothing. But now they're worried about the second dose, and while I was over there, they're constantly talking about the second dose. It's like that's all I'm hearing when I'm over there is about the second dose, and because they want to get it in time, and they can't get it too soon either. So they need to get it in that window, and it, it's the, the whole thing's a mess. But I, I'm glad they at least got the first dose. At least they're somewhat protected now. And you know they don't they they're careful, but they're not as careful as they should be, which is. Why I wasn't seeing them once the once the rates went up in Southern California. You had to go to the grocery store, things like that, and I, I don't do things like that. I don't I don't go anywhere, and uh, that's why I wasn't like uh, if they were as careful as I was, then I would feel guilty about uh, going to get the colonoscopy and then perhaps bringing COVID home to them. Though there probably wasn't time for them to catch it because I wasn't there that long after I got the colonoscopy. I left with like I left about twenty four hours after the procedure was done. That wouldn't be long enough to spread it to them, I think. But uh, they they go a lot more places than that, so it really wasn't increasing their risk very much overall. And obviously, I didn't catch COVID there, so it's fine. But they they are they also had already gotten the vaccine, thankfully, uh, uh, before I came. So uh, they're not fully immune by any chance, but uh, they at least had the vaccine and somewhat are protected. But I, I was glad to see at least they got the first dose. But I'll, I'll feel more comfortable when they get the second one. And then they'll probably be pretty safe from it. And they can't wait to go back out and do things and travel and do things like that because uh, yeah, they've kind of felt trapped like everybody else has. And especially knowing what'll happen if they catch it. In fact, as I said, I would be more careful if I were them. It's kind of funny that the I'm more careful than they are, but uh, there's only so much I can do. They they think I'm overdoing it, and I said no. I just I just don't want it. I I, I want to bring the chance to just about zero, except for essential things. I even told them they really wanted me to get this colonoscopy, and you see why they were right. But. Uh, I told them I wouldn't have gotten it in January if it wasn't for the uh, anemia that I suddenly experienced. And, and by the way, the anemia probably was from the polyps. So looks like my reason to do it was correct, to do it still during COVID, but otherwise I would have waited. And uh, my dad is actually waiting. He he actually needs his a colonoscopy again. It's been three years, but he's, he's waiting a few more months until the vaccine is... Uh, until he's got the vaccine and it's fully uh, the amount of time has passed sufficiently to have the full protection which is smart because at yeah, his age you don't want to get COVID 
I, I see why your mom is hesitant to be among the big mob of people. And my parents kind of thought that as they were there because they were in that big mob of people. <laughs> they like, it would suck if we caught COVID here trying to get the vaccine. But they took the chance. But yeah, that's it, it'll be good. I think a lot of people like around our age will feel a lot better for our parents once they have the vaccine. Definitely. My dad either just got it or has an appointment early next week. You know, so he's a little more active, and he lives in the marina, you know, in, in one of these bigger buildings with a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, his wife's younger. You know, she's like three years older than me. Oh, wow. So she's taking good <laughs> care of him, you know, and she's more kind of a, you know, yeah, she's helping him, so that's good. Wow. It it's, uh, sounds like a big age difference there between his, his wife yeah, and Yeah, they just got married like two years ago. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Is it strange to have like a stepmom who's like your age? I know. I saw her license plate. It said like 1964. I'm like, wait a minute. That can't be the birthday. I was born in 67. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. I, I, yeah, it would be weird to me. So my, my parents are still together, so I never had to deal with like any kind of weird age difference of a uh, someone they're dating or marrying. And uh, uh, that's something I'll never have to deal with unless, uh, unless like, Whoever dies first, the other chooses to go be with somebody else. But they, they like by the time that happens, they may just be too old and not want to bother with that anyway. Uh, yeah, exactly. Which, which I'm kind of hoping. I kind of don't. I, I kind of wouldn't want to get used to that at this point. So I, I feel fortunate. I know a lot of people. I know, including you. I the, like their parents got a divorce at some point, and I know that's like half the people. So. I, I always felt fortunate that I was in the the half that didn't have to see that, but uh, so it is nice seeing them together, and the fact they're still alive is also good. I know for your parents, even older, they're still alive. That's great too. But uh, yeah, I don't know how I'd feel though if like if one of them was with someone that was like close to my age. I guess they're both happy there. I will say, you know, if I was. I always wondered this. If I'm like 80 years old, like, would I be able to be, like, physically attracted to other 80-year-olds? Will there be some point where I, like, can look at another 80-year-old and think, oh, she's hot? Like, will that be, will that be possible? Will that change with me over time? Well, they just have, like, no sex drive then, so it won't matter. I don't know. That's kind of hard to picture right now. For sure. <laughs> now, it is true, when I was younger, I wasn't able to really picture being attracted to women in their late 40s. And now I am with someone in the late 40s, and I am very attracted to her, because I'm that age too. But it was a lot easier to picture that than being attracted to like, someone super old, when I'm super old. But I don't know, it's probably changed with time. But, but then there's also something to be said if uh, if you're with someone your own age, then there's a lot of advantages you get from it that don't come from uh, physical attraction necessarily. So that uh, I think that's probably the way I'd want to go anyway. But like I, I, I hope I wouldn't have to. I, I I don't think I'd enjoy being single and trying to be on the dating scene when I'm 80. 
I don't think that's something I'd want to start with. And it's kind of hard to picture. Who knows? I may not make it to 80. If I didn't get rid of that polyp, I may not have made it to 55. After I heard I had that, I was like, wow, that's weird. What if I like did nothing? Like, that would have... That would have been, like, really bad. So I'm glad... I'm glad such a thing exists. I even looked up when colonoscopies came into practice. When, when do you think that was? When do you think they first started doing colonoscopies? Maybe, uh, I don't know, 50s, 40s, 50s? Not even I don't close. know. <laughs> the, the early 80s, like 82, 83. Oh, wow. Yeah, so like what, what killed my grandmother, there was no way to stop it. There was no such thing back in 73. They they had developed they had just developed it in like sixty nine, but it was not it was kind of just invented and it was kind of like it wasn't in practical use yet. I don't know why it took like thirteen years to get going, but uh the the first application of it was like in sixty nine and then it took all the way to like eighty two before it started being uh something done in regular practice. And then still it was not all that common. It wasn't emphasized as much as it should have been, which is why my dad didn't do it till his mid fifties. Whereas now they try to bring a lot more awareness to it. That's what I'm trying to do now since I was almost forty nine and had all these polyps, including this big one that was precancerous. I said, Okay, yeah, I, I want the listeners of the show to be aware of this. And to be aware it's not a big deal and it's it's not uh if it was a big deal I would tell you guys. Like I believe me I I'm honest about this, and if it was something, like, awful, then I would tell you. But it, it wasn't. It was actually less, much less of a big deal than I expected in, in several ways. I'm not looking forward to the next one. I, I wish I didn't have to do this every three years, but had I known this would be the experience, I actually would have done it years earlier. So... uh I, that's why I encourage all the listeners to do it. Because if you have a family history, then you know, there's a decent chance that this could get you. I, I wouldn't say you're a favorite to have that happen. You're not even close to a favorite, but it's not like a tiny chance. If you have a family history, then there there, there is a fair chance that you would get colon cancer. Sometimes it can go on without being very symptomatic for a while, and by the time you discover it, it's too late. If you catch it at stage one, you have a pretty good chance of uh, beating it, but you still don't want that. Like That was kind of my fear. I'm going to wake up and find out I have stage one colon cancer, which fortunately I did not, but it didn't look like I was that far from it. So definitely do it. If you want to ask me any questions about it, 775 372 8355. I had a question on Twitter. Oh, by the way, guess who uh, responded to my tweet about my colonoscopy results? Someone famous. Oh, there one we go. Step. Not one step. No, no, not one. It's someone famous, not, not forum famous. Uh, okay. I, I don't know who. <laughs> Jennifer Tilly. That's right. I did see that too. I spaced. Yeah, Jennifer Tilly follows me on Twitter. I'm one of like 400 people she follows. And she does interact with my tweets, usually just by like liking them, usually not by responding. But she responded to this one because her ex-husband, Sam Simon, one of the creators of The Simpsons, died in his early 60s 
from colon cancer. So she was, and she was still good friends with him, despite the fact they got a divorce. And uh, so she was very saddened and affected by his death from colon cancer, especially given his young age. And she wanted to emphasize, and she, you know, she put out there in the tweet, in the response, what had happened to Sam Simon, her ex-husband. And she was also encouraging everybody to get the colonoscopy before it's too late and said that that was one of the pieces of advice that Sam gave shortly before his death. So that spawned a lot of conversation about this because all these people who follow her started responding to this. People who didn't know me or play poker or anything. They were just fans of hers. Someone responded in that thread that they're afraid their insurance won't pay for it because they're not 50 yet. They they were like 48 or something. And I said, if you really want to get it, uh, first of all, I think most insurances will cover it after 45 now because of the changed recommendations. But maybe some don't. I haven't checked into it. I know mine will because of my family history. But that's the whole point is they don't check. So if you just say, I have a family history, then it'll be covered for sure between 45 and 49. Uh, I didn't lie about it. I really have a family history, as I've explained. But uh, if you say, I have a family history, it'll be covered. Either way. There's no way to check it. So if you really want one before 50 and get your insurance to cover it, you can just say that. If you have a family history, it'll definitely be covered. In fact, I think it'll be covered even after 40 with a family history. By the way, the reason they don't suggest colonoscopy before 40, even with a family history, is that colon cancer is so unlikely before 40, even with a family history, that the risk-reward is not there. Because there is a small risk. And the the chance of the risk uh, of the colonoscopy, which again is very small, so you shouldn't be worried about it, but just in case something were to happen, it's still a higher chance than you getting colon cancer before 40. So that's why they don't recommend it before 40, no matter what, except in some very rare cases. And that's also why they don't recommend it like after 75 if you've never had polyps before. The risk-reward is not there. Similarly, that is why, on a kind of a different topic, kids under 16 may never be vaccinated for COVID. Because it is thought that uh, it is so mild in kids under 16 that the vaccine may be more risky than the disease itself for that age group. That's why they're not even, they're not even studying it right now. That's why you can't get the vaccine if you're under 16. Which is actually good because it's going to prevent a big standoff with the schools, with teachers demanding all the kids get a COVID vaccination and the parents saying no way, which I was sure was going to be a giant controversy and is not going to be simply because it's not approved for under 16. So that actually prevents that controversy. I I would not be vaccinating Benjamin even if I could. At this age, I, I just I'd be much more scared of the vaccine than what COVID would do to him. For myself, that's not true. Yeah, definitely get a colonoscopy if you're you're in the age group where you should, especially with a family history. 
I don't know what the numbers are of how much more likely you are if you have a parent who has a history of polyps, but to me, it just it just seems like it's so much higher. And I, I'm someone who it happened to. I'm one of these believers that so much in your life is genetic. And when I say so much, I mean really a whole lot. A lot of your personality. Uh, definitely a ton of your health. So, mu- so many things are genetic you don't realize. I'm not saying everything is preset the way it's going to happen. Your decisions make a huge difference. And the same person with the same genes can go a lot of different ways based upon their decisions. The, the genetics also affect the decisions. And genetics even affect things like how likely you are to abuse drugs. Or how likely you are to suffer from mental illness. How likely you are to uh, have some sort of uh, attention disorder. Or how likely you are to die early of something. High cholesterol too, Jeff, right? Oh, big time. High cholesterol and blood blood pressure are very genetic and people don't want to accept that. But it's true. When I say people, I mean like the general population don't want to believe that. They think it's behavioral. It's really not. It's genetic. So I have the high blood pressure. I do not have the cholesterol. Cholesterol is great on me. And not deservedly so. But the way I eat, you would not think I would have a good cholesterol level. But I do. I have probably a better cholesterol level than almost every listener of this show. Blood pressure, not so much. But that's genetic. And a lot a lot of things are genetic. So something like colon cancer, which also seems very genetic. It's been proven to be very genetic. If, if you have it in the family, watch out. If I had a, a clean colonoscopy where it was just nothing in there, then I, I would be singing kind of a different tune. Like I would know I needed to be there, but it would seem, it, it would be less of an effect on me. It was to wake up and hear that big polyp was there in the back that was precancerous. And I wasn't even 49 yet. And I said, shit, it is good I came here. All right, well, thank you to, for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Thank you for joining me for the last uh, two plus hours here, uh, Trader Risky. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to listening to the rest. We may have to put the COVID stuff in the middle because I come back and then it's just COVID topics. You know, I want some of the good stuff. <laughs> I, I put it at the end because uh, a lot of people listen to the show only for the poker and gambling content, and I don't want to stuff the other put the other COVID. Inf- I don't want to put the COVID information in with all that and turn people off to where they don't want to listen to the show. Of course, I, I just spend the beginning of the show uh, talking about colonoscopy, so I guess I kind of violated that. But uh, Most weeks we get right into the poker and gambling stuff, which is the reason most of you listen. Anyway. Wait, drop and drop. Just stop the music for one sec. Okay. Let me just send some love out to Matt the Rat, who lost his father this week. That's Tell right. Tell him we're all thinking about him. That's right. Uh, Matt the Rat, uh, unfortunately, his father passed away, and it was unexpectedly. 
from what I read, and uh, that's uh, got to be really sad. I know he was uh, close to his father, and and Matt's Matt's a very good guy. I've I've spent uh, time with him in person on several occasions when he comes to the World Series. Me and, too. And uh, you know, I know you have too. And uh, you know, I felt very bad for him. I when I hear stories like that, I think about how I would feel if one of my parents just uh, abruptly passed away like that. And uh, I thought, wow, that's got to be really awful for Matt. I feel so bad for him. And uh, yeah, so I, I sent him a message on Facebook and uh, told him I was thinking of him and uh, I hope he's okay. And I know you can never be too okay. From it, uh, his, his, his father did live till the mid-80s, I think like 84 or something, so yeah, he did have a long life and looks like a happy life, and uh, still, you, you're never ready for that to happen, even when your parent lives a long time, so, uh, and it, it, it didn't seem like it was coming, it just seemed to have happened abruptly, which can be tough, and then I know that happened to uh, to Vintage One as well with his mom, where he she unexpectedly passed away last year. Yeah. So that's it's very tough. So, uh, yeah, condolences to Matt the Rat, a longtime friend of the show here, and I, I hope you're you're feeling a little bit better. And I know it's something you'll never completely get over, and it's an unfortunate part of life that you get into middle age and that uh, starts to happen. And some people get a longer time than other with with their parents, and uh, my my dad, for example, his his parents were both gone by the time he was thirty seven. So that I thought I thought about that it must have been tough on him to be that age, and both parents aren't there anymore. But you're never ready for it, no matter how old you are. True. So okay. Anyway, uh, that's. Thanks for mentioning that, Trader Ruski. I knew there was something I was forgetting here. I meant to—I meant to say something about it too, and I just completely slipped my mind. That's what happens when I have the seventeen topics here. My, my mind turns into uh, Swiss cheese. So, okay, thank you, uh, Trader Ruski, again for uh, for being part of the end of the show here. And uh, I don't have the energy right now to edit it and slap it in the archives, but I'll, I'll try to do it uh, a little bit later today. And uh, expect the show on Friday going forward, but always check uh, twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert and we'll give updates on that. We should have some news in the upcoming uh, weeks here with how the Doug Polk-Daniel Negreanu match is going to end. And it looks like it's going to have a normal ending to it. Which I'm glad about, because I, I, I didn't want to see it ending with that limping nonsense. Not just because I have a bet on Negreanu, I just... I didn't like that being the ending. It was, it was no bet. I just kind of felt cheated as someone who's following it. I, I, I haven't even really watched the matches, but I, like, I've been following the results every day when they do it. I know they don't play every day, but when they do it, I always follow the results. And I I would have been disappointed if it, if it ended that way. So it seems like they're playing it out now normally, and that's the way it should have been the whole way. So I'll say again, Daniel should not have behaved in the manner he did. He should have raised an issue, but just not that way. Oh, Phil Galfon beat uh, Chance Cornuth. He's still undefeated. 
Very tough guy to beat in Heads Up PLO, Phil Gelfand. Even ten years after his peak. He just is very good at a Heads Up PLO, what can I say? Let's think anything else I forgot. I don't know. I've been talking for eight hours here. I don't, I don't have much more to say. People were laughing about the fact that I said that doing the show for all these hours takes a lot out of you. But try it. Try, try just sitting in there talking with like no interruption for eight hours. Or almost no interruption. See how you feel at the end of it. It's a lot tougher than you think. Okay. I'm done. Done until next week. Last show of January will be here in February. Next Friday. Shalom. Shalom.